the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888-888-1172. Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Morning, morning, and Grace America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Special treat for you today. I am still in Venice, but I will be back from Italy in a couple of days. I pre-taped this before I left for Europe because I'm going to spend today talking with one of my favorite writers, and he should be one of your favorite writers as well, Daniel Silva, maybe the finest practitioner of the espionage novel at work in the United States or indeed the world today. His uh, series of books about Gabriel Alon are just uh, monumental bestsellers. The new one, Moscow Rules, probably on top of the New York uh, Times bestselling chart. I spoke with him, and we will devote today to the art and the craft that he's practiced for many years. Daniel Silva, welcome to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Hello, Mr. Hewitt. How are you? Uh, please call me Hugh. And by the way, thank you. You've given me countless hours of extraordinary enjoyment, and uh, I appreciate it very, very much. Well, that is the highest compliment, and uh, thank you for reading them. I'm glad you like them. I'm gonna. We got a lot of time. We got you know three hour program, an hour and forty minutes. So I want to set this up for our audience the first way by sort of introducing them to you a little bit and then going through the books and concluding with Moscow Rules. But I do really, when someone comes up to you and says, should I read Moscow Rules first, Daniel Silva, you say, no, you you really ought to go back to the kill artist and start there? Um, I don't, actually, because the the books are, um, while they are a series, um, they do stand alone. Um, And so you can read Moscow Rules um, and start there and then and then work your way through them in any order you like. I mean, is it do I wish that everyone started reading uh with the first book and went on this journey with me? Sure, but that's not the way it works and and I um really try very hard to make sure that each book does stand alone. I will say this about Moscow Rules, which I've now finished, courtesy of your publisher sending it out to me early. It really does stand alone. I, I think the other ones in the middle of the sort of Arab-Israeli stuff that we'll be talking about, a little bit harder to walk in from stage left or stage right. right. But Moscow Rules is, is so different from the other ones. Uh, right, and then I think I um, there was uh, some of that was intentional. I mean, I, I look, I have wanted for a long, long time to try to figure out some way of writing about Russia like any uh espionage writer of my generation we grew up we're children of the cold war we grew up reading this stuff um and i had been waiting and, and for a long long time to try to get at the russia story um and uh, i was finally able to do it with this book and so it is a um <clears throat> while the character is still the same character and the characters around him are still the same it is a um 
a bit of a departure and it, and probably end, going to end up being the, the first step of a journey uh, for me through the, the, the Russia story. Yeah, it's phenomenally successful in that I thought it was over. I didn't think anyone could go back to Russia after Le Carre or Lynn Dayton and all that sort of stuff. But, but here you are. You've introduced us to the new Russia of Putin in Moscow rules. And I, I, I saw at the end of the book as well. There's lots more ahead, uh, and I think, in fact, that genre may be as resurrected as the Cold War seems uh, to be. To judge from the number of Russia books that are coming out right now, um, I think that's probably <laughs> true. Here, I thought I was breaking a lot of new ground, and, and uh, I think there are two or three uh, thrillers that deal with Russia out this year. Um, and uh, I was interested to see... Uh, you know, get smart coming back. There there are, um, look, and I believe it's valid. I mean, uh, anyone who knows my work knows that I think seriously about the issues that I write about. Um, And I am, uh, I wouldn't quite use the word alarmed by what I see going on in Russia, but I am concerned about what I see going on in Russia. Um, uh, This is a, a, a power that, uh, that was denuded at the end of the Cold War, uh, had lost its empire, um, and it wants that empire back. Uh, it has seen the unipolar world uh, that uh, took shape after the Cold War, and it doesn't like that world. It wants it to be a bipolar world again. It wants to challenge us on the world stage. Um, and it is willing to play rough. Well, we just saw Medvedev uh, pushing back at Bush in Japan. Uh, of course, we're taping this on July the 9th, and it's airing when the book comes out in later July. But we just saw that. As I put down Moscow rules, here's Medvedev pushing back at Bush. And I thought, boy, this is timely. Um, well, he's, Medvedev answers to a higher power. Yes, <laughs> <And that laughs> he does. Putin. Um, and... It was very interesting about a week before the G8 summit, um, and as an aside, I'm I'm someone who thinks it should be the G7 again for a while until Russia changes its act, but uh, it's the G8 for now. Um, Right before the G8 summit, the European uh, Union group of leaders had a little sit-down with Medvedev, and they remarked what a change it was and how nice he was and how pleasant he was and how non-confrontational. Um, maybe that uh, message got to Mr. Putin. He wasn't happy about it. Uh, I think that um, look, the Russians are are famous for throwing tantrums at, in international gatherings and, and uh, in, in meetings with Europeans, and I wouldn't expect that behavior to change now that uh, Medvedev has, has taken over the presidency. I'm talking with Daniel Silva, author of many wonderful books. All of them, by the way, available at danielsilvabooks.com, of course, at amazon.com as well. His brand-new bestseller, Moscow Rules, in airports and bookstores near you right now. Uh, Daniel Silva, so I just got back to the Dominican Republic, spent a few days down there with mm-hmm. Children International, and their dictator, Trujillo, who was uh, in power for 40 years, would do the Putin thing occasionally. He'd step down from being president, but he'd keep his office in the uh, in the palace, and he you know put someone up as the front guy. I think we're stuck with Putin until he dies. What's your assessment? Um, I don't. I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, every piece of uh, gossip and intelligence that I've been able to pick up from you know senior contacts in the administration and CIA, we believe that Vladimir Putin is almost certainly a billionaire at this point. Um, he has managed to scarf up a lot of, of wealth and, and gather a lot of, of, of dough while he's been in office. Um, at a certain point, you know, he, he might be willing to, to step off the stage and, 
and live his billionaire's life. Um, I'm not. I am not sure. It's like, it's very very difficult uh, to gauge um, what he really wants. Um, even during the 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 run up to the to the uh, musical chairs that they played, um, it was my understanding from talking to people in the administration that the CIA really could not. Uh, tell the president and predict to the president exactly how it was going to unfold. They just really had no idea until they finally came out and made their announcement and how they were going to pull this off. So I'm not sure we know what Putin wants. You know, at the end, and we're going to come back later in the conversation to Moscow rules and the specifics of the story, but let's focus on Russia for a second. Uh, I was telling my uh, my wife last night that we'd be talking about this, and I said, you took your children to Moscow for an entire summer. Her first question, how could you visit that traffic on your kids? We were in Russia a couple summers ago. Did they enjoy that period of time in Moscow? Oh, my gosh, yes. I mean, part of it is, you know, not not so much fun for them, you know. Uh, you know, I, I took them to the to see the, uh, the one of the – Sites where where the great purges was was carried out, a village called Butovo, south of Moscow, yep. is now a memorial. And you know, trying to get the children up to go to visit a, a Stalinist killing ground wasn't exactly easy. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but you know what? They love it. And coincidentally, my uh, in my son's English class, they read Animal Farm uh, this semester, and, and he noted that he yeah. he. Unlike everyone in the class, understood everything about it, um, and because he had been to to the Kremlin itself. And How long did you Kremlin, spend? In... He had been inside the KGB headquarters. Right? Oh, he got into Lubyanka. We did with we you. All, I saw that you got in. to go in. Wow! And uh, so he, uh, I try to take them along whenever I can. I think it's it's uh, it's just one of the blessings of. of being able to do the work that I do, and I try to share it with them. How long did you spend in Moscow last year? Um, a couple of weeks. Wow. Now, in terms of... Uh, and the traffic, you're right, the traffic is miserable. Oh. But you have to experience it. It's, it's part of... Uh, you look, everyone loves St. Petersburg, you know, and fawns over the, the museums and the canals and the beautiful buildings. I did, too. But to me, Russia is Moscow. And I agree. Moscow is the, definitely the beating heart of the new Russia. And I am... Um, very tough on the Russian government in the, in this novel yes, and some of the things that are going on in Russia. But my gosh, did I fall in love with that place? Yeah, they're not very happy with you. If this is translated <laughs> into Russian, they're not going to like Daniel Silva too much. I don't think it's going to be. Oh, in the, I hope they can take a joke. Because I would love to go back and 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 feel comfortable there because I just, it's a very very interesting place. When we come back, uh, we're going to start walking through the the story of Daniel Silva and his incredible success as an an artist in espionage. Before I do that, you must be working on next year's book right now, correct? I am. Is it about Iran? Uh, It is not. Okay, it just uh, was a guess. No, no, it's going to be... going to follow up some of the themes and characters from from Moscow Rules. Oh, Ivan Karkov is coming back? (laughs) I'm just not prepared to go down that road with you. All right. When we come back, uh, we'll continue the conversation with Daniel Silva about Moscow Rules. All the books again over at DanielSilvaBooks.com. That's S-I-L-V-A, DanielSilvaBooks.com. The first one is The Kill Artist. Actually, the first three didn't concern uh, Gabriel alone, so we'll catch up with all that when we return. Don't go anywhere, America. Special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. 
The Hugh Hewitt Hotline is sponsored by the franchisees of Mathnesium Learning Centers. Your child can be great at math. We know how. Parent and franchise information at mathnesium.com. 21 minutes after the hour, Mark, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome. Special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. I'm not yet back from Italy, but I pre-taped this before I left with author Daniel Silva. Brand new book, Moscow Rules, out now. Magnificent read as the previous Gabriel Lawn books are. Uh, Daniel, in times when I've sat down with authors before, the nonfiction people like Lawrence Wright or Robin Wright and spent an entire show with them, and the only other time I've ever done this with a, not, with a fiction writer, Stephen Pressfield, uh, I always like to start a little bit about the craft and, and how you go about it, but biography first. You were born in Detroit, Michigan. Your family moved to California. Why and when did they do that? Um well, we lived out in western Michigan. Uh, western Michigan, okay. And, and if you have ever spent a winter in western Michigan. I went to uh, Ann Arbor Law School, so okay. I know Michigan. <laughs> um, we lived, my parents were both school teachers. We lived in a little summer house on Crooked Lake out there. And the winter of 1967 was one for the books. And <laughs> wow. the house was buried beneath snow. And they just, you know... Had enough, and um, it was a time when when a school teacher could snap their finger and get a job, and and um, we we headed west. And Were you reluctant to go? What are you about five? Uh, no, it's about I was uh, seven actually, okay. um, and sure I think so. But um, moved to California, um, grew up in in uh, Central California, and um, I actually feel very lucky to have lived. Um, in the, in the kinds of places where, where I lived as a child. I, 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 anyone who knows me knows that I, I just love this country dearly and, and love people in the middle of the country, um, real Americans, as I tell my children who live in Washington, D.C. And, um. Which part of, uh, Central California were you in? Uh, I was in, uh, the San Joaquin Valley, uh, a little town sure. called Merced, kind oh, of east of the Bay Area. I know Merced very well. And, and, uh, you know, Victor Davis Hansen is one of those real Americans, a farmer yeah, from Fresno the Fresno State professor, yeah. is he not? Yes. Uh, although he's now at Stanford and Hillsdale more than he spent, I think he's actually retired from, uh, Fresno State or Cal State. Fresno is actually where I think mm-hmm. he was, but, but also writes out of that. The Central Valley is a unique place. You went to San Francisco State and, and tell people, uh, actually, uh, when you went to high school, you were public high school? Yes, I uh, uh, went to private um, junior high school um, and uh, public high school kid, yeah. And when did you learn to write? Um, I learned to write, um, I, I hesitate to say this, but it, it, I, I think it just sort of came in the DNA. Um, I was always a good writer in school. Um, I was able to... Uh, be a, a, a journalist at the local newspaper at, at a very very young age, as a um, just had the had the gift, I guess, um, and could always string a couple of sentences together, and um, and just knew early on what I wanted to do, um, and I knew that I, I did not come from a family of means, so the option of you know sitting around and Tinkering away on my on my novel for a few years after graduation wasn't one that was available to me, so I went to work as a journalist first because I thought it would be uh, good training in the art of storytelling, that it would provide me with interesting experiences, and, and all that turned out to be the case. Yeah, you know, we're sitting around. There's a lot of uh, sympathy for journalists, obviously, in Moscow rules, and we'll get to the part about that. But I no question. Uh, we're living through the collapse of print journalism uh, in the old style. It, we it saddens are. me. It must in, sadden you. Uh, to see the, the once great Los Angeles Times have to 
Um, what they lose the other day? Uh, another 150. From Announced the 150. It's really going to be 300 by December's end. Uh, uh, only 30 percent of the newsroom. It is. Um, you know, when I was a when I was a kid in the San Joaquin Valley, there was one little newsstand uh, bookstore downtown that opened really early, and you could get the L.A. Times. It was before it was was widely circulated in that part of California, and I would plunk down my money and get that big, thick newspaper every single day and and read every word in it. It was uh, it was a great newspaper, and to, I was just in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago, and just to see this little almost pamphlet that it's become. Uh, it's very, very sad. And um, uh, I am not one who, who looks on the death of, of print journalism <laughs> as something good. I think that um, uh, to, to turn on, you know, the cable shout shows, which I have a past in myself, uh, and, and it is not journalism that we are watching every evening on television. Um, it is polarizing. It's not necessarily good for the country. Uh, you have Fox News speaking to one audience, MSNBC speaking to another, uh, CNN somewhere in between. And uh, we need print journalists, and we need straight, serious journalism. Um, I, I agree 100% with that. We'll come back to how we learn that reflected out of what's happened in Russia in Moscow rules. But take us, you know, you go to San Francisco State, mm -hmm. and then you get out. Is UPI your first job? Uh, it was, and I and um, I also worked at a small newspaper uh, in Palo Alto uh, for a while. So after college, I had um, I worked from six to two in downtown San Francisco, and then I would jump in my car and drive to uh, to Palo Alto and work a four to midnight shift as a cub police reporter, you know, police and fire reporter down down in the peninsula. Well, yeah, I was just a media fellow at Stanford, and I think that daily in Palo Alto is it's still going. Oh, no. there's, there yeah, is a daily. Is yeah, there? it was Peninsula Times Tribune, and that oh. one is gone, I believe. Oh, that's too bad. And uh, so I was, um, I started that way. 16 and, hours a day of reporting, huh? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, uh, and luckily, the only thing that saved me is that both jobs would happen to me Monday through Friday. Uh, and so I could sleep all weekend. I used to hop in the car and go to my parents' house and let my mom do my laundry for me and get some sleep. Uh, but, you know, it's just one of those situations where it was so tough to get a job in, in the business back then. Uh, it's in the early 80s that, you know, anyone who, who said yes, I just, I took it, you know. When did you meet, you're married to NBC News correspondent on the day show, Jamie Gingell. Where did you meet her? Was she we also met uh, in the Persian Gulf um, in uh, December 1987. I was uh, chief Middle East correspondent for UPI then, uh, based in Cairo. But but um, I also spent a lot of time in, in the Persian Gulf, actually uh, had two residences. And, and uh, right. Jamie... We, it was during the period, I'm not sure if you recall, what, uh, when we put the, the United States, put the Kuwaiti oil fleet under U.S. flag. Yes, we reached the first yeah. Iran-Iraq war after the attack on the Stark. Yeah. Um, and she came out on a Pentagon pool, uh, pool coverage. We met, fell in love, and, uh, 
decided to get married, and we were married about eight months later. Interesting period of time. It's being pointed to now as Iran threatens to close the Straits of Hormuz, and people are looking back when Reagan reflagged everything and saying it doesn't work when they threatened to do that. Uh, uh, when we come back, we'll pick up the story. We lost a couple of years there between San Francisco and Palo Alto and getting the Middle East, and we'll figure that out with Daniel Silva is my guest. Entire broadcast today. One of the finest practitioners of the espionage, espionage novel at work in the world today. His brand new book is Moscow Rules. It is, uh, of course, a Gabriel Alon book. It's one of, I think it's number eight in that series. We'll talk about him, about the series, much more about the craft and the art and the recovery of the espionage genre when we return. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Hewitt Show. The Hugh Hewitt Hotline is sponsored by the franchisees of Mathnasium Learning Centers. Your child can be great at math. We know how. Parent and franchise information at mathnasium.com. 34 minutes after the hour, America. Hugh Hewitt, welcome to the program. I'm talking today with Daniel Silva, author most recently of the fine new espionage novel, Moscow Rules, in bookstores, airports, Amazon.com, anywhere you go. But you can also get it from DanielSilvaBooks.com, his website. Now, Daniel, whenever I do a, a lengthy interview with an artist, whether it's a songwriter, a musician, uh, or a um, uh, someone in film, uh, the people in the audience start listening very closely who can imagine themselves doing that, and they always want to know about the transition. They always want to know about how did you get from being a journalist to being a full-time writer, and a lot of that requires them to know kind of the years you spent practicing the craft. So take us from UPI on the peninsula through the foreign desk through Cairo to when you looked at your wife and said, you know what, I'm gonna, I, I want to be a novelist, because that's got to be an interesting transition. Yeah. Um, look, I I knew what I wanted to do, and in, in many ways, I was um, a I was masquerading. I was a novelist masquerading as a journalist. Never wrote anything fictitious as a journalist, but I, I always knew exactly what I wanted to do. And um, I finally, you know, told my wife, "This is this is what I want to do. I need to I need to sit down and." and you, you got to let me have the time in the morning to, to try this. Like um, at, at the time, I was I had a very big job at, at uh, CNN. I'd moved it from UPI to, to uh, CNN after we got married, and I was the executive producer of all of their um, political talk shows: Crossfire, Capital Gang, Evans and Novak, uh, Late Edition. That was uh, that you know was my responsibility. I had a huge job. Um, and it was at that point where I just, you know, started getting up and, at five in the morning and, and, and working on a manuscript. And um, so it was something that I always wanted to do, had prepared for for a long time, and it was just a matter of making the commitment. And I, I think that I'm always stunned when very, very young people write novels. I, I didn't feel that I was ready to to try it until I was in, you know, my, at least my early 30s. Oh, good caution. Let me guess, was Tom Johnson one of your mentors? Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> always happens. He was Tom is, uh, and, and I just uh, bumped into him not long ago this winter at a, at a big uh, cancer fundraiser in Washington. I think he and his wife are very involved in, uh, in uh, MD Anderson. And it was great catching up with him. And, and uh, you know, I, I worked on... Um, my first manuscript that went on to become The Unlikely Spy in complete secrecy. Huh. I wanted to, I didn't tell anyone, um, especially at work, what I was doing. And uh, I, 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 I always find it difficult and uncomfortable when people want to talk about the novel they're writing, 
you know, I think that you should do it in private and then talk about it. But um, but also, I wanted to preserve the the, the right to fail in private, you know. Uh, and when I uh, did get that first book deal, the, the the person that was most supportive and and uh, most energetic about the process was Tom. He's a great guy. It's it's, it's extraordinary. I don't know him, but I, the number of people I've met in media whom he met, I was just talking about him the other day with a friend of mine, Bill Abdel, whose dad was the general counsel of the LA Times for a lot of years, and Tom mm-hmm. Johnson. It, it, he shows up in about a thousand careers, and I've yeah. never met him, but it certainly is a very interesting guy like to American Kelly. media. <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit about when you were writing, uh, obviously you throw yourself into espionage. Who were you reading? Was it Le Carre? Was it Len Dayton? Who was it? Um... I am. I really do flow from that British tradition much more than the American tradition. Yes. Um, and so I had read all that stuff, um, you know, growing up as a kid with Alistair MacLean and Jack Higgins thrown in, and and so I I really felt that my style was a um, an amalgam, if you will, of of um, some of the more literate writers mixed in with uh, some of the more pure adventure writers, and I think that's one of the reasons. Um, why the series has worked the way it has. But the difference is, if you read Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, or Game Set Match, or any of these great novels that are sixes and, and eights and tens, they're not as current as your series of books have been in terms of taking headlines out. And, and really, today, in fact, we're talking, there's been an attack on the American embassy in Turkey. And right. I immediately thought of uh, Death in Vienna, yeah. where there was an attack on the American embassy in, in Rome, as I recall. And and so I don't think they ever tried to do that. How do you stay abreast of, like, what what's your information source for what's happening now? What do you uh, read? Um, my what's happening now sources are... Um, Look, daily daily reader of New York Times, Washington Post, but um, I also read. I tend to at least leaf through the the Telegraph and the Times in London. Uh, I read Israeli newspapers as well. Uh, oh, interesting. And then the BBC website. So I, I'm, you know, this is when I when I'm not writing. When I first wake up in the morning. I try not to let the real news um, uh, get in my way. But. Right back with Daniel Silva when we return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back. Uh, I am not back yet. I am, in fact, uh, still in Venice. I'll be back in a couple of days. Look forward to talking to you again. Thanks to all the guest hosts who've been holding down the fort. But I take this interview today with Daniel Silva before I left because uh, I'm a, a great fan of his work, love all of his books, his new book, Moscow Rules. Coming out this week, I had the great privilege of reading it in advance thanks to his publisher. You'll find it as fascinating as the previous books. When we went to break, Daniel Silva, you were saying you yes, try I not... Yeah, on the break. I'm yeah. so sorry. That's okay. You're, you know you know that because you were a producer. <laughs> I, I should have listened. <laughs> Got to make the music come up a little bit louder. But the um, you were saying you try not to let the real news get in the way of your writing. And right. I think that's a, a very interesting insight into yeah. the struggle. Explain that to people. I wall off my part of the day where, where, where I'm involved in my world. <clears throat> and then... Um, and then I, I come out of that shell uh, briefly, and then I live in the real world. And, and that's really, it's a wonderful thing to inhabit, uh, you know, two places. And uh, but but I really, you know, I roll out of bed. I like my, like most writers, I think I, I do a lot of writing in my sleep. Um, Graham Greene, I learned a lot of lessons from him, and, and one of the things he did is always read what he wrote that day right before he went to bed, and then. 
you know, I just find that when I when I roll out of bed, I just grab a cup of coffee and go down and start writing because that's always the most productive time. But those, that first hour that you're awake. And, and is that a do you set for yourself a discipline that every single day or at least Monday through Friday, that's what you do? Uh, Monk like, and it is not Monday through Friday. I I um, I work seven days a week. I find it very very difficult to take days off. Uh, it's rather like an actor staying. Uh, in character on a set, you know, it's, it, it could come out. It's just harder to get back in. I, I find taking even a single day that when I when I, you know, come back and and start writing again, that that uh, takes me a little longer to get back into it. So I try to write every day. Do you know where you're going to end at the beginning of every novel? Haven't the foggiest. Haven't the foggiest. Well, um, I I know maybe about a a third of it, and and I don't want to know any more than that. Um, I want to bring the characters and the story to life on the page and then let the characters lead me by the hand to the finish line. Uh, I've been working with Gabriel long enough to know that um, at a certain point you just got to put the story in his hands and get out of the way. Now, do you hear the conversation or do you write it first and then hear it? Yeah, you know, I was, I was, it was funny you should ask. That's a great question. Um, I sometimes feel, when, particularly when Gabriel is with his mentor, Ari Shamron, that I'm just a mere stenographer and that these characters have so come to life in my head and they're so part of our family that you just really, um, in, you know, just kind of writing down what they say. It's not, it's, when you really work on a novel and, and, and you really get that magic and you get into that clear air, it's not that you're making up a story. It's just that you're writing down a story that you already know or you're remembering a story. I know that sounds kind of weird, but it's um, that's the point where I like to get to, where you're just, um, you know, it's, it's like it, there's the memory of the story is so imprinted in your in your subconscious that you're just writing down something that you already know. You know, there are a couple of recurring places in your books, Shamron's Villa, the waiting room in the in the airport where Mossad people go to when they return. And, and when you're, do you see that when you're writing? Uh, uh, that's a sort of an extension of the question I said about do you hear it? Do you see them in those rooms? Do you have you a bet. vision? You bet. I mean, one of the things that I'm a stickler for and, um, is a term that we use called point of view, um, and that every scene has a point of view through the eyes of a character. And, and sometimes I'll go God's eye and 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 write um, in a more omniscient point of view. But I generally, I have, you know, in the, the formula of my novels were really with Gabriel seventy-five to eighty percent of the time, and so. I see things through his eyes, and and because of, he's an artist, he has a very unique vision, um, and I try to capture that vision. And so he's very um, observant about certain kinds of things, and I try to to, uh, to to use that to my advantage when I'm when I'm writing. Well, that that's the cue to, to sort of plunge in now for the audience, and lots of them have never even heard of Gabriel Alon until this moment. By the way, am I pronouncing his last name the way you pronounce it? I, I do tend to anglicize it, yeah. And if, if in Hebrew, he would be um, Gavriel with a, with a V, um, and alone would be the way that he would say it in Hebrew. But I, in English, it's Gabriel Alon. All right, and, and so uh, as we go there, uh, I just got to ask, there are no movies yet out of this series of books, and yet I would think 
that every producer in Hollywood be trying to get, hey, it's eight books, it, you know, it's Pierce Bronze's next life as a sort of an aging spy. Is it optioned? Um, it has been optioned at various points, various books at various times, and um, we um, have a number of offers on the table, and I'm just making sure that that when I do let it go this time, that it's to the right person. Oh, good for you, because I, I I love the fact that there's no actor in my mind when I read this at yeah, this I don't, point. I, and that is, I don't have an actor in my mind when I write it. Um, I've always found that rather strange that people picture actors to play their characters. My character is my character, and he looks the way he looks. He doesn't look like someone else. Uh, that's, that's right. Now, let's talk about, about him. He's a Mossad agent. Let's give the brief history that you... Even if you're starting at the beginning with the kill artist, he has a history in the kill artist. That's right. Tell people what it is. Um, he is a Sabra, meaning that he was born in Israel uh, to the uh, parents of... Uh, of German Holocaust survivors. Um, he spoke German, they, they spoke German at, at, at home, so his first language is actually not Hebrew, but German. Um, and as I've pointed out in a number of books, that he still dreams in German. So he has this very split personality in terms of, uh, of that. Um, Hold that thought. Okay. I, I messed the queue up this time. <laughs> I was looking at the wrong queue. I'll be right back as we introduce you to Gabriel alone with Daniel Silva, his author. We return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. The Hugh Hewitt Hotline is sponsored by the franchisees of Mathnasium Learning Centers. Your child can be great at math. We know how. Parent and franchise information at mathnasium.com. 55 minutes after the hour, concluding the first of three hours with Daniel Silva, my guest, uh, author of many wonderful books, uh, the last eight of which feature Gabriel alone. We we're talking about him. He's in his new book, of course, Moscow Rules, available everywhere now. And you can get it from DanielSilvaBooks.com or an airport or bookstore near you. And you will thank me for pointing you to it if you already didn't know about it. Uh, you were saying he's a Sabra Alonez, born of Holocaust survivors and still dreaming in German, his first language. Pick it up from there, uh, His Daniel. grandfather um, was a famous German expressionist painter. His mother was a very gifted painter. Uh, and Gabriel was a very gifted painter himself. He was studying at uh, the Beit Halal Institute of Art in in Jerusalem in September 1972. Beit Halal is like the national uh, art school in in, in, uh, in Egypt, in Israel. Uh, and September 1972, of course, was the date of the Munich Olympics massacre. And as many people know from the movie Munich, uh, the Israelis put together a team and went after the people who carried out that attack. And Gabriel was the primary gunman on that um, hit team, Operation Wrath of God. And he um, worked on that operation for three years. Um, when he came home, he, he looked different. The stress of it tore him up. Um, and he was also lost the ability to paint. And so he studied, went back to Italy, and became an art restorer. Uh, so he's fixing paintings now. Um, and he also, from time to time, did other sorts of jobs for uh, Israeli intelligence. And um, so that is sort of where he's at now. He is a, a restorer and sometimes, uh, as I call him, secret servant of Israeli intelligence. He has done assassination work, but he's really much more than, a, than an assassin. Much more. And he has lost his 
son and and he had a, he uh, in 1991 while on assignment in Vienna a terrorist uh, uh, placed a bomb under his car and, and killed his son uh, and grievously wounded his wife um, and she is alive his first wife and and lives in a uh, psychiatric hospital on Mount Herzl and his poor son uh, is buried in on Mount of Olives in, in, in uh, Israel. So he is a, in a way, he is a warning about what happens to m- people who, who, and, and man, in the situation that we have in our country right now, when, when we decide to fight terrorists on their levels, it is, it is a, uh, not a pretty picture. It's, a, it's very bracing. He's a hero who has bled and will talk and who has changed as a result. We'll talk about him and the message in these books, which is uh, multi-layered, very complex. When we return, hour number two, straight ahead. My guest, Daniel Silva, author most recently of Moscow Rules. Don't go anywhere. Special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Morning, Glory to me, Grace, America, to Hewitt, hour number two of a special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. No, I'm not back from Europe yet. I will be back on Wednesday, but I taped this interview uh, because the opportunity arose before I left with Daniel Silva, author of many wonderful novels, but most recently, Moscow Rules, a brand new book available in bookstores now and airports and from Amazon.com. It's linked at HughHewitt.com, and Daniel Silva's website is DanielSilvaBooks.com. And if you have been listening the first hour, you'll be hooked. But if you haven't, let me tell you to, to tune in and go back and get that from the podcast sometime. We've begun to talk about the central character of the last eight of Daniel Silva's uh, 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 11 novels. Uh, his name is Gabriel Alon. He is an Israeli. He's a Sabra. He is a, a secret agent. He has been an assassin. He does a lot for the uh, the Secret Servant of Israel. But he's also an art restorer. And I want to pick up there, Daniel Silva. Did you come to these books with much working knowledge of art? Um, not beyond the, you know, the odd college art history course and a, and a, just a passionate love of art. Um, and I just make sure that, um, people who are a lot smarter than me about art read, uh, my stuff before it goes to print. But I'm actually a, a good researcher and careful and, and, um, uh, and, and do all my own research when it comes to art. Now, in the afterwards of Moscow Rules, you mentioned David Bull, who is a, an accomplished art restorer himself. Right. How did you come across him, and what's he given you in terms of an appreciation? Frankly, until I read your books, I, I was unaware that such a profession existed, though obviously it had to. I just didn't it think about to. it. It has to. Um, it, he was a, a uh, <clears throat> conservator or restorer at the National Gallery of Art in Washington at the time. He lived around the corner from me in, in Georgetown, uh, so he worked for the gallery, but he also worked privately. Um, and his house was wonderful because it had no proper or no serious alarm system on it. Oh. But he had, um, um, you know, it was address was fairly private, but you could walk in there and there would be, you know, easily, you know, $200 million worth of art that he would be working on, everything from, you know, Van Gogh to Monet to... I mean, it's just, it, it's extraordinary. Uh, and he was just a friend, and I had this idea that I wanted to use this as a, as a cover for Gabriel. And I said, listen, I, I, I'm wondering if you can help me turn an Israeli assassin into an Italian art restorer. And he said, sure, no problem. And so we, we pieced together how where he would have studied and how he goes about his work. and and uh, How fast. Let's dig into that for a second, because obviously there comes a moment in the life of Daniel Silva where yeah. Alon erupts uh, like Athena 
When was that? Because this is just not your ordinary assassin. No, and it was. The funny thing is, is that he was never supposed to be a continuing character, and I had to be talked in to making him a continuing character because I was uh, deeply concerned about. Um, look, you know, it's no secret that a lot of people don't like Israel very much. Um, Are you Jewish, by the way? I am. Okay. Um, I didn't know that, and Silva's uh, an unusual man. raised Catholic and, and um, converted to Judaism as an adult. But there's a, there's a tremendous amount of anti, anti-Israelism um, in the world, uh, particularly in Western Europe. Um, and uh, also, you know, no small amount of anti-Semitism. And I was just deeply concerned whether, whether you could take a, an, an Israeli and turn him into a, a palatable continuing character for an American audience and, and I was I was told that my concerns were way off base and uh, as best piece of advice I ever got and I and I wrote it the, the second book that I wrote about Gabriel had nothing to do with terrorism it was a book about Switzerland and the Second World War Holocaust, and the art right. looting a book that I wanted to write for a long time and I took Gabriel dropped him into this completely different setting um, and it worked beautifully and, and sold probably twice as many books as the previous one. Now, you uh, cannot expect me to just wander. You've blown up my outline now. So I have oh, to I'm back. sorry. But, but to be raised Catholic and to become uh, Jew is, is an interesting, and I'm sure a lot of people say, well, stop there. You, what, what was that about? When did that happen? Um, okay. <laughs> We're going to go straight for the heart of the matter. Sure. Um, it happened as, as an adult. Um, um, I was raised in a very strict Catholic home. Um, Were you an altar boy? School. Hmm? Altar boy? Altar boy. <laughs> mea culpa, mea culpa, mea magna culpa. And, and um, while I, I was always a, a, a person of, of considerable faith um, and, and love the church, I, I was not truly a doctrinal Christian, if you get my meaning. I was much more a a God person and, and, uh, and more comfortable, uh, doctrinally as, 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 as a Jew than I was a Roman Catholic, um, and a Christian. And that's, um, and so I have a, anyone who reads, for example, a book like The Messenger, where Gabriel works, um, to save the life of, of the Holy Father, the Pope, um, and knows that that can probably read between the lines and see that, that that I still have a great reverence and love and respect for the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, I have a continuing character in the novel, the Pope's private, or in the series, excuse me, the Pope's private secretary, Luigi Donati, uh, and the Pope himself is a continuing character. So there's some little clues in there about my uh, about my split religious path. Yeah, I'm not going to say it explains everything, but boy, it's, it's quite. Uh, part of the tumbler that you've got to unlock here. And then I also, I also fell in love with a uh, with a Jewish woman, um, and uh, wanted my children to be raised uh, Jewish, and and, uh, and uh, didn't want to be different from them. How observant are you? Um, we belong to a very nice synagogue in in Washington D.C. Um, we celebrate the holidays and and Shabbat, and um, children were just. Uh, I have twins, so we had was was known as a b'nai mitzvah, uh, where they were barn bat mitzvah at the same time. Well, congratulations um, on it! So how often? Oh, it was have the you, best day of my life. Ah, how, how often have you been to Israel? Uh, several times. 
And um, uh, when when did you actually convert? You have to go through that process, as I understand. <laughs> uh, as a, gosh, what year was it now? Um, it was actually after I started writing the Gabriel series. Shortly after. That is so fascinating. How has it informed how deep you go into the Israeli side of the book? Because a lot of it is Europe, obviously, <laughs> but there's also these intermittent periods in Israel. And, and how much has that impacted your desire to get deeper into it? Um, I'm not sure. That is a good question, and, and I don't know that I can answer it. Um, Gabriel, like most Israelis of his generation, was raised in a a <laughs> deeply secular home. Right. Uh, and and you know the Holocaust had a, a terrible impact on, on uh, many Jews that caused them to lose their faith, and 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 many of the uh, Jews who who came to Israel and that. Uh, um, either before the formation of the state of Israel and after were, were very, very secular. Um, and, and people really don't quite grasp that. Israel has gotten more religious as, as time has gone by, and, and, and um, uh, the religious community is wielding more and more power now. But at, at its formation, it was a very secular place, and that was um, reflected in Gabriel's life. I think I wrote in... in um, in a death in Vienna, there's a scene where Gabriel is watching Ari Shamron's wife light Shabbat candles, and he had never seen it. It's something that had not been done in his home. He had been raised in, in, in a home without religion. So what is Daniel Silva's view of God and how he works in the world? <laughs> Are we going to do this on a radio program? Oh, sure. Um, uh, I don't know that I could I could uh, put that into to, uh, a... Uh, Something that could go on a, on a radio show, but I I think that uh, I am definitely believe that uh, God exists and, and um, uh, God plays a role in my life. And uh, um, let me put it: Is he active in using individuals to accomplish his purposes in this world? That is one of the great mysteries, and I don't know the answer to that. What I is really Gabriel? I, I I think about it all the time. Um, and I would hope so, but I'm not sure. All right, because uh, you have to because you have to uh, uh, account for an awful lot of evil in the world, and um, I just I don't know how to explain that. Yeah, I just uh, I was just in D.C. a couple of weeks ago and went to the Holocaust Museum for the first time, and you can see how obviously it would shatter many people's faith. It's the problem yeah. of evil. Uh, I did a lot of research there. I, I, there's it has a wonderful research institute up top in the in the in the Holocaust Museum. Um, and have spent a lot of time there and Yad Vashem in Israel. Uh, and to walk down that, there's a wonderful exhibits in, in, in the Holocaust Museum. Um, two of them are the ones that haunt me. The shoes yeah. are awful. And then that they took a, a, a shtetl from either Lithuania or Latvia, I can't remember, and just put the photographs of everyone who died. Um, yeah, it goes for two stories. There, yeah, two stories. Uh, of, two floors of, yeah. of faces, and to have them gaze at you, um, it is easy to sit, understand why people would think that they had been forsaken by God. My guest is Daniel Silva, uh, author of many wonderful books, full of lots of complexity. You really got to read them. The most recent one is Moscow Rules. We'll come back and continue the conversation. We return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. The Hugh Hewitt Hotline is sponsored by the franchisees of Magnesium Learning Centers. Your child can be great at math. We know how. Parent and franchise information at mathnasium.com. 21 minutes after the hour, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thanks for listening. Special edition of the 
Hugh Hewitt Show with author Daniel Silva. His brand new book is Moscow Rules, available in bookstores, airports, everywhere. Fantastic read for the beach for your travel. But there are also seven books preceding that that uh, deal with the protagonist of the novel, uh, Gabrielle Alone, and three before that. All of them are available at danielsilvabooks.com. Daniel, let's uh, go back to Israel for a second. Obviously, you are very sympathetic to the state of Israel, as I am, as this audience generally is, um, extraordinarily so. I'm wondering if that has evoked hostility uh, from some parts of your audience who must come away thinking that that you are so pro-Israel that you can't be giving fairness, not having read it, by the way, I think you're very, very fair to some of the Palestinians and Arabs that we encounter along the It Books way. But what's been the reaction of the reading public to this point of view? Um, I mean, for the most part, the readers of the series like it, but I get my share of people who fling me the ugly letter now and again or, and send me the ugly email, and, and um, you know, I just brush it off. I mean... Look, if you take the two books that deal with um, the Palestinian question, The Kill Artist and The Prince of Fire, the Palestinian characters in those novels are deeply sympathetic. Right. And, and uh, you know, for the record, Daniel Silva is a, a devout two-stater, okay? Yep. <laughs> I believe that there should be a Palestinian state living side-by-side side with the state of Israel. Um, I don't think we're going to get there anytime soon, um, but I, I believe that. Uh, the, 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 the two books that, that deal with, with uh, global jihadism, uh, The Messenger and The Secret Servant, they are not sympathetic towards the global jihadists. I don't have any sympathies towards the global jihadists, the people who, who um, want to uh, create a... a Caliphate and drive us from the Middle East, and we'll use any grotesque act of violence to achieve that end. There's no sympathy for. I have no sympathy for them. Um, they're rather unsympathetic characters. Now, book. do you think that the counterparts to Ari Shamron, the head of Mossad, the Israeli mm-hmm. Secret Service, and Gabriel Lone are, are losing sleep as we speak over Ahmadinejad, the supreme leader of, uh, and the supreme leader, not Ahmadinejad, but uh, Hatemi, and all the other mullahs running around Iran who have launched uh, ballistic missiles on this day that we talk? Uh, no question. Um, no question. Um, I have had many conversations with with Israeli officials about this, and I'm, I come away with two impressions. Um, once I was told by a senior Mossad official, do you really think that we are going to sit around and do nothing while they develop a nuclear bomb? Um, do you really think that? But then the second thing that, that strikes me every time I have this conversation is that when they talk about using the the, uh, the military option to deal with it, it usually is preceded by the words, God forbid, because they know that if they have to do it, um, it is going to turn the Middle East into a cauldron. Also, um, the Iranians have very cleverly created two proxy armies on Israel's border, one in the north called Hezbollah and one in the south called Hamas. Uh, it is now estimated that that Hezbollah has about 42,000 short-range missiles and rockets. Remember a couple of years ago when Israel went uh, went to war briefly with Hezbollah, maybe the estimate then was about 15,000. They have rearmed, they are armed to the teeth, and Israel knows that that if it strikes it at Iran's nuclear facilities, that Hezbollah is going to be able to launch a, 
extraordinarily violent retaliatory strike that will probably depopulate the north of Israel. So regardless of who does it uh, under these scenarios, whether it's the United States or Israel, Israel is going to be the one that's going to pay the short-term price. Yeah, there's also an article on the day we take this uh, in the Gloria Center's publication on Fortress Gaza and how the same thing has now happened on the southern border, including an armament escalation to rival that of Hezbollah's on the northern border. So I got some really interesting intelligence on that recently during a briefing that, that the Iranians are putting the kind of weapons into uh, Gaza that that you know, there they are not just the little Qassam uh, rockets there anymore. They are putting much more serious. Stuff That's in what there. the Gloria Center's uh, Jonathan Spire said. Well, well, how often do you talk with Israeli intelligence people? Every now and again, um, but I don't. It's not that I'm sitting there with them working through my plots or or asking them how to do things. I mean, at, after eight books, these characters are, I have my own. In fact, I don't call my service the Mossad. As readers know, I call it, I refer to it as the office. I never say what their real name is. And I, I wanted to just have create the, create some distance between my family of characters and the real thing. How do the real thing react to your <laughs> They like it, obviously, and they sometimes, uh, I'm told about little quarrels and disagreements where some, some people think, oh, well, that's me, and that's me, and, and, uh, um, but look, it's, 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 uh, I think that they're as surprised as I am that a, a character from the Israeli Secret Services is, is, it appears at the top of the bestseller list in this country. Now, it's been my honor to know a few agency people uh, on the operations side, and, and they're never as exotic as Gabriel. They, they live ordinary lives in places like Reston and Vienna, and that's Vienna, Virginia. Oakton. Oakton and places like that. What do they think of these books? Because uh, they come off a little bit, and we'll talk about this, unwilling to get their hands dirty, uh, a little Dartmouthy, a little, you know, generally speaking, let Mossad do it in your mm -hmm. books. Um well, that is in, in the uh, in the last couple of books, Gabriel has worked in a way almost as a subcontractor for um, for the CIA, um, and I, I know that there are many fans of the series that that work at at Langley. Um, and but look, the, the war on terrorism; these guys are getting their hands dirty all over the place, and and it's coming back to, to bite them actually, and and. Lots of people at at Langley and elsewhere are lawyering up, as they say, because uh, uh, there's going to be some trouble ahead over some of the tactics that we employed during the, the war on terrorism. How often do you talk with uh, the Americans in the business? Um, well, I have lots of friends in the business, so it can um, I, I see uh, CIA agents and, and and undercover officers socially all the time. Is the trade craft imagined or taught? Uh, in terms of my novels? Yeah. Um, the, it is. I, I use um, established uh, trade craft for, uh, where I can, and quite frankly, I, I make up the rest. I okay. mean, I'm not going to – I, I you got to focus on what is important, and that is the, the character's um, and, uh, you know, the trade crafts is, is interesting to a point. And well, like the Smiley fun. novels, it's a wonderful hook. There's trade craft in the Smiley novels, and there's trade craft in the Elan novels. It's kind of a fun aspect. I was just wondering if it was made up or if someone had... But I, I, use, I use terms um, um, and, and their trade craft 
um, where I can and where I want to, and and I and invent or or create an amalgam of tradecraft where I where I need to. Coming right back with Daniel Silva, author of most recently Moscow Rules. The book's available at DanielSilverBooks.com. Stay tuned. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. The Hugh Hewitt Hotline is sponsored by the franchisees of Mathnasium Learning Centers. Your child can be great at math. We know how. Parent and franchise information at Mathnasium.com. Thirty-four minutes after the hour, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thanks for listening. Joined by Daniel Silva, a novelist extraordinaire, author most recently of Moscow Rules. All of his books available at DanielSilverBooks.com. Uh, Daniel, uh, Munich matters. Here we are just a couple of weeks before the opening of the Beijing Olympics. And Munich matters a lot in your eight Gabriel Alon novels. Uh, okay. And, and uh, you were 12 at the time. I was 16. Do you recall watching Jim McKay through all those hours? Uh, it is seared into my memory. Uh, and it was just, you know, it hit me at the right age where I was, my receptors were open and it is just, and I also was a very serious uh, young runner as a kid and, and had dreams, un, unfulfilled dreams of maybe being in the Olympics someday. And so I, I, I watched the Olympics uh, religiously and uh, it just awful. And, yeah. and I, and I watch all the films and watch Munich and watch one day in September and, and see it all played out again. And it just still makes me, Stick to my stomach and, and make the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Yeah, trying to convey to young people, you, you just couldn't get away from the television. And no. There was nothing on the television. You just watched for hours. Yeah, and uh, it, uh, I think it was a, a, like for Gabriel, it was a turning point in his life. There's also a turning point in my life. I mean, this was, it wasn't the 9-11 in terms of, of um it's loss of life and destruction of property, but it was a, a sort of uh, tear in the curtain, if you will, of, of human decency that that, that, that this happened. Um, and that, frankly, that the games resumed the next day. I know. And, uh, and so it, it, it affected me deeply as a child, and, and it's just strange that I came to write about a character involved in it. Now, the passion that's in the book, on page 144 of the new book, Moscow Rules, you have Adrian Carter, the CIA Deputy Director for Operations, whatever his title is, say, it has become popular in Washington these days to think that the threat of terrorism has receded, that we can live with the occasional loss of national monuments in American life. But when the next attacks comes, and I do mean when, Gabriel, these same free thinkers will be the first to fault the agency for failing to stop it. It's a little bit of a sermon, one that I welcome the delivery of, but yep. you live there in D.C., and I, whenever I go there, I'm astonished that here we are at Ground Zero, the target, uh, that they always come back to. There's this almost unworldly air of nonchalance. <laughs> but I was uh, in Aspen uh, uh, a few days ago, before publication, I should say, and um, a very senior official from the Department of Homeland Security was there and was having conversations it was during the ideas festival and, and and predicted that the odds of an attack in the United States before the election was 50-50 or better <laughs> uh there there is a, a thought that that al-Qaeda will try to influence the election or give president bush a, a send off to remember um and so i think that the the i, I don't know that the, the if I would agree that it's that high, I have no basis to form that opinion. But but I do think that we are uh, in a in a period of time where the chances of, a, of an attack are elevated. I spent a lot of time. That doesn't mean that they can't have the capability to do it either. I mean, 
um, you know, it is quite possible that we are actually winning this this thing called the war on terrorism. Uh, it's not something you hear a lot, um, but uh, we have degraded Al Qaeda substantially, and I'm not sure that they can carry one off. I, I spent a lot of time talking to people like Lawrence Wright, Robin Wright, uh, the folks who wrote the nuclear jihadists, et cetera, because I think we're living in this unworldly era. But does that sense of urgency inform how you go about your books, or are you just a storyteller? Uh, no. I mean, look, I live in Washington, D.C. I, uh, I could sit in, in my house in Georgetown and see what looked like a, a Mount St. Helens cloud of smoke rising up from the Pentagon, uh, and uh, it was not as bad in Washington as it was in New York, obviously, but, uh, you know, people streaming out of downtown Washington, up Wisconsin Avenue and Connecticut Avenue, White House complex being evacuated, uh, Capitol Hill being evacuated. I don't want to live through a day like that again, um, and, I, and I hope to God we don't. And when you talk to people outside of Aspen, though, uh, is that alarm in your opinion, sufficiently widely spread and understood, not among the government, but among the chattering class, which used to supervise at CNN, and obviously you've got friends in the chattering class still. Mm -hmm. Do they get it? Um, they do, but I get the sense that we have consciously or unconsciously um, have entered or are about to enter the post-9-11 world. And, and um, it was always the danger of declaring war on terrorism. It's been a long time, long slog, things have been done that we're not exactly proud of. And I have a feeling that it's all about to wear off and we're about to walk through that doorway into the post-9-11 world. We'll continue the conversation with Daniel Silva when we return. The Huge U with Hotline is sponsored by the franchisees of Mathnasium Learning Centers. Your child can be great at math. We know how. Parent and franchise information at mathnasium.com. 24 minutes after the hour, America, talking with Daniel Silva on the special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show about his brand new book, Moscow Rules, and the seven that went before it featuring Gabriel Alon, a Mossad agent or an agent of Israel's uh, secret uh, service, uh, and he's had eight different adventures. The new one, Moscow Rules, heavily depends on what's going on in Russia. We'll get to that mostly next hour. I do want to anchor people in Ari Shamron as well, uh, Daniel Silva. We were talking last time about how uh, Alon was influenced by Munich. Shamron is, in your book, the man who grabbed Eichmann. He was. And, and when people read Eichmann, I'll bet you not a lot of them have any idea of the significance of that. It is part of his role to kind of educate people on, on the pre-Munich history of Israel and what it did and how it survived? Um, perhaps, but he is, um, you know, he is a, 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 a blend of a number of different legendary Mossad figures. Um, and I took a little from this one and a little from that one, um, but really his defining moment um, was the, the capture of Adolf Eichmann. And, and um, there is a little dispute within Israeli intelligence about who actually was the one who who uh, clamped uh, their hands around the guy. Really? How can they not know? Uh, because a couple of figures um, fought over that 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 mantle, um, unfortunately. But then in my world, it was a it was a young in intelligence officer named Ari Shamron um, who was had an unusually powerful grip for such a small man and. Um, uh, he actually had to grab him and, and, and get him to the car. And uh, it just 
you know, changed his life as some, as of it, you know, one would think. Now, one of the things I, I like about your book is that not only does it pay a lot of respect to the Israeli secret services, but it also demonstrates repeatedly they're not perfect. There's this image of, oh, you know, from Entebbe and all this other stuff that they can go anywhere at any time. But, in fact, they screw up a lot of these books, and I like They screw that. up a lot because, um, well, I, you know, when I created – um, part of the, part of the uh, subtext of the first one, that the restorer Gabriel Lon was, I, I wrote it at a time when when Mossad had had really bungled a bunch of serious cases in a row, and there was a lot of talk that they'd lost their touch. Um, they tried to kill uh, Khaled Mashal, the head of Hamas um, in Jordan, and had failed, and and they. Get lost a team in Europe who was arrested in Switzerland trying to plan a simple bug. You know, they, they'd really seem to lose their way and lose their touch. Um, and I, it was against that backdrop that I wrote the first Gabriel book. And, and uh, you know, the analogy or the metaphor of restoration was, was something that was important. Um, but look, they play in a very rough neighborhood, and they are they are willing to do things um, that traditional services um, are unwilling to do simply because of they they look they live on the razor's edge there. Um, you know, a, a a nuclear bomb in Iran looks one way to the people of the Netherlands and looks a very different way to the people of Israel. What's interesting is the tension over many of the books between the European services, whether it's uh, uh, MI6 or the French and right. the Italian and the Israeli services. Do you think that's real? Is that how it really plays out? That uh, it is. It is. Um, Take some dramatic licenses. For the for the most part, um, Israel has pretty good relations um, with the European security services. Uh, for the simple fact that the Israelis um, give offer the people of Europe much more protection than the people of Europe understand that they are are a source of, of a lot of intelligence about the movements of terrorists, um, and so. Uh, they they are a conduit for of intel and intel, uh, information for the security services and intelligence services of Europe. Yeah. Uh, that said, um, the Israelis have have a record of doing things on on European soil that that uh, Europeans don't like, and so there's there I, I don't think that it's unfair to. Uh, to create some tension between Gabriel Alon and the various security services. Oh, it's a fascinating aspect. By the way, in your, in your last book, The Secret Servant, uh, five members of an Amsterdam mosque go missing, and it's picked up on. Do you think the level of surveillance and competence is, in fact, that deep as those among those who watch the jihadists? Um, yes, I do. I know for a fact that you take various mosques in Germany, for example, and they are seriously penetrated. Um, look, there was there was a wonderful piece in in um, Commentary magazine this month about uh, took an overall look at the at the global war on terrorism and asked the question: Are we winning? And 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 one of the dark spots in the view of the author of this piece um, is a, is was the subject of the secret servant. That is Western Europe. Um, and to the extent to which jihadists are, are embedded within the European communities and the threat that, that European passport holders, for example, can, can uh, create for this country. Um, but if you take a, a typical radical mosque in Germany, uh, the German services are all over it. They're working with 
with services in the Middle East. Um, they have bugged these places. Um, you know, they they are working very very hard to make to to keep an eye on 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 the terrorists that they know are within their midst. I mean, the the the, the head of MI5 knows that he's got several thousand committed jihadists living in uh, in in the United Kingdom, and and cells that are operating. This is just a fact of life about what's going on in some European countries. And, and do you try and read, as we have about 45 seconds, do you try and read the jihadist literature to get inside their heads in the way, for example, you, uh, you said you had no sympathy for them, but do you try and... Yes, I do. Interesting. Yes, I do, and I, and I, I understand what makes them tick. Um, I think that it, one of the things that I did well in The Secret Servant was, was yes. uh, how to, to, to take these two characters Ibrahim and and Isak and, and explain how the father went in one direction and the son went in a completely different direction. We come back. We'll continue the conversation with Daniel Silva. His brand new bo- uh, book is Moscow Rules. That's the eighth in the series, the first, the kill artist. Next hour, we'll go through the books and Moscow Rules. One more segment this hour. Don't go anywhere. If you want to order the books, DanielSilvaBooks.com or any bookstore near you. I'll be right back on The Hugh Hewitt Show. The Hugh Hewitt Hotline is sponsored by the franchisees of Mathasium Learning Centers. Your child can be great at math. We know how. Parent and franchise information at Mathasium.com. Five minutes after the hour, America's special broadcast of the Hugh Hewitt Show, devoted to a conversation with Daniel Silva, one of the leading practitioners, if not the best practitioner, of the espionage novel over the last uh, eight years in the United States. His Gabriel Halon books, uh, most recent one of which is Moscow Rules, out now, dominating bestseller lists as people come to love the detail and the plotting. Uh, a couple of quick questions before we go to break. Food and drink play quite a lot, uh, a role in, in uh, all of the Alone books. How much of a... Uh, of an eater and a drinker are you, Daniel Silva? <laughs> I am not. And I uh, I eat a really simple, healthy diet, and I and I really uh, don't touch uh, alcohol beyond the, uh, the the glass of wine with dinner. So, so someone must be but, cluing you in. But <laughs> but I, I do go to Italy a fair amount. Um, the funny thing about the Alon books is that I do more. Research for the art aspects sometimes than I do for the uh, for the thriller and plot parts, and so uh, you know one of my one of my tough duties is to, to go to Israel and 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 look at paintings and and talk to art experts there. I mean, I heard that you were you're going to uh, to Venice. Venice. Yes. And uh, I, I, I was rereading Gabriel's work there. I know he's, he's done the Bellini altarpiece, and we're going to come back. I'll reread that on the plane over there. Let me ask you though about the Gary Larson temptation. When anyone I like a lot gets really, I worry that they're just going to say, "Okay, I'm done now," like Gary Larson did with the Far Side. Uh, what's what's the trajectory for Alon? How long do you think you'll be doing this? Um, I don't know, um, but I have no. I I I have books that I'd like to get to. Um, but I, I love the characters. I uh, love the stories. Um, at, a, at a certain point, characters, you know, stop aging in, in readers' minds, and so it's, it's not a question of, of the character getting too old to do these kind of types of things. And it's it's um, really a question of how long I want to do it before I move on to other things. And I don't know the answer to that question. I never planned to write a series in the first place. Are your, are your family tired of Gabriel? Does, does, mm. does she ever turn to you and say, stop being Gabriel? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, they really become, I, you know, I, I, I always looked, 
had a little bit of a skeptical reaction when I heard authors talk about their their continuing characters and how they are, you know, alive in in their lives. And and I am not skeptical about that anymore. He is as real to me as 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 anyone else in my family. And and uh, how much of a day are you? T- how much does he enter into the to the mental life of Daniel Silva on an average day when you're not writing? When I'm not writing? Yeah. Um, you know, he's there definitely. And when I'm writing, it's just, uh, he's, he's, he's at my shoulder the whole time. I, 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 I give little hints about my own work habits through his work habits. And there are times where I describe Bellini standing at Gabriel's shoulder helping him finish a painting. And, and that's how I feel with him sometimes. Hour number three, straight ahead. Daniel Silva, my guest, Moscow Rules, his new book, Don't Go Anywhere. Fascinating conversation. It has one third left to go on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Morning, glory and grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening today. Special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. I taped it before I left on my European vacation. I'll be back in a couple of days. Uh, thanks to all the guest hosts who have been sitting in for me. The conversation is with Daniel Silva, uh, extraordinarily successful uh, uh, novelist of the espionage genre. His most recent book, Moscow Rules, in bookstores everywhere. Bestseller. By the time I get back, I'm sure it's going to be a top the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, and you're on one of these killer promotion tours. I, I, I guess you have to do 33 stops on this book tour, Daniel Silva? I'm holding in my hand a special shirt that we made up for the tour. And it looks like, like one of those old Rolling Stones tour shirts, you know, the baseball sleeves with the, with all the cities on the back. Um, it's, uh, how I spent my summer vacation. It's, it is 33 stops. And, um, it's hard, but it gives me a chance to, to, go out and 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 spend some time with uh, my readers and i just love it and uh, so it's um i i get to uh really see the state of the the u.s airline industry oh my gosh in a very personal way because i fly every morning basically i can't imagine i've done it for a week at a time i just can't imagine it but i it's 33 days of the same questions in essence but it's it's um I actually, I really do enjoy it. All right, it's 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 the, it's the travel and the time away from my family that's that's the hard part. Before we dive into the the novels themselves, I want to ask one question that, that touches them all. Because Gabriel Alon is a restorer of art, you always have some artist or art piece at the center of the book. Sometimes it's Bellini, it's been Rubens, it's uh, in the current book, Mary Cassette. How do you pick them? Um, I pick them very carefully in terms of I want. Um, imagery that um, reinforces something in the novel itself. Um, obviously, in, in the new book, um, it, there's a painting called Two Children on a Beach by Mary Cassatt, um, and those two children on a beach, without giving anything away, play a very important sure. um, a role in the outcome of the story. Um, if memory serves, uh, the... the Rubens was to, uh, Daniel in the lion's den that he, right. he, he restored. Um, you made up a Van Gogh. Uh, I I I made up a a a painting um, that, that was based on 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 the the facts. Uh, Marguerite Gachet. I, I created an an additional painting of Marguerite Gachet that that uh, Vincent made. Uh, near the end of his life. And so all, so when you start at the book, do you, do you look around for someone whose life or drama will interest you, or do you look for a painting that will fit into the plot? Um, sometimes it's it's just when he was working in, in uh, Venice, for example, um, it was just 
picking something that David and I wanted to restore, basically. <laughs> uh, I like that Bellini. Let's do that one. Um, and then, you know, where, where, the, where the paintings are really part of the plot, um, as they were in The Messenger and, uh, and in this book, um, that, that I, I want something... I want to create an image in the in the reader's mind on, on the canvas uh, that that also has um, something that that to do with the with the plot. There's also a fascinating aspect here: uh, the world of art dealing, which has been in all of the books, but mostly in the Secret Service and the current one in, in the attempt to for a collector to get the cassette or for a collector to get the Van Gogh and right. the middlemen and the money. They might not like your work too much. They don't they come off. They love the work. They do. And the and the. Uh, um, yes, I actually um, was uh, the given a, a, a big book party a couple of years ago in, in New York by dealers and and, and uh, uh, curators and things. And the, the, Gabriel is very very well known within the the, the restoration and the art community. Um, Interesting. He uh, did you have any idea how vast it was when you began down this road? <laughs> I, I really did it, and uh, but a couple of years ago, when a very um, famous art restorer was giving a lecture at the at the Tate Gallery in London and quoted from Gabriel Alon in the, the lecture. That's when I knew that Gabriel had really uh, come to life. All right, let's go back to the start. And I want to do sort of a forced march through the previous seven and spend a lot of time on Moscow Rules. The okay. Kill Artist is the first Alon book. How different is the Alon of 2000 when it comes out from the Alon of this summer in terms of the full nature of the character and its availability to you? Much different. Um, he's, he... At that point, he had fled um, his old service, was was living in isolation, basically in, in uh, Cornwall, in in the far southwest of England. Um, he was tending to his wife, who was in a, a British mental institution uh, because of the wounds and the and the psychological psychiatric trauma that she had suffered, and he was a a. Uh, surly, um, rather broken figure who was hauled out of the dustbin um, to uh, track down uh, the, the man who destroyed his family. And um, so he has he has grown up and changed um, uh, then. He was really a lone wolf, very shy, uh, uh, difficult personality, not a guy that you'd really want to hang around with. Arafat is in that book, as historical personages appear through all of them. Yeah. Um, it's sort of dangerous to do that. How do, you, how do you manage sort of that you're writing in real time with real characters? Obviously, Arafat died thereafter, but not during the course of the book. He, he appears in two novels, um, and the first book was written uh, during the period uh, at the end of the Clinton administration where we were really having a go at peacemaking and, and President Clinton uh, tried but failed to bring the parties together at Camp David. And, and uh, this novel, talks, is uh, the plot of it is that a, a Palestinian rejectionist group is going to try to torpedo the process by carrying out um, acts of terrorism on European and American soil. And, and you, you know, you have to make a decision. Do I want to create a fictitious Palestinian leader or do I, I want to go with the real thing? I mean, when you look at the Palestinian people, um, Arafat, for warts and all, <laughs> is the leader or, or was the leader of the Palestinian people. He was Palestinian nationalism personified. And to, to try to create a fictitious person, 
a fictitious Arafat. It was just, I just didn't think Couldn't I was going to be able to do it. Second book is The English Assassin. It's in Switzerland. You mentioned it earlier in our program. You're digging into the Holocaust, into their horrible past, banking the Nazis. But you also have a violinist in here. Uh, kind of a, one of the characters is a great but, but fractured talent. So you had to learn a couple. You had to learn banking and you had to learn violin music. How long does that take you to do? <laughs> a great question. And, and um, uh, the I, I worked very hard on the on the uh, musical aspects of that plot. Spent a lot of time with a with a very gifted violinist and uh. just tried to to learn how she thinks. Just the way I, I learned how Gabriel would think as a restorer, just just to try to um, to get inside the head of of a of a of a gifted violinist um, with a disturbing violent past. And so I had to do a lot of research on it. Um, and it, it was uh, actually a very successful character, and, and sure. um, so you I, had I a thought about bringing her back, actually. Oh, and uh, Gabriel kind of had to move on in his life. <laughs> that's interesting because you did use a violinist though to sit down and kind of. That's fascinating. You bet. All right, The Confessor is book number three. The the artist at the center of it is Bellini. The uh, the bad guy is the leopard. But this time we've got Vatican. It's the first Vatican thing, and you know, after the Da Vinci Code, a lot of people are going to be suspicious of. Uh, of twisting the Vatican around, but you're very sympathetic. I understand now why uh, you grew up Catholic, mm -hmm. but uh, you still have the crux vera in here, et cetera. What's your attitude towards the Vatican? Um, let me just separate that out from what the what this story was about, and that was um, the level of complicity of the of the of the Roman Catholic Church in the in the Holocaust and uh, the failure. Of, of Pope Pius XII to speak out more forcefully um, in, in condemnation of the Holocaust, and, and um, this this book um, uh, explores the possibility of, of was there some sort of, of pact between uh, the Germans and elements of the Roman Catholic Church to buy the Pope's silence, and that's what the, that's what the story is about. Um, but uh, as I said. In the first hour, I am, I am, you know, I'm not some Vatican hater, um, well, clearly or, not. or, or, or Vatican, uh, conspiratorialist, I actually, um, I'm fascinated by the place. I, if, have read deeply of the, of the history of the church and the Vatican. I, I, it's funny, a couple of summers ago, I took a private tour of the Vatican and, and its museums with the chief art historian. And near the end of the tour, he says, you know, I have taken a lot of people through this place. You know more about the Vatican than anyone I have ever brought in here. Because I, I, then I finally confessed who I was and, and why I, I, I've spent so much time studying the Vatican. But um, oh. So that, was a, that, was, that dealt with a specific aspect of, of the Vatican's past that, that um, I caught a lot of flack for from some quarters, but I think it was a fair book. Three down, five to go. Don't go anywhere. Daniel Silva is my guest on The Hugh Hewitt Show. The Hugh Hewitt Hotline is sponsored by the franchisees of Mathnasium Learning Centers. Your child can be great at math. We know how. Parent and franchise information at mathnasium.com. 21 minutes after the hour, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. An extended conversation with Daniel Silva, author of Moscow Rules, his brand new book, uh, continuing forward the saga of Gabriel Alon. It began with the English patient. We're on book number four, Death in Vienna. And on this aspect, it's really about survivors. There's a lot of Holocaust history here. And uh, 
Uh, do you do, do survivors talk to you much about how they and their experience are depicted in the Elan books? Uh, uh, absolutely. Every single time I go to a, uh, an, an event or, or I make lots of speeches and appearances at, at synagogues and Jewish community centers around the country. And, and uh, look, I death in Vienna is probably my personal favorite. And and um, if anyone who's read the book knows that the heart of the novel is a a fictitious testimony um, that I wrote concerning Gabriel's the experiences of Gabriel's mother dur- during the death march from Auschwitz and her and, tormentor and and her tormentor and and um, uh, writing it left me a personal wreck um, and I had nightmares for weeks afterwards but it was it remains um, I, I think the thing that I'm most proud of and I, a lot of work went into it I mean I went to Yad Vashem and read the real things in Yiddish written on the old uh, parchment paper that that you know these um, when uh, after the state of Israel was founded, uh, you know people streamed in and gave these testimonies quietly to uh, uh, to the record keepers and and it uh, it, it just is, remains my personal favorite. Book. Yeah, the service it does uh, pay a little compliment here. It's extraordinary given that we live in sort of an era of casual Holocaust denial, where you get these fanatics like Achman Dinejad. And it's become so routine. They are, in fact, accomplishing their purpose well, by diminishing it. Denial was the spine of that novel. Yep. Um, that um, the bad guy, uh, for lack of a better word, the, um, the Nazi war criminal that Gabriel is trying to bring to justice, his job was to erase the evidence of the Holocaust to the extent possible in the in the German occupied lands in, uh, in the East. Um, and you know what? They 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 succeeded in, the, in to a large degree when 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 the Poles and the Russians went to look for Treblinka, they could barely find the place. And um, uh, if you've ever been there, as I have, it's it's tucked away in the woods. They did a good job trying to clean up the uh, all the evidence, and and it, it, they kind of made it disappear for a while. Let's move forward to Prince of Fire. I could spend the whole time on Death in Vienna because I think it is very, very powerful, but I want to give people a taste of each of this. Here, the Israeli embassy in Rome is bombed. The bomber is, is a French archaeologist. The Rubens is at the center of this. But really, I think it's about 30 years of war between Palestinians and Israelis. It is, and it is. I think what impacted it most was my uh, personal <laughs> personal anger at, at uh, Palestinian leadership for for failing to uh, take advantage of the of the opportunity to create a, a, a state and 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 live peacefully, and instead they allowed uh, Hamas and, and other Palestinian militants to uh, bomb the daylights out of the Israelis for for uh, a period of a couple of years there after the collapse of of, of Camp David and the the Second Intifada. Uh, having visited Israel during that time, and to you know, uh, to hear the stories of the bombs going off, and and uh, you know, having friends who had to take their children out of the country because they couldn't they couldn't stand the stress anymore, um, and so that was really the backdrop of that novel, and it tells the um, the struggle in, in from over a period of, an, of a number of years um, and, and the terrible impact that it's had. 
The Messenger comes next, and, and fascinating about this is you really have begun to update the novels with current current controversies. You're Saudi billionaire. Yep. Uh, you've got the Vatican involved. By the way, is Pope Paul VII more like Benedict or more like John Paul II in your uh, He is more actually like, uh, if I were to pick a pope, he's probably more like John Twenty-Third. actually. Um, he is, he is, he, um, or maybe even, maybe even John Paul I. He's, he's traditionalist, but what has, um, some liberal inclinations. Uh, but Donati is not at all. Donati, Donati. He's the monsignor who's running everything. He's a tough guy. Yeah. Um, uh, so, the Pope's man in black, and, and every Pope needs one. But uh, but the book was um, um, my first attempt. If you'll if you'll look at the arc there, you'll see that after 9/11, I wrote three books that had absolutely nothing to do with terrorism. I just didn't want to write about it. Um, I, I was impacted personally by it and and uh, wasn't interested in writing about it until finally with the, with Prince of Fire, I crept up to a little bit writing from the Israeli point of view and Israeli context. Um, but The Messenger is the first time that, that I actually uh, walked up to global jihadism. Um, and coincidentally, it was... It was um, by far my, my biggest selling book to date uh, at that point. Um, oh. And it was a pretty good book, actually. Oh, it's very good. The Secret Servant comes next, uh, the one most recent before Moscow rules. And interesting here, with Bentecourt just freed, yep. a hostage is at the center of this. Yep. And the experience of being a hostage, uh, I think, uh, portrayed in a way very few novelists can... Uh, how did you try and figure that out? Who did you talk to? <laughs> well, I read as, um, as many um, descriptions of... of of it as I could, and and um, and I just made some very careful choices about um, um, how to portray the person in custody. I think that one mistake that that some writers or books have made is that you just spend you know endure these long descriptions of life in captivity, and I felt that I wanted to avoid that and just keep them very each one. Tense, and also it was important to me that my captor fight back, <laughs> and she fights back. And every she plays a role yeah. in her freedom every step of the way. Um, but the backdrop of that book is um, Western Europe and the threat of of Islam, uh, violent Islam, I should say, um, extremist Islam um, emanating from Western Europe. Uh, and I. It's funny when I finished the book tour for the Messenger, and the last couple of days of that book tour, um, the news broke that the British Secret Services had broken up the plot to bring down uh, the jetliners with liquid explosives. And I said, "We are out of here." And, and I got to, on a plane and was on the ground in London uh, a couple of days later, while the crime scene tape was still up around the suspects' houses out in, in East London, and, and uh, that was really the the impetus, the creative juices that that, that brought that book to, to fruition. And there's an echo of it in Moscow Rules with the plot there, and we'll talk about that after the break. My guest is Daniel Silva. I've given you sort of the, the thumbnail introduction to uh, the seven preceding books. Now we dive into Moscow Rules when we come back. What is going on in Russia? 
with Daniel Silva trying to tell us in the middle of a, a very good yarn about Gabriel Halon and Moscow rules. We'll be right back on the Hugh Hewitt Show. The Hugh Hewitt Hotline is sponsored by the franchisees of Mathnasium Learning Centers. Your child can be great at math. We know how. Parent and franchise information at mathnasium.com. 34 minutes after the Hour Americans, Hugh Hewitt with Daniel Silva. A magnificent new book, Moscow Rules, shooting up the best-selling charts around the United States, I am certain. And uh, we're back into Russia. And uh, Daniel Silva, I this is what I used to do. This is what I read. This was my professional life. I had to know the Soviets. I had to read things like Vladimir Bukovsky to build a castle. It was part of my life. You brought it back. Uh, it, it's hard to do that. How much of the dissident literature, how much did you throw yourself into the Soviet era, the Stalin era, and the dissident era in getting ready for this? Um, a disclaimer. I, I thought that I was going to be a, the Moscow correspondent for United Press International. I studied Soviet foreign policy and Russian history at school. Um, this was what I was all about as a as a college student. And when I got my job at UPI, I was going to be I was being groomed uh, to go to Moscow. And as as fate would have it, I ended up in the Middle East instead. Um, maybe that wasn't such a bad thing because a few years later, uh, Soviet Union ceased to exist. But you know, I would I have been waiting to do this book for a very long time, and so. Um, but in preparation for writing it, while I was writing it, I reread Soviet history, 20th century history from the beginning, read all the classics, um, and then focused heavily, obviously, on, on the Yeltsin and, and Putin years, and, and particularly the last few years of the, of the, of the, uh, the reign of Putin, to, to, and, and try to get an accurate picture of what Russia is like right now. Did you talk to Jeffrey Sachs? Do you know him? I don't know him, and I did not speak. Okay, it's interesting because his big theory is the one that's blown up in our hands here in terms of uh, shock therapy and what happens in the aftermath. We'll come back to that. In terms of, of getting ready for covering Stalin, the house on the embankment, the Lubyanka, all that kind of stuff, had, was that already in your bag of tricks when you started this, or did you have to go back and, and start taking the copious notes and re-remember it? It was in my bag of tricks, but I, I reread uh, everything. And, and look, when I when I'm working on a novel, I will read a hundred books on, on the subject. I mean, I just throw myself body and soul into into what I'm working on. Craftsman's question. Uh, do you allow that reading to divert you from the writing in the morning? Is that part of it, or do you try and keep those two things separate? No, the the, uh, the reading is, uh, is my nighttime activity. I'm not so right. <laughs> yeah. uh, do you happen to have read Tim Weiner's Legacy of Ashes? Uh, I did. It, it made the Soviets accomplished in this area where the Americans have not been so good when it comes to spying. How much? I, I, I believe that, but I, I was told by people in the know that, that I mean, Wiener's point was, Wiener Weiner, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, was that we were able to actually recruit very, very few um, really good spies in in, in Soviet Union, and and I'm not quite sure that's that's the case. I yeah, his theory is they ran circles around us. All they the probably did, um, and they were much more ruthless, and they're willing to play by completely different rules than we were, uh, and still are. I mean, I mean, let us let us speak frankly about something. I, I believe that the Russian services had a hand in the in the murder of Alexander Litvinenko in London. Right, you make that okay. clear. Um, we are have dedicated uh, a great deal of our security apparatus to making sure that 
that weapons of mass destruction and and chemicals and biological weapons cannot be get got into the hands of terrorists and used against us. These guys transported perhaps the most lethal substance on the planet, polonium-210, across Europe, spread it all around London, and committed an act of, in effect, nuclear murder in the heart of the British capital. Um, these are the kinds of people um, that are still running the Russian services. Uh, the, during the Cold War, they referred to us as the main enemy, as you know. They still refer to us as the main adversary. Uh, they changed it slightly, but but they still have um, this this uh, Cold War outlook in in terms of the way they go about their business. And they are, as you say repeatedly, KGB with better clothes. What does Moscow rules refer to? Page seventy seven. Gabriel stood in line for twenty minutes before finally being processed with Soviet warmth by a flaxen-haired woman who made no attempt to conceal her loathing of him, <laughs> refusing an indifferent offer of assistance from the bellman. He carried his own bag to the room. He didn't bother searching it. He was playing by the Moscow rules. Now assume every room is bugged and every telephone call monitored. Assume every person you encounter is under opposition control and don't look back you are never completely alone you had to write those down for the first time uh i did um and um the i i learned through my research that that, that the, the cia has never bothered they 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 feed the moscow rules into their spies intravenously they're their case officers i should say but they've actually never bothered to write them down they're in print now in the new book moscow rules by daniel silva i'll be right back with him the hugh hewitt hotline is sponsored by the franchisees of mathnasium learning centers your child can be great at math we know how parent and franchise information at mathnasium.com 44 minutes after the hour america it's hugh hewitt getting close to the end of a magnificent conversation with daniel silva author of moscow rules his brand new book in the gabriel series out in bookstores now available at amazon.com i've linked it it's available at danielsilvabooks.com as well uh moscow rules has a couple of unlikely heroes including uh, reporters for a, a, a dissident magazine it reminds me of novi mir etc in those years but you write in the afterwards 47 reporters editors cameramen and photographers have been killed in russia since the fall of the soviet union uh clearly a dangerous hobby or or, or profession to have in the new russia um I think if memory serves, 12 after Putin has come to power. Um, and, you know, these are not just people who are killed in war zones. I mean, these are people who are the target of professional hits, uh, Anna Politskovskaya being the most famous. Um, the book was inspired to some degree by the murder, of a lesser-known death that people don't, uh, here in the, in, the, in the West at least, with a guy named Ivan Safronov, who was investigating a secret missile deal between um, Russia and some Middle Eastern country, uh, perhaps Syria, and the authorities were were quite irked at him. Um, and uh, although it's never been proven, uh, his colleagues think that he was he was murdered because he was about to to um, reveal the, this this secret deal. Um, he lived on the third floor of a. Moscow apartment building. He fell from the fifth floor of that building. Uh, yeah, when he was living on the third, as you point yeah. out. Now, l let me ask you. You've got your your bad guy, Ivan Karkov, say in this book on page two thirty five about democracy. Democracy is fine for those who wish to be democratic, but there are some countries that simply don't want democracy. Right. I'm glad you had a thug say that because I reject it. But but did you purposely have a thug say it as opposed to believing it in that you know basically we should just get used to a czarist Russia? Um. Well, 
I think that Ivan's words are could have been spoken by Vladimir Putin himself. I mean, um, he they have clearly gone their own way. They call it managed democracy or sovereign democracy, um, but there's little democratic about it. I mean, the the opposition parties, such that they are, are basically puppets and, and useful idiots, as Lenin would say. There is no free press. There is no independent judiciary. There is no um, legitimate um, means for political opposition. I mean, we know what, what a democracy is. It, is. it is separation of powers. It is a free and unshackled press. Um, it is fair courts where, where people can go in and, and, and get a fair hearing. Um, uh, none of these exist in Russia. Um, as I write in the book, um, that Russia has lurched from the ideology of Lenin to the ideology of Mussolini in a period of about 12 years. Uh, Russia is, in my opinion, a fascist country. Now, why did, in your opinion, studying this, not all of the former Soviet Union fall. I just was listening to BBC podcast. Bulgaria has fallen back into the orbit. It's going fascist again. But not Poland. Is it because of the the Catholic roots of some and the, the separate spheres that survived vis-a-vis there just wasn't any. The Soviets destroyed everything. There was no third wave, even though the Orthodox Church endured. There just wasn't any training. Yeah, I think that you can't underestimate the um, the influence of Orthodoxy on the course of Russian history, or the or the influence of Catholicism on Polish history. And I do think that that uh, the fact that um, Poland is so devoutly Catholic, and anyone of Polish descent knows that, or anyone who's visited Poland, you know, you, you can't drive more than a, a handful of miles down any country road without coming on a, uh, a lovely shrine to the to the Madonna. I mean, it is a devoutly Catholic place, and that I think that that has probably um, played some role in in, in Poland's uh, current situation. But um, you know, they are more anchored to the to the uh, to Western Europe than, than some of the weaker uh, satellites close to to Russia, and this is part of Russia's plan. They they want their empire back. They they are uh, ticked off that, that NATO was extended to their their borders um, after the, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, and they they want to undo that uh, to the extent possible, and and you know look for more Russian projection of power and more Russian activism. Um, in the Caucasus and and the Baltics, um, Estonia is in their sights. What is their what do you understand their their game plan to be? In the old days, we knew what the Soviets wanted right. because they had an ideology that told us. But fascists are more difficult to figure out. What do you think it is? Um, well, clearly they want to be. Um, they do not like the unipolar world of the of the post Cold War. They want it to be bipolar again. They want to be. Um, they want to be a member of the Western Club, meaning the G8 and some of the other institutions, but they also want to challenge it um, and to and to be a a, uh, a counterweight to uh, the United States and the world. Um, to that end, I mean, they're clearly seeking to exploit the unpopularity of the United States in the Islamic world by, uh, you know, Holding themselves up as as the, the true defender of of, of Islam, uh, they're they're selling weapons to the Syrians like crazy. They are selling weapons uh, to the Iranians. I mean, if we talked earlier about about a possible strike on the Iranian nuclear facilities, if that ever happens, God forbid, um, the Iranians will defend those facilities with 
weapons that were sold to them by the Russians. So thank you, Vladimir Putin. When you say God forbid. Um, yeah. I, 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 I hope it doesn't come to this. I mean, I, I really I don't know where. Would you ever let them have nukes, though, Daniel? No, I, 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 I don't want them to have nuclear weapons. Um, and um, yeah, that's what and I, I am not convinced that that we the, the the best of my knowledge from what I've been told by the experts is that we can at best delay the Iranians, and maybe that's not a bad thing. I mean, um, but you have to accept that that the that the world that's going to come out of that that that, that post attack world is going to be pretty pretty uncertain. All right, so second order. And arms. and and look out for uh, you know two hundred fifty dollars uh, oil. I'll be right back. Final segment coming up with Daniel Silva, author of Moscow Rules, fantastic thriller. And we return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. The Hugh Hewitt Hotline is sponsored by the franchisees of Mathasium Learning Centers. Your child can be great at math. We know how. Parent and franchise information at mathasium.com. Welcome back, America. I hope you've enjoyed as much as I have this extended conversation with Daniel Silva, author of Moscow Rules, his most recent of eight books concerning Gabriel alone. All of them are recommended to you. All of them available at danielsilverbooks.com. Moscow Rules, of course, now in uh, in fine bookstores, airports, from available from Amazon.com. I want to conclude because uh, while you center these books, uh, Daniel Silva, on Israel and alone, there's a lot of looking at America in it. And uh, you have... One line on page 135 of Moscow Rules, which I wrote down, the Americans love to monitor problems but do nothing about them. Uh, generally speaking, is that your view of how we've been carrying on ourselves for the last uh, 10 years in the war on terror? Well, first of all, sometimes my characters will say things <laughs> that I don't necessarily. I mean, you know, Thomas Harris writes about a guy who likes to eat people. But I don't think that anyone has ever asked Thomas Harris if he likes you know, <laughs> kidneys or livers or human brains. And so that what these characters are are Israeli intelligence officers. And they one thing I have learned from spending time with them is that they are acerbic, they are funny as hell, they are um they they have a point of view and and my characters uh, sometimes talk like them, and so everything that that Gabriel Alon says or Ari Shamron says, this is Shamron. Not me, yeah, um, this is Shamron. But what do you think of so, his assessment then? Uh, what, what is my <laughs> what, assessment? Uh, what is your assessment of Shamron's assessment that the Americans love to monitor problems but do nothing <laughs> about them? I I think that that's fair. I mean, we've been talking a lot about the need to diversify our energy supplies in in here in the United States and. Boy, we've been having this conversation since I was a pretty young kid, yep. and and um, we're still driving our gasoline cars and still importing I don't know how many uh, million barrels a day from Saudi Arabia, and and now the Russians have entered the oil market and and they have studied the Saudi model, believe me, yeah, um, and they know that they can get away with. Last it. question though, you you, you obviously you're, you know about this stuff, you think about it, you're still living in Washington D.C., which is a big target on it, so you must have some degree of confidence in our and our allies' abilities to hold off the world. <laughs> I I I personally. Um, question sometimes my why I live in Washington DC and I do talk to people and, and say, you know, is it safe to live here? Because everything that we have learned from Al Qaeda tells us that they come back to the targets that they missed. And clearly the targets that they missed on nine eleven were targets in Washington. And so um, if they live up to their past behavior they will try to come back to either the Capitol or the White House in my opinion. Um, but we we do have a 
we have been working this problem very hard, obviously, for a number of years, um, and I think that we're we're pretty safe right now. But uh, I hope it stays away. Daniel Silva, a real pleasure. Thanks for spending the time with us. Good luck on your your marathon book tour. Moscow rules available out there, America. You'll love it. Talk to you when I get back on the next Hugh Hewitt show. Good morning, Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. One of the uh, one of the reasons it was easy for me to travel back and forth to Kosovo last week to uh, to meet with the Army National Guard there is because I had along with me the uncorrected proof for Daniel Silva's brand new novel, The Defector, which appears in bookstores tomorrow. It's at Amazon.com right now. You can order it. And so the time flew as I made my way in and out of Pristina. Welcome back, Daniel Silva, and congratulations on well, you did it again. Well, thank you so much for having me back. It's such a great pleasure to hear your voice again. Now, now, how have you noticed a spike in the interest in these the, the Gabriel Alone novels? Because I've gotten so many emails from people who were happy. We replayed our, our original interview two weeks ago and told people that they were you were coming if, back. If there's a spike in the interest of the Gabriel Alone series, it, it is uh, it, it is because of you. <laughs> I when I went on book tour last year. Uh, it is it was if, as if you know 800 million people had heard that program. Um, I'm sure you have the statistics that bear this out, but you have a tremendous audience and listenership, and they are all passionately devoted to you. I, I am I am living proof of that. Well, they are also passionately devoted to good thrillers, and this well, is another you one. You know that the Moscow Rules, the book that we're, you, you referred to, was my first number one uh, New York Times number one bestseller. Um, and I must say, I really, I'm not all kidding aside, I think it had to do, uh, that you had a tremendous role in, in, in helping bring that about. Well, then so we thank the audience jointly. How about the defector? Is it debuting up high on the New York Times list? Well, we can only hope because we are speaking on, uh, the eve of the defector's release. It actually comes out at midnight, uh, tonight, or it's, it's released on, on Tuesday. The 21st, so it's not um, for sale. Although I have I have heard uh, that people who ordered it online through Amazon and and BarnesandNoble.com and other online booksellers actually started receiving their books early. Well, I want so to assure everyone: the on sale date is tomorrow. Go in, if you're heading out on the road and you're traveling somewhere. Take this book; it, it will fly by. I was riveted, and I, and I do believe people should get Moscow Rules first, even if they don't want to start at the beginning of the Alone series. They should read them together because they are of a pair. And that's my first question for you. When you put down the pen, Moscow Rules was so fabulously successful, I didn't expect some of the characters in it to return, even though I expected Gabriel Alone to be back sometime if you took up the pen again. Did you anticipate that would be a, a, a two-part series in essence, uh, Daniel Silva? I did not. Um, you know, when I, I, I walk around with a list of, of books that I want to get to, and my first instinct after finishing the book was I'll set it aside, I'll do something else. And I found that the characters and the scenario that I had created um, would not leave me alone. You know, I use this quote from Machiavelli uh, as the epigraph for the book that if injury is done uh, to a man, make sure that it is so severe that his vengeance need not be feared. And just to bring readers up to date as to what happened in Moscow rules, Gabriel Alon brought down one of the world's most dangerous men, um, a man named Ivan Karkov, a Russian oligarch and arms dealer. 
And he made one mistake in, the, in, in that operation, and that was leaving Ivan alive. And uh, you know what happens when you when you harm a bad Russian? Uh, they they come looking for vengeance, and that's certainly the case with Ivan Karkov. Now, the backdrop, Daniel Silva, to my reading this was the very sad news that a Chechnyan human rights activist has been, in essence, murdered. And and it must have it must be odd for you to have a novel of Russia and Israel and America and Great Britain. Uh, that that features ruthlessness is the, the the R in common with all things Russia. At the same time, this major story breaks last. You week. are referring to Natalia Esteremova. Um, yes. She bears a uncanny yes. resemblance to a character that that is in Moscow Rules and the defector named Olga Sukova. But Olga is a journalist and a and a Kremlin critic. Um, and, and in case the audience doesn't know, she was um, kidnapped, plucked off a street in Chechnya, and her body was found uh, a couple of hours later, uh, shot in the head and the chest, murdered. And I'm afraid that this is yet another example of what happens um, if someone stands up and dares to criticize this Kremlin. Um, a few months before, one of her colleagues, uh, Stanislav Markolov, was, uh, gave a press conference in the heart of Moscow, stepped into the street, and was shot in the head twice and, and left for dead on, on a busy Moscow street. His killers were not found. There is a, uh, in my opinion, the, the Kremlin has created an atmosphere in Russia um, but in which people feel free to take matters into their own hands and kill whoever they they want. And I'm, I also believe that many of these um, killings are, if not directly ordered by the Kremlin, uh, they are green-lighted by the Kremlin. And it is that very scenario that I deal with at the beginning of the defector. I'm talking with Daniel Silva, whose brand new novel, The Defector, comes out tomorrow, and and I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, uh, Daniel Silva, the central character. People were talking to me about this, and I was people wanted to take the book from me. I couldn't give it to. I said the central character in this. Yes, it's alone, but it's really Putin, even though he's never named. It's always the Russian named. president. No. Never named. But but is that a fair assessment? Because he looms over the entire book. Um. It's it's one way of looking at it. I, I I think that that Putin's Russia and and the atmosphere uh, that Putin has created in Russia um, is is definitely a the the spine and, and theme of these novels. Um, and, and and the novel begins with uh, the disappearance of a defector from from uh, the heart of of, of London, a defector who dared to criticize the Kremlin, and you do not do that now. Um, anyone who dares to criticize the Kremlin might as well paint a target on their back. Um, There's a reference very early on to a Hitler in the making to the unnamed Russian president, and then at the conclusion of the book, uh, in a very touching author's note, you pay homage to the to the number of, of human rights activists and journalists who've been murdered in, in Moscow. But I don't know that the West takes Putin that serious. They might view him as as a strong man, but do you think we really sense him as a threat? Um, no, I don't think that we sense him as a as a, a threat to our own security or the security of the American homeland. What he represents is a is a resurgent Russia, a Russia 
that went through the unimaginable humiliation of losing an empire and then this decade of the 90s where where it was just chaos and one financial collapse after the next and out of the ashes of of that decade and and the Yeltsin era there arose a man who uh wanted to restore Russia's might to restore stability that is the key word stability um and wants very much to restore Russian honor. He's a czar-like figure. That's what I. That's what I think of him. I mean, Hitler in the making is was was a. Uh, I don't. I don't support that view. Um, although I do think it's fair to characterize uh, the the current Russian regime as as fascist. It is a. It is a corporate one-party state. Daniel Silva, how much time do you spend? This one is a very difficult novel in terms of you've got to know what you're writing about, like as in Moscow rules, when you talk about, for example, the brotherhood of the former, the current Russian security officers, and you use the, the particular terms for them, the slang. How much time do you have to put into following all things Russia now in addition to all things Israel? I, While I'm writing a book, I really live in my head 24-7, uh, to use a terrible cliche, the, the material that I'm writing about. So I'm, I'm reading deeply of the subject matter. I'm in tune to what's going on in Russia on a day-to-day basis. Um, I follow events very carefully. I look at Russian websites. And so I just immerse myself in it, rather like an actor in a role. And so I... I um, Do you have training in Russian it. language, though? I do not. I have very, very little, actually. Oh, you fooled me. Uh, that's <laughs> my... and, and, and have you heard from people who've read this that it, that it is less in the artistic world than your previous novels? That's what I sense. Is that there that was that this book is is less artistic? No, no, less in terms of you're not. You're, there's no focus on a particular painter or sculptor or something like that. Well, that actually, um, if you look at very carefully at the painting that Gabriel is working on. Early on in the very novel, early, yeah, uh, he is restoring a a seventeenth century altarpiece for the Vatican. But if you look at the subject matter of uh. that painting, the crucifixion of Saint Peter, uh, and the way that that painting is portrayed, and the way Gabriel views the painting, it gives some very substantial and important clues about what's going to follow in the story. I'll be right back with Daniel Silva. Now i got to go back and reread that paragraph or two during the break. The book is The Defector. It's out tomorrow. More conversation coming up with Daniel Silva when we return to The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back. I'm Eric Hugh Hewitt. Joined by Daniel Silva, phenomenally successful uh, author of uh, the Gabriel Owens series, which we've talked about on the show a few times. His new book, The Defector, in bookstores tomorrow, available to order right now from Amazon.com. As good as they all have been, you're going to love it as much. Uh, backdrop here, Daniel Silva, I was traveling last week. I ended up uh, going into Dublin, went to the National Museum, saw The Taking of the Christ by Caravaggio, irony uh-huh. number one. Irony number two, had to go into... Piccadilly. Not sure it's a Caravaggio, to be honest with you. But oh, go. Not, not a great, but but wonderful. Then I'm in Piccadilly, surrounded by Russians. It's like Russian Central. And one of the things you capture so on the defector is, and I hadn't really put my finger on this, London has become, you know, Moscow West. <laughs> well, as I refer to it in the book, it is the Russian city, sometimes referred to as London. <laughs> <laughs> and there are... 200,000, probably more Russians that live in metropolitan London these days. And amid those 200,000 
uh, or so Russians are probably several hundred intelligence officers and spies and informants. Um, and, you know, MI5 was was completely caught off guard and caught a little flat-footed, and they'll be the first to admit that, um, by the the resurrection of, of the of this Cold War and the amount of intelligence collection and intelligence activity that's going on, on on the soil of the UK right now. I mean, they were quite obviously focused on the threat of Islamic terrorism for years and years. And so when, when Litvinenko uh, was murdered, it told them that they had another problem on on, on the on British soil and that was uh, the uh, the Russian intelligence service. and let's pause on Litvinenko for a second because it's it's a central uh, uh, argument in your book here where you point out when the Brits did not respond to the poisoning by plutonium of this defector they basically invited more not uh, if they don't this resist is, you get is, more this is Gabriel's this is Gabriel's take and right they, they will tell you that they did respond that they they did engage in uh, a small diplomatic expulsion that they did um, bring charges against and tried to try to seek the extradition of Andre Lugovoy, the man that they believe um, carried out the killing. Uh, but look, Britain and Russia have extensive trade and financial ties, and, and Britain, with its economy, I mean, Britain is is probably among the, the hardest hit of the of the Western European countries right now. Gordon Brown is in terrible trouble. The economy is 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 god awful. Uh they're just not in a position to damage very lucrative uh ties between between London and Moscow. Uh the British financial sector is really the engine of the British economy right now and a lot of Russian money flows into the banks of the city, and they needed to make sure that that continued. One of the more interesting aspects of the defector is the portrait of a fellow named Orlov, who's a, an exiled oligarch, of whom there are not a, a few uh, around the globe right now. And you're ambivalent about them, Daniel Silver. Uh, I am extremely ambivalent about them. Uh, he is a, the man portrayed in the novel is one of the original oligarchs, the original robber barons who figured out how to Turn the assets of the of the crumbling Soviet Union in, into major uh, financial empires, um, and Vladimir Putin got rid of those those folks for the most part. Um, if they were not going to be loyal to him, then they they were shown the door. And so um, I have a, a a man named Viktor Orlov. Uh, who lives in 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 uh, London? Who plays a, a major role in the outcome of the story? Uh, and yes, I am. I think that they. I think that their conduct and their behavior had a lot to do with the way uh, th- things would unfold eventually in, in Russia. That now, their greed and their avarice uh, helped bring about the rise of someone like Putin. How important are their figures now on the world stage? They're obviously important to the novel, and it drives, it's a central part of the novel, but in terms of, of the the oil and gas execs who are in exile, how important do they, are they to the societies in which they're now finding refuge? Um, you know, I think that in the case of, of Britain, they are, they, a number of, of very well-to-do Russians reside there, um, and for the most part, the, the British would like them to, in exchange for, 
for residing on British soil to, to mind their manners and mind their P's and Q's and don't cause uh, problems. But look, they, they are important uh, in terms of bringing about investment in the, in the British economy. Um, but there are there is a new class of oligarchs, the loyal oligarchs, and the villain of my story, a man named Ivan Karkov, is one of the loyal oligarchs. Right. People, um, you know, swear allegiance to Putin and the Kremlin, and and Russia is truly crony capitalism. It is a kleptocracy, as, as the Economist pointed out in its cover story last week. And I and I you know Vladimir Putin is rumored to be one of the richest men in in Europe these yeah. days. Um, now, Daniel, he so didn't I, get that way on, on his presidential salary. No, and not honestly. Now, it, one of the contradictions in the book, it's not a contradiction, I'm just putting out there, that, that I was mulling on is there's a closed-circuit television system in London, which is extensive, and at one point in The Defector you write that it just hasn't delivered on the promise that it made the British people, because what a surprise, people wear masks. On the other hand, one of the central turns in the plot comes from Gabriel watching that footage repeatedly again and again and again and again. So so what's the real Silva take, that it's good to have, but it's not being mined, or that you know, it's a my, bad idea? I, my, I am... Um... I have a bit of a libertarian streak about me, uh, and you know, London. London has problems. London has security problems, and I don't think that the, that the Home Office and the Metropolitan Police are going to roll back CCTV anytime soon. But for those in the audience who've not traveled to London or aren't aware of it, basically every square inch of central London is under constant. Uh, closed circuit monitoring. That an average Londoner, there's a statistic that uh, I, I, I escapes my memory, but he gets captured, he or she gets captured thousands of times in, in the average day. And so, you know, I think that there are some real privacy issues. Um, it's a bit Orwellian for, for my take. Um, and in terms of its, of its ability to combat and prevent acts of crime, it is um, not working all that well. As, as you know, someone who, who travels there a fair amount, um, Britain is becoming a more uh, dangerous place, and there is actually an epidemic of, of knife crimes and violence and street robberies. Yeah, but I must say it was a fascinating scene when he obsessively replaced uh, sort of a, a working portrait of how you use it. Well, he has certain visual gifts because of, of uh, his talents as a restorer and an artist. And so he saw some things in the CCTV that escaped the notice, even of Emma. But I will say you on Saturday night, I was counting them as I went to the theater. And you're right. They're everywhere. I'd never noticed them in that number until Saturday. Daniel Silva is my guest. His brand new book is The Defector. It's the latest in the Gabriel Alon series. It's another winner extraordinarily good. I'll be right back to continue the conversation when we return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, back from vacation. Thank you for listening. One of my companions on vacation was the brand new novel by Daniel Silva, The Defector, out in bookstores tomorrow. You can order it from Amazon.com. You're going to love it. 
And uh, you're going to end up being mad at uh, Daniel Silva. You'll be like my friend Michelle, who's an AP arts history teacher, who's now addicted to your work, Daniel, and is just, uh, I wonder, do you have like a, a secret society of AP art history teachers who just celebrate your books? I don't know about that, but I, I, I hear from them. Um, and one of the things that I, I'm very careful about, and I have very good pair of eyes looking over my shoulder named David Bull is that I try to get the restoration uh, as real as possible um, and, the, and the art history because it, it, it's one of my passions. I'm, a, I'm a, a, an amateur art historian at best, um, but I do. It's wonderful that Gabriel has, he has followers among many different walks of life, but be they people who like spy stories, people who like uh, are interested in art and art history. So that's one of the great appeals of the character. One of my favorite characters in this novel makes a return appearance. He's a Zurich banker, and I don't want to give too much away here. Hair <laughs> Heller. Yeah, and so what do, Zurich, Heller. what do Zurich bankers think about your novel? I don't know, but Hair Heller uh, is one of my favorites. He's a small character who makes who pops up in a couple of different books. He he had a real star turn in a, a book called The Death in Vienna, which is one of my favorites. Yes. yes. And he comes back uh, in this novel and is basically coerced yes. by... Long-suffering Hare Heller. Helping, um, uh, helping catch someone who needs to be caught and interrogated. How did you, as a, as a matter of craft, do you put these people on a shelf? Do they exist in your memory so that they're there? And and then as you're writing, you just say, "Ah, time for Herr Heller to appear," or or is it outlined from the beginning? It is not quite outlined from the beginning. Uh, although the book I'm working on now, I, I say that, and this one, the, the one I'm working on now, is probably pretty well outlined, beginning to end, and at least a mental outline. But what happens with a long-running series is that it does become something of a parallel universe where this group of characters exists. And, and all I have to do is sort of act like a stenographer and, and, and write down their adventures. And that's when the, that's when the magic happens. Right. You know, when, I, when I do my job correctly... If I set up the story and get it halfway done, I really just sort of have to stand back and, and let Gabriel finish it for me. And, and that's just the magic of the series. You also get to bring in, however, a lot of little commentaries along the way. Two of them in this book in particular. There's a little riff on Berlusconi. There's a little riff on the Italian birth rate. There's a little riff on uh, the mullahs in Tehran. Yeah. Uh, how, how much do you have to pace yourself on this? And how much of those reflect Daniel Silva? And how much of those simply reflect the reality? Reality that you imagine Gabriel alone living. I try to reflect what Gabriel and Ari and Uzi think. You know, uh, Thomas Harris writes a series or has written a certain number of books about a, a character who likes to eat people. But no one, <laughs> I think, ever asked Thomas Harris whether he likes to eat people. And my point is that Every word or every thought that, that runs through Gabriel's head or Ari's head or Uzi's head, or, or, I don't necessarily share those, those opinions. But I, I have to make them feel credible. I have to make them uh, operate by a belief system that it, and, a, and, a, and a personal experience that is credible. 
and these are tough, fatalistic uh, people who who live and work in a very dangerous part of the world, and they walk very dangerous neighborhoods, and and that's the way they are. Uh, page one eighteen, at least in my page pros. Perhaps it's escaped your notice, but the mullahs in Tehran are about to complete their nuclear weapon. Our new prime minister and I share a similar philosophy. We don't believe in sitting around while others plot our destruction. Yes. And young Daniel said, we're living on the knife's edge here. I'm not sure how many Americans are, are really I would, watching I would, this. Uh, I, I think that those, that those words are absolutely 100% accurate about what's probably going on right now. Um, I, I just do not expect this Israeli government... Uh, to sit around and let this happen. Do they think that they can end the program by hitting it? No. Do they think that they might be able to delay it some? Yes. I thought, Are they going I to be willing to take that chance? I suspect they will. I, I thought you captured the situation which must be happening in uh, Jerusalem exactly right. Daniel Silva is my guest. His brand new book, The Defector, on sale tomorrow. It's at Amazon.com. You can order it tonight. Be sure you do. I'll be right back. More Daniel Silva when we return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Joined this hour by Daniel Silva. Uh, very successful and deservedly so author of the Gabriel Alone novel series. His new book, The Defector, out in bookstores tomorrow, available at Amazon.com. Daniel Silva, have you published a list online somewhere of where your appearances will be so people can check it, come and, and get a chance to meet you and get an autographed copy of the book? I have. It's at, it's at DanielSilvaBooks.com, which is my uh, official website. And there, all the tour dates and the times and the places are all there. DanielSilvaBooks.com. Now, uh, I just a curious question. Uh, did any of the other review copy recipients tell you that there is a, a couple of missing pages from the very famous uh, audio recording of what transpired next? This is the arena debrief. Anyone tell you that? No. Yeah, it's, it might it, it might be your. Oh, it's it, it, it's sorry I, to say. Oh, it, it's it's one of those great bait things that have ever been done because you, it's set up as being one of the great uh, interviews of all time, and then I get about three lines of arena, and then it's I'm gone. So, so sorry. No, no, not not to worry. I just thought I was wondering if if anyone else had if it was intentional on the part of your publisher no, to bait the hook. We we, um, we rushed those arcs into print um, as soon as my. Manuscript is is presentable, and uh, so they, they it's a it's a rush job. Oh, how interesting! Things, um, yeah, that that version of the of the book is, I make I make substantial improvements after that. Oh, doggone it! I have to read it again. Okay, let's get to the serious stuff. And there are two pressing issues on my outline. I want to make sure I cover before we run out of time. The first is the interrogation issue, into which you weighed. Uh, in a way that would make Jack Bauer proud. And then the Stalin issue, which is even more important than the former. Uh, how long did it take you to decide, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk into the middle of the inter interrogation debate? Um, you know, I guess I walked into it a little more. There, there's very little morality in terms of the way Gabriel Alon conducts these interrogations in right. this novel. I think this book was inspired in many respects, by a dear friend of mine named Henry Winkler, the Fonz. And he's a big fan of this series. Oh. And he said once, after reading Moscow Rules, he said to me, you know, Gabriel, I love Gabriel Lon, but sometimes I think he's a little too cool, a little too calculating and detached. He said, just one time, I want you to do something to make him really, really mad. I want you to 
because I want to see what would happen if Gabriel got really mad. And this is what inspired the plot of this book to a large extent. And so there are, there are no niceties in the way this man is conducting these interrogations because he needs information very, very quickly without giving anything away. Right. We don't want, we don't. I did, I did deal with it more, um, in a book I wrote a couple of years ago called The Secret Servant. And I actually do have some some real qualms um, about the use of enhanced interrogation um, and rendition. And, and I, I, as you probably can guess in our previous conversations, I'm someone who takes the threat of, of terrorism extremely seriously. Yep. But I, I actually know a, a dear friend who carried out a, an interrogation of a, a high-value target, and I've seen the effects that it's had on him. Um, and we did do some things um, under pressure and not knowing exactly what was coming next. And it's hard to remember what those days were like. Well, it's interesting. There's a passage in The Defector uh, featuring Adrian Carter, who's yep. uh, a recurring, where, where you point out that now these these public servants these and they're not paid well and they're not glamour jobs especially they're in director not. of operations are living in fear of prosecution for doing things that no one would have said boo about 5 years ago 7 years ago that's right um and i i do not want to see anyone prosecuted for what we did and that goes from the from the the lawyers to political figures. If, if some if some rogue CIA officer or contractor went outside the boundaries and, and committed some heinous act or war crime, then then perhaps this person should be prosecuted. But there's a real air in Washington where where one side wants to get some scalps from the other side, and I'm just not sure it's going to. Uh, help the country and keep us any safer and I hope that we can put this sort of season of retribution behind us as quickly as possible. I think that that these decisions as difficult as they were were made in good faith and and with the best interest of the country at at heart. It's one not knowing what was coming down the pike next. It's something we have to keep in mind. I hope a lot of critics of those days read this book for that message, among others. But let's talk quickly about Stalin before we go to break. Yeah. Robert Service, I haven't seen him uh, in, mentioned glowingly for a long, long time. Are you on a mission to make sure that the monster Stalin isn't forgotten for the extent of his monstrosity? He needs to be remembered because the, the, the Russians are doing their best to to sanitize and airbrush the most repulsive aspects of their history. They are quite literally rewriting their history books as we speak. And one of the the things that they're trying to get across is that, that the United States is the source of all evil in the world, and that Stalin really wasn't such a bad guy, and he, and he took the steps that he took um, because he had to. And... For the record, Stalin was a bad guy. He killed millions and millions of his own people. He, I think it's fair to say that he brought about the Second World War with the non-aggression pact with, with Hitler. With, with no, without that non-aggression pact, there could have been no invasion of Poland, no Holocaust. Uh, this man committed terrible, terrible crimes, and yet he is 
among the most popular uh, historical figures in Russia today. And I think that until Russia faces up to its history, that there is a chance that certain aspects of it are going to be repeated. And I think that in very small ways, it is now. And that is one of the uh, the more moving passages in this book. When you get your taste, your whiff of Stalin through the years, uh, reader, you're going to love it. I'll be right back. A couple of closing comments with Daniel Silva. His brand new book, The Defector, is in bookstores tomorrow. It's available at Amazon.com, DanielSilvaBooks.com. If you want to find out where you can meet uh, Daniel Silva, get a copy of The Defector Signed. We'll be right back, America. Steve Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, 55 minutes after the hour, concluding my conversation with Daniel Silva. His brand-new book in the Gabriel Loan series, The Defector, is available tomorrow in bookstores at Amazon.com. Tonight you can order it. I want to alert my New York listeners on WNYM that uh, Daniel Silva will be doing two book signings tomorrow at various places in the city. Folks in Phoenix, it's uh, Wednesday, Houston this Sunday. A week from today in Denver, a week from next uh, tomorrow, Dallas, and then Atlanta, Detroit, Chicago, Minneapolis, St. Paul, San Diego, Tampa Bay audiences. you got to go to DanielSilvaBooks.com to find the time and the dates and the places, but especially you New York listeners, uh, it's tomorrow. So don't blame me if you don't check Daniel Silva Books tonight. Uh, Daniel, I'm glad to hear that 1789 is still going strong. It is uh, It is my wife and our, it's my favorite restaurant in Washington, D.C., so I'm uh, glad it's still uh, cooking. Uh, it's my wife's and my favorite restaurant as well. Uh, we don't get there as often as we want to. What uh, happens when you do this there. to someone, though? Do, do they get overwhelmed with Daniel Silva readers coming in and, and booking reservation? <laughs> There's a couple of spots around the world where it, it, where people will go in, in Rome, for example, and they'll try to explain that the waiters are, are in Venice as well, that they, they read about this in a, in a, in one of my books, and the rate, waiters are sort of shrug, you know, who is this, who's this crazy person, Daniel Sullivan, why are they coming here? Well, I think 1789 is going to be very happy with you. Let's conclude by asking, what's the next book about? Well, I think it's going to probably have something to do with that question that you asked me a few minutes earlier about the quote on page 118. Oh, I hope so. Oh, that's and great I've been, news. And I've been, wanting to deal with with Iran and the nuclear threat in a way that I want to deal with it in, in a story in a format and and I've I finally settled on it and um I think that the next book will, will almost certainly deal with with that as a backdrop. Now tricky question though you're you're then writing against I mean really rapidly changing events in the world doesn't that give you big angst? No because I will um I'll be able. The way I'll tell the story will be will be completely different, and um, it will it will not look like the typical fare of of you know the the planes in the air headed towards the, the Iranian nuclear facilities and and the mullahs talking about how they're going to respond. I'm going to do it in my way. Uh, well, con- uh, good luck on that. When's that going to come out? A year from now. Yeah, it's better come out on the third Tuesday of July in 2010, or I'm in big trouble. In <laughs> big trouble. Hey, congratulations. Good luck on this. is a pretty back-breaking book tour, so uh, stay energized. I'm going to single-handedly keep the uh, the airline and hotel business afloat. I, I, I do not envy you this at all, but I do envy you uh, just the ability to write this way. Daniel Silva, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. The brand-new book is The Defector. It's available in bookstores tomorrow. You will enjoy it as you've enjoyed the other Elan books. Don't go anywhere, America. I'm going to be back tomorrow. 
Morning, glory, and evening, grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, as you just heard me talking about with David Drucker and with uh, Lonnie Chen. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled today that the Obama administration can continue to subsidize health insurance policies at 6-3 vote in King versus Borwell. I'll return to that subject in hour number three, but there are also subjects from abroad that concern us greatly, and I brought in an expert to talk about it. Joined now by my friend and prolific best-selling author, Daniel Silva. His brand-new book, The English Spy, will be available in five days, so you can pre-order it today. It's over at Amazon.com. Hello, Daniel. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. How are you doing, Hugh? I'm terrific. I am. I got to begin by telling you a story. I'm broadcasting today from Colorado Christian University, the president of whom is former United States Senator Bill Armstrong. Mm. And I was at dinner with him two nights ago, and he asked me who I'm going to be talking to. And I said, well, I think we'll get Daniel Silva on to talk about the English spy. And he lit up and he said, Ellen, his wife, and I heard him on your show, and we have bought and read every single one of his books. Is his new one out? And I said, no, it's actually not out until June 30th, right? Uh, June 30th, yes. Yeah, yeah, but you can pre-order it, uh, Senator Armstrong. I'm not going to give you my reading copy, which they sent ahead. <laughs> but but it's uh, it's amazing to me. You know, he's pretty conservative. Uh, he's a great leader of a great university, but he was in the Senate for 12 years, and he follows international affairs very closely, and he thinks you are sort of a Rosetta Stone to what's going on in the world. Oh, boy, that's a, that's a little scary, um, because I'm a guy that makes up stories. Um, that said, I mean, I am inspired by what's going on around me, and I think that, you know, the, I think a thriller writer has to have the ability to sort of look around the corner a little bit. Um, and this book, without giving too much away the plot, for example, deals... Um, with Russia. And, you know, I wrote my first book about Russia. I'm probably going to get the date wrong, but I think it was 2006 or 7, um, Moscow Rules. And my portrait of, of modern Russia and, and Putin, he wasn't by, named by name, but Putin was pretty unflattering and harsh. Um, and there were some people who thought maybe I was a little too tough on Russia. Um, and, you know, none of us like people who say, I told you so, but I told you so. I was right about Russia. Um, and um, I think I was right about the Arab Spring, too, in my depiction of how that was going to turn out. There's so much that is right in the English spy. Uh, it's breaking news, actually. And I, and I look forward to talking to you specifically about this. But I, I have a, a the OPM hack and Arthur Grimes come to mind. And I'm going to get to that. But first, this is a very sobering book. There is no prolonged art backstory. I think it's the first time ever. Uh, and, in fact, you pick up barely weeks after the last one, which is a little bit different from what you've done in the back. And there's Putin and Iran and the perils of counterespionage and technology. Did you think it was more urgent than the other ones you've been working on? Well, I I think I've done – If I know that The Secret Servant, for example, a book I wrote um, – I guess at about 2005, um, had no art um, component to the plot itself. Um, and um, the defector, I think, had no real art component. I mean, we saw Gabriel doing some, some work on a painting, I think. But uh, So there's been a couple of books that haven't actually, where, where art or the art world have not flowed through it. Um, and in in this case it was it was just that the plot didn't didn't call for it um and in terms of of yes it does pick up with within days of where the previous story ended 
because I've got a <laughs> I've got a ticking clock in Gabriel's personal life in this novel, and that is I've got to squeeze a story in um, while his while his wife is is very pregnant, and he's got to be home in time for the birth, <laughs> and so I had some I had some time pressure to deal with, but that's very astute on your part. May I may I offer a, a compliment to the host that you noticed that because it's not something I've really ever done before. There, there's also, though, a character in here which takes me to the headlines. There are two headlines today that I want to talk specifically about. The president received a letter from five of his former advisors urging him not to do the Iran deal. Yes, so we're going to talk about Iran. Yes, and there is a character named Arthur Grimes who represents, to me, the full import of the consequences of the Office of Personnel Management hack that I've been talking about for two yes, days. Yes, he does. And I think you write, personnel sits atop everything Grimes investigates allegations of security breaches. So if you get inside the personnel office of a government, you've got everything. And that's what happened to us with the OPM Act. Well, I mean, they, um, I mean, if you could, if you could turn someone, for example, inside a, a, the personnel division of an intelligence service, he, he would be an incredibly valuable asset. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons why Ames was so valuable, you'll remember, is that he worked in counter-espionage. So he's not in personnel, but he's in a way personnel. He's, he knows, um, you know, how to, how to protect other people inside the service who might be working, uh, for the Russians. And so it's a very, very critical place to try to get inside an intelligence service. And here, we just left the door open to our computer system and allowed the Chinese to go in and, you know, get not only names, but all of the, the um, security clearance um, paperwork that gets filled out. This is a massive hundred page undertaking. And um, I live in Florida, but I also maintain a residence in Washington, D.C., and some of the people in Georgetown who are my neighbors and friends work for the government. And they have to go through uh, these security clearances now and again. And let me tell you something. The government comes knocking on your door and wants to talk to you about your neighbor. Yep. I, now, I, that I... all gets put into a report and put into um, – a personnel file that's stored and all your peccadillos and shortcomings and how you did on this lie detector test and whether you ever had occasion to drink too much. It's very valuable information in the hands of the Chinese. Um, and so it's troubling that we were not guarding that information more carefully, but I'm also deeply troubled by the fact that, that we have not taken any sort of retaliatory strike on them. And now maybe we have, and we haven't been told about it. I tend to doubt that. Uh, One of the reasons I like thrillers so much, and especially Daniel Silva's thrillers in The English Spy, is they explain to the average Joe why what might not seem important to them is actually very important. And this, this information flow, you have a couple of characters who do nothing but mine information. They have to connect very small pieces of information. Here we've backed up, and I was the general counsel and deputy director of OPM. I know like you do what's mm. in those files. The Chinese are going to have just the greatest thing in the world to play with for the next 25 years they'll be using this. Yeah, and but it's it's not only that they, they, they got the government employees who need security clearances, um, but, you know, some of these government employees then move on to um, 
defense contractors that are involved in sensitive work, but it appears that they also got the the people who contributed to the background checks as well, um, and so they're 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 just able to sweep up in a giant net, you know, a lot of information, and sit and they can target individuals, but they can also sit and put together a mosaic. Um, and again, I, I just we have been the the target of relentless unfettered, unchecked Chinese cyber aggression for a very long time. And we sit and take it. And I don't, I don't understand that. Yeah, in fact, um, in one place in the English uh, Spy, you write about the cyber warriors of Russia. And on page 101, their cyber warriors are blasting away at our financial institutions with everything they've got in their nasty little toolbox. They're also targeting our government systems and the uh, outer networks of our biggest defense contractors. So it's not just the Chinese. We just know the Chinese did this OPM hack. It, it, the Russians are doing it, and I assume the Iranians are doing it as well. Um, the Russians are probably at the top of the heap in terms of cyber activity, and the, uh, the Iranians are um, sophisticated and getting more sophisticated by the day. Um, and but the the Russians are really really aggressive um, in, in their in their cyber espionage. Uh, um, I think that most analysts would would consider them, even though the Chinese we get this example of what they did this week, that the Russians are actually uh, probably top of the heap. Now I, and I, I, very very good at what they what at, at what they do. For the benefit of everyone who is listening on a new affiliate, whether in New Hampshire or South Carolina or anywhere else in the United States, because I keep adding them, Daniel. Uh, Daniel Silva's been doing this for a lot of years, beginning with The Kill Artist, about one book a year, and he has lots of friends in the business. And, in fact, Mike Morell, I think, is one of them. Mike was on the show with me, and I'll be talking about a little bit that later. Pretty much everyone from American intelligence and Israeli intelligence, at least, and I suppose United Kingdom intelligence, reads Daniel Silva, and they, they had their opinions, and I think they talked to you quite a lot, but especially on the Iranian deal, which is where I want to go right now. Okay. One of your, I'll be right back. Don't go anywhere, America. That music tells me. I will be uh, taking a break, and I'll be back to talk about Iran with Daniel Silva. The president received a letter today from five of his former advisors saying, stop, stop, stop. I'll tell you about it when I come back with Daniel Silva. The English Spy is linked, as well as all those other books at HughHewitt.com. 21 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt. More on the uh, King versus Burwell decision, other headline breaking news coming up afterwards. United States Supreme Court ruling 6-3 to keep the Obamacare subsidies in place. Kennedy joining Robertson, defending Obamacare with the liberals. More on that next hour. But returning now to my conversation with Daniel Silva. He's the author of The English Spy, and we'll continue to cover the court cases next hour with Mark Stein and others. But I want to talk about the letter the president got today. This is probably even more important than everything else the court does, because if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, it is changes everything. The president received a letter today, according to The New York Times, that was signed by David Petraeus and by four of his other senior advisors, and uh, Dennis Ross among them. Gary Sagmore, who was Mr. Obama's former chief advisor on nuclear policy. James Cartwright, a former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, an architect of Mr. Obama's effort to build up the military forces in the region. And Robert Einhorn, a longtime State Department proliferation expert who helped devise and enforce the sanctions against Iran. And they say, look, the agreement will not prevent Iran from having nuclear weapons capability. Don't do it. So, Daniel Silva, you have got a lot about Iran in here. And, we, again, I never give away 
details of a, of a book like The English Spy. But VIVAC, if I'm saying that correctly, explain to people what VIVAC is so we can then move on to what the Iranian deal represents. VIVAC is the one of the names that we use to refer to the Iranian intelligence service, the Ministry of of intelligence, or there's there's numerous names. Vivac is the, is the name that I choose to call their 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 foreign intelligence service. And the other one that people might not recognize is SVR, uh, and that is the new KGB, right? Well, the the, the SVR is the um, it is in effect the old first chief directorate of the KGB, which was the foreign intelligence operation. Remember that the KGB was this. In, was this monstrous sort of state within a state that oversaw um, internal security as well as was the, the Soviet Union's external um, espionage service. So that got split apart. Um, and so you have the FSB, which handles um, internal Russia, and uh, the SVR, which handles um, uh, foreign intelligence. And the SVR is actually based in Moscow Center, in Yasanevo on the old on the old campus of, of the KGB's first chief directorate. And so it's 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 really amazing that both of these are tied together, but it, one of the parts of the English spy takes place at the location of the ongoing negotiations which are supposed to deadline on the day your book comes out, right? Exactly. There's a June thirtieth deadline. So you've got the Iranian negotiations running in the English spy. What do you think of this letter the president received? What do you think of the Iranian negotiations in the English spy and just generally of this uh, drama within a drama that's been playing out? I uh, found today's news fascinating um, in that you have five very serious players saying, in effect, in effect, that the deal that, 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 that as written or as we think it's written, the deal that's on the table right now, the president should probably walk away from because he's already exceeded, you know, he's, he's crossed lines that he said he would never cross. Um, and, you know, we can get bogged down on the, on the, on the details of the, of the agreement, but regardless of what the administration says, it does not prevent Iran from, from becoming a nuclear power. Um, and I, I'll, I'll be hesitant to use the words that, that the, that Netanyahu used that it paves the way to a bomb, but it, it puts them, it leaves them right on the doorstep of a, of a bomb. It doesn't take away their enrichment capability. Um, we're, they're going to be very hesitant to, to tell us what they did in the past. I don't know how we're going to get um, this inspection regime to work. I, 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 as you, you know, it's probably not going to come as a surprise to you, but I, I don't support this agreement, um, and I don't think we should enter into it. But today's development was was interesting because these are serious, sober people with no political axe to grind. People who've worked for the president in the past, saying that this thing is deeply flawed. Now, the the consequence of this, it's coming out on a day when Obamacare is upheld. The Supreme Court has upheld the subsidies of the Affordable Care Act. And that's going to be on everyone's lead tonight. Obamacare survives again. Chief Justice Roberts sides with Kennedy and the liberals to uphold it. And it will get lost. And the negotiations will go forward. Do you think that the president is committed, regardless of what people tell him, to a deal? Um, yeah, I do, actually. And I think that they're going to, I mean, first of all, I'm not sure we're going to get a deal uh, by the 30th. All the indicators are saying that that's probably not the case, but it's possible we may get some sort of 
yet another little deal, and when we keep talking, I, 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 you know, can't hazard a guess on how this is going to turn out. But he's made it pretty clear that that you know he's committed a, a great deal of his personal prestige uh, to this uh, venture, and, and I don't think he's going to turn back from it now. Now, okay, now against him is arrayed a bunch of people, including. Michael Oren, former ambassador of Israel to the United States, now a member of the Knesset. He has a new book coming out called Ally, and I'll be talking to him next week. They've really begun to throw hammers at him uh, and at Benjamin Netanyahu, and, I, and there are no Americans in the English spy, Do you? which is interesting to me. Again, there's always been Americans in the past, and do you think the relationship is fraying? Is that a telegraph? Uh, and no, and, and it just didn't, I didn't require it. Um, I think that, obviously, the political... At the political level, the relationship is completely disastrous. And and as Ambassador Oren's book is going to demonstrate and, and show us, it, it it was really bad right from the beginning, worse than we even imagined. Um, and very personal, very ugly. Um, and you know, he's he was in the room, saw everything took copious notes, um, and I think that um, he, has, he has no reason to exaggerate or, or to mislead anyone about about what happened during that time. Um, and But at, at a technical level, at, at, at DOD to IDF and Mossad to CIA, I'm told that, that the relationship is, is as strong as ever, um, and, and that's a good sign. Um, because Israel needs those partnerships. You know, I was just in Israel for, on a two-week uh, research trip and talked to lots of people. And the things that I heard over and over and over again is, you know, just in the modern world, cannot operate alone. You have to have partners. You must have partners. Um, and that's why this has been such a, a serious episode for Israel. Um, and I did find it interesting, though, that the White House asked, the Prime Minister of Israel to distance himself from a book that was written by a former ambassador. It just means that that it, you know that that the charges and that, that uh, Ambassador Oren leveled in the novel, excuse me, in the book, were hit pretty close to home. Something about it bothered them. Oh, very much. And I'll talk with him in studio next week when I'm back in California. Looking forward to it. But it was it was an accident that in the English spy there are no Americans. Not your reflection of a declining relationship between the office, the MI6, and uh, the United States. No, no, not it was not an accident. They just there was there was no need for an an American presence in this book. But one thing that I got right, as it turned out, is is that. Um, that we had had cut the Israelis out completely. We weren't briefing them on what was going on at the negotiating table, and the Israelis had to figure out other means uh, to how, how <laughs> other what was means. going on in that room. I'll be right back with Daniel Silva. Obamacare stands. Uh, the federal subsidies are upheld, and the English spy is on shelves. Stay tuned. <laughs> It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening today. 34 minutes after the hour, the big stories of the day on the domestic front of the Supreme Court cases. Obamacare has upheld the federal subsidies survive. A lot of uh, ringing and gnashing of teeth in the last hour and the next hour, of course. 
Uh, but the biggest story of the week, the month, and the year remains, I believe, the opium hack that China has made off with our goods. And the Iranian deal, which is looming at the end of next week on June 30th, is the deadline. The Iranians yesterday said they're not going to give us anything. The perfect person to talk about that happens to be uh, one of America's preeminent novelists, uh, Daniel Silva, whose brand-new book, The English Spy, hits bookstores next week on the same day that the Iranian deal is supposed to be released. The Iranian deal will be the subject of a letter the president received today that no one's going to know about because of the Supreme Court decision. Uh, It's going to just be overwhelmed by these. It's just poor timing. It gets stepped on by the Supreme Court decision. But, Daniel Silva, there are a couple of other things I want to talk to you about. There are two quotes at the beginning of the English spy, uh, one by Graham Greene, and it, and it talks about the, uh, the necessity of secrecy. When a man robs out a pencil mark, he should be careful to see that the line is quite obliterated, for if a secret is to be kept, no precautions are too great. That goes to OPM. And then Mary Queen of Scott, no more tears, I will think upon revenge, which, which goes to your treatment of the IRA. And I, I've been to Belfast only once. I drove around looking for where James Hewitt left in 1868, and I found it in St. Field. But there's a lot of Ulster in here, and you've never really dealt with Ulster before. And what I was most interested in, and that little backstory, in 1983, I worked on a case when I was a clerk on the D.C. Circuit called Hanok Teleran. It began in 1978 when 11 PLO terrorists landed on the Haifa Highway. They seized two buses. Two cars, they murdered 22 adults and 12 children. Exactly. They wounded 73 adults and 14, and they brought their case to the United States. And I was the clerk on the case, and our judges ruled we can't touch this because it involves the terror network, and we can't go there because a political question. We're going to get into stuff we don't have the clearances for. Nobody knows how these terrorist groups operate, and you lay it open in the English spy. One of the things that, that plays a big role in this book, one of the events, was the bombing Oma in 1998, and we all remember that terrible day. Worst single act of violence in the war, 28 or 29 people killed. Uh, in Northern Ireland, for people who don't know where Oma is, it's a huge, terrible day in British-Irish history. It had the effect of being so horrific that it really galvanized support for the Good Friday Agreement, and it had the real IRA, which carried it out, was really decimated after that. But... Curiously, sadly, no one has ever been brought to justice for the Omaha bombing. And that is something that um, I deal with in this novel. And it probably won't surprise you to learn that Gabriel Lahn dispenses justice in the case of the Omaha bombing. But what I drew from it, because what it goes back to my 1983 experience, is Claire Sterling originally posited that the Russians and the Arab terrorists and the IRA hardcore and the uh, the ETA in Spain and a number of others in the East German days, there were a all bunch linked. of, they all linked up and they all helped each other. And it reminded me, Mike Morrell was on the show a couple of weeks ago. He said the most dangerous man in the world is in Yemen and he's a bomb maker. He's, a bomb maker. he's teaching other people how to make bombs, which is exactly what the English spy is about. It is. And I have no sympathy whatsoever for the Irish Republican Army. I have a certain sympathy for the for the civil rights aspect of it in Northern Ireland in, in, in the end of the 60s, but but you know maiming innocent people, killing maiming innocent people. I have, so let's just let me just lay down that marker. Um, these guys at the end of the war um, suddenly had uh, a lot of time on their hands, and they went out into the world. So many of them and spread this technology and their expertise around. And and the IRA were incredibly 
good at what they did. I mean, you remember the bombing campaigns in, in London. Sure. Those bombs, those massive bombs that wiped out Canary Wharf and Bishopsgate, these things were put together in barns in South Omaha and smuggled across the Irish Sea and assembled in Britain and and taken to their targets, you know, in, 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 at a time when the place was totally wired with spies and intelligence. I mean, these guys were amazing. And they also built incredibly sophisticated devices. And in 2006, uh, some of them helped the Iranians build anti-tank weapons and roadside bombs that found their way into to Hezbollah um, and into southern Iraq, where they were used against British, British forces down there. So it was a very sad irony that British servicemen in 2005, 6, 7, serving in southern Iraq, faced the very same types of weapons that were used against British servicemen in South Armagh in the, during the worst days of the war. Um, so, but, but bomb makers, um, Bob, in, they, guys who really know the technology are incredibly important to terrorist networks. We'll be right back to talk more about that. The new book, The English Spy, explains it all for you as I get. The headlines are in this book. It's it's uncanny, actually. It's chilling. I'll be right back. More Daniel Silva straight ahead here on The Hugh Hewitt Show. After the hour, America on a day when Obamacare survives. We talked about that last hour. We'll talk about it again next hour. And uh, and basically, laws from the 60s, the Fair Housing Act, gets a second win from a court that seems to have lurched to the left. I'll talk about that. I'm also talking about the growing terror threat. I, I don't know if I have it keyed up and ready. Uh, Devin Nunes and I and uh, a bunch of other people on Face the Nation this past weekend, Daniel Silva, and the uh, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, kind of stunned us when he had this to say. We face the highest threat level we have ever faced in this country today. Including after 9-11? Including after 9-11. And there's a couple reasons why. One is the flow of fighters that have went from Europe and, uh, and other Western countries like the United States to fight in Iraq and Syria who have now come out. We don't know, we don't know all the people who have went in, nor do we know the people who have, who have been back and are now on the streets in the United States. Uh, the FBI director said there are cases open in 50 states. The second and probably more important fact is that on the Internet, young people are being radicalized. Right, stop right there. The and, and, and so, Daniel Silva, you have on the one hand VVAC working with the IRA bombers and people like the bomber in, in Yemen that the former deputy director of the CIA worries about. On the other hand, you have the recruitment via the Internet of thousands, if not tens of thousands, of willing couriers. And in the English spy, you get a sense of how all of this works in a giant swirl in the terror network. That um, makes us at great risk. Actually, I I hope that that uh, that he's wrong in his in his assessment. I hope that he's wrong. Um, you know, the, the, to me, they haven't quite demonstrated the ability to carry out a, a true. Uh, mass casualty terror spectacular on on the order of 9/11 and we've also gotten much better at 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 what we do in in the wake of 9/11 um and so my my hope right now is that ISIS is is more concerned about uh the the 
the near enemy. You know, it's it's activity in in on the ground in in Syria and Iraq and trying to build the caliphate, and that they're not actually going to be um, attacking us. This is, I I hope that I'm right and he's wrong. I'm not sure about that. Um, the best way to get the United States into into the war in in Syria and to crush ISIS would be to carry out a mass casualty attack here because we, the president would have no choice but to go in and and wipe them out. I mean, what is the worst decision that Osama bin Laden ever made? You mean to carry out the the nine eleven? Yeah. Uh, right. That was that was the end for him. Uh, I I wonder though these ISIS fanatics don't seem to be. Um... They don't seem to carry much beyond the next day. These videos are just the pool video this week makes me think. There's a Wall Street Journal story today, Daniel Silva, that has in it this line, the spreading perception that the U.S. isn't really interested in defeating the Islamic State has undermined local resistance to the militant groups in Anbar. It represents a major obstacle to recruiting local Sunni tribes, one of the U.S. strategies in the war, provincial leaders say. There's just this general idea that we're not in the game anywhere, even as the technology advances, I mean, that little bit on the subway, the micro burst of transmission of data that no one can track. Yeah, it, it, it's it, scary. It's, um, I mean, how can how can these people not feel that way? I mean, um, we have more trainers on the ground in Iraq than there than there are trainees. Um, we are carrying out fewer sorties. You know, for the entire campaign than we did in a, you know, in, in a in a couple of days during the Iraq War, um, it, it does create the impression, uh, rightly or wrongly, that we're sort of slow rolling this and and handing it off to the next president, um, and just doing enough so that we it it looks like we're doing enough. And if you're on the ground and you're caught in the in the in, in the crosshairs of ISIS, I mean, uh, you, you know, you're Definitely not going to to feel confident that the United States is is going to be coming to your aid anytime soon, and they're and they're they're right to feel that way. In the, in your next novel, Daniel Silver, are you going to be dealing with um, ISIS at all? I I, it, I have a hard and fast rule uh, about not talking about future novels, and I'm going to break that rule today <laughs> on the Hugh Hewitt show and say I'm I'm already working on it, and it does deal with ISIS. See, I, I just couldn't figure it out. The last thing I want to ask you, Daniel, it's a terrific book, by the way, and everyone should know that. It's, uh, I think your artistry has gotten better with every single novel, and this is Thank just you. amazing. Thank but you. the uh, last thing is, there is Madeline and Katrina. People don't believe this. They might watch The Americans on HBO and think it's a relic of the Cold War, but there are still sleepers. There are still specially trained people. The bad guys haven't stopped thinking about how to hurt us, have they? Uh, no. And, and look, the United States remains the primary obsession target of, of Russian intelligence. And and the United Kingdom is number two on that list. And, and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of, of Russians and many, many more, hundreds of thousands of Eastern Europeans in, in, in um, Russia. And, and look, I mean... You, you, you know, take my word for it. The MI6, MI5, British Foreign Secretary all say that, that Russia is is a the, emerging as the biggest threat to British security in the 21st century, and that Russian intelligence activity on British soil um, 
is is at Cold War levels, and I think we should assume that that's the same here in the, in the United States. Yeah, back when I was in the Reagan administration, the first time the Department of Justice working on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act applications of the FISA court for the AG, they were all over the place, and my guess is the, the same number of applications for warrants on foreign nationals in the United States under diplomatic cover is there. And you, and you bring that clear in the English spy all over England, the, the resident of the SVK is running around and talking to his various people. They just don't let up. They, that's not in Putin's nature, and Putin is at the center of this book. And it's interesting. You're the novelist who's figured out earliest and longest that Putin is the guy we have to watch. Um, look, I was I was um, struck early by by what he what his goals were and how aggressively he was going about it. Um, there was also maybe you saw this wonderful piece in the in the Wall Street Journal yesterday about the new sort of 21st century authoritarian regimes and how sophisticated they are yep. at what they do. And he is the poster child for that. I mean, there's no gulag anymore. I mean, it, there are people who get gunned down in the streets, and, and but, but, but the state is, is much more sophisticated in using its repressive powers to keep everywhere in line. Daniel Silva, great to talk to you again. The English Spy is linked at HughHewitt.com. It'll be in airports, bookstores everywhere next week. You, of course, want to get it. Talk to you again next July, if not before, Daniel Silva. Stay tuned, America. I'll bring you up today on the cover. The- Morning, glory, and bonjour. Hi, America and Canada from the ReliefFactor.com studio. Not inside the Beltway. I'm on the West Coast. It's early. But it is the 4th of July and a happy Independence Day to you. We have a tradition here at the Hugh Hewitt Show, which we uphold year in and year out, of uh, finding Daniel Silva, the renowned author of the Gabriel Alon series, and seeing if he won't join us for a conversation about his brand new book of the year. This time it is The Other Woman. The Other Woman will be in bookstores on July the 17th. You can pre-order it, and you ought to pre-order it today if you want to be assured of getting it. I have Daniel Silva's The Other Woman in my hand because I get the pre-publication copy, and I am here to tell you that The Other Woman is the best. Daniel Silva, good morning. Thanks for joining me for the second time, which I will explain to people, but it's very nice of you to help me out. I am glad to be back. Happy Fourth of July. Happy Fourth of um, July I'm, to I'm, you. I'm sorry you have to uh, you have to work today uh, instead of doing a, a taped program, but I'm I'm glad to to be here with you. Well, let let me tell and, people and to celebrate the Fourth with you. Yeah, the Independence Day. You're you're going to be out working. You needed a day off because you're beginning your book tour on the 17th in New York. If you want to know where Daniel's going to be, go over to DanielSilvaBooks.com. I am going to be with him on July the 24th in Los Angeles, uh, interviewing him, and you can join us. Uh, at that evening event. But here's the backstory that is ironic, given what the other woman is about. Daniel and I pre-recorded this. And then my server was invaded by Russian hackers uh, three days ago who have ransomed all of our software, including my July 4th interview with Daniel Silva. Of course, we're not going to pay them and turned it over to the FBI. And we're busy working to recover our files. But ransomware from Russia, Daniel Silva, has taken captive our earlier interview. We may get it back someday. We may not. But that just brings us right to the other uh, to the other woman, doesn't it? Uh, it, it in, in a roundabout way, it really does. And I'm, I'm first of all, my condolences. Um, I can't imagine... Uh, I was just talking to your staff off air, and I know the extent of the loss and what you're up against. Um, and it's just such a, a destructive tool um, that even a small cartel of individuals has at their fingertips. Um, and, it, and to think what this can be 
in the hands of of a of a, of a, of a state and the enormous power and the enormous threat um, uh, to to economies and and livelihoods and and life sustaining systems water electricity um, that that cyber really is an extraordinary extraordinary uh, threat and it's not a future threat anymore it's it's here um, in, and it is it is asymmetric. Yeah. Okay. I mean, uh, you don't need you don't need uh, giant navies and air forces um, to, to carry out this this attack. You need uh, a group of really smart people in a in a in a Leningrad office building or a Beijing office building or a Pyongyang office building, and you can really do serious damage to individuals and economies and and. Um, uh, we are in the game now with U.S. Cyber Command. The Israelis are are, are very good at this, but boy, you've just got a you got a firsthand look at, at what the future is going to be like. And what a backdrop to the other woman. Early in the other woman, uh, there is a an incident that the there's an ambigu- ambiguity surrounds who did what to whom, and the Russians fill that ambiguity with online chatter, twerps, chirps posts to make it look as though Mossad, the the Israeli office Mossad has done it though they have not and it was it's a very early on I don't ever give away any of Daniel's books and then the other woman it's so complicated and so wonderfully plotted I'm not going to give you anything except a hint that you will run into this but at one point the Russian cyber command begins to create an illusion and that's every day Daniel Silva every day they do that you know what the KGB um, it was very, very good at, at disinformation. This goes back uh, almost a century now. So we're um, to where the, 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 the modern KGB came into existence after the revolution. There's, there's the NKVD and other other um, variations on it. But early on in, in the Soviet Union, the KGB were very effective at manipulating um foreign press, Western press, and engaging in elaborate disinformation schemes. Uh, so, so they have a long track record of this. They've been practicing it for, for a century or more. And so my character, Gabriel Lon, got a, a, a taste of, of the Russian disinformation capability uh, when a, a operation in Vienna to take a Russian defector, a potential Russian defector, Safely over the other side, a uh, very Cold War like like scene uh, that 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 goes wrong, and the Russians engage in, in an elaborate disinformation campaign uh, to to pin something on my hero, which then compels him to find the truth about about what really happened. Now, if anyone has not read a Gabriel Alon novel, there are 18 of them. This is the 18th one. It's the 21st book that Daniel Silva has written. I believe he's the best in the business, and I have lots of friends who, who nod and say, yeah, I do this, but yeah, but Daniel is the best. And I, I have to tell people, I've always said start with the kill artist and read forward, but you can actually read The Other Woman and not injure anything else in the previous books because... It's very different. It is so it is so old school and new school. Uh, and by that I mean, uh, Daniel Silva, the Russians are back. It, if, if Sasha isn't Carla and Carla isn't Sasha, I know that you are put off by comparisons to Le Carre, but I think this book is very oh, Le Carre-esque. Uh, it's it's really old school. Uh, I, I was 
old school in the in the in the construct of the novel um, because it deals with some old school issues, um, and so I, I deliberately chose very Cold War like um, settings and and Cold War like scenes to tell this story. It's very deliberate on my part. Yeah, um, they, uh, and and I also I structured the novel in such a way. Um, in, in terms of little tiny touches in terms of character introduction and and the way I structured the scenes to make sh- sure that this one truly, truly, truly stood alone um, in, in its own right. Um, and, and I think that they all stand alone. I'm, I'm very, you know, cognizant of that. But this one, I really went the extra mile um, to make sure that anyone can pick up this book and and read it for the first time and have no no you won't you won't be missing a thing. hundred percent correct. And I am I have to tell people the plotting because I'm going to talk to Daniel on the 24th in Los Angeles. I did not read the whole book the first time we talked, the one that's been ransomed. And so the second time I read part two, but not part three. So I'm two thirds of the way through the novel. And we talked off air after part one. He had me make some predictions. I was half right. I'm just so happy I got one little thing right. Uh, that, that, that I'm sure I'm getting a curveball at the end. But this is, uh, the fetching was, he would ask me, how long does it take to create a plot of this intricacy, Daniel? Uh, I, had a um, the broad outline of of how I wanted the the, the plot to unfold, um, but I really do work out the the plot um, on paper as I write, and I, I um, I'm a little bit like Caravaggio, <laughs> not a novelist, a painter, but um, Caravaggio sort of worked it out on the canvas. And if he didn't like something, he put a layer of obliterating paint over it and repainted it. Um, and that's, that's, those are my work habits. Um, and I, I finally got it um, structured and all the, uh, the subplots to think up um, the way I wanted them to. But, yeah, this, is, this, is, this has got some layers upon layers upon layers. And a lot of things going on, uh, um, I, I, and I, I think I pulled it off in the end. It is well. I'm on the uh, on the edge of the cliff, dancing on part three uh, <laughs> down by the river. But I, you don't even know what the subtitles mean on the on the parts until you get into them. After the break, we'll come back and talk about. I want to assure everyone who's already a Gabriel Lawn fan that the cast of characters are here, and we'll talk about that. But this is so present day, and I want people to know going into the break. The czar, Putin, the Russian, the guy who's running all this, he's been in your books before. He's back now, but you are also aware that the president is here, and the new president has a different attitude towards the new czar. Uh, yes, he does. Um, and he's going to be meeting with the new czar uh, right about publication. The time. day before uh, publication. The day before. The day before. <laughs> Yeah, you'd be interesting. You couldn't ask for better timing. I'll be right back with Daniel Silva. He is my guest. The other woman is at Amazon.com. It is, uh, of course, available at DanielSilvaBooks.com. If you want to join Daniel on his book tour in New York or Cherry Hill, D.C., Kansas City, Scottsdale, Houston, Dallas, Los Angeles, Toronto, or Watch Hill, Rhode Island, go on to DanielSilvaBooks.com and uh, and you can book your tickets now. I will be with him on the 24th of uh, uh 
at July in Los Angeles, California. In the meantime, stay tuned. Happy Fourth of July, America, from the ReliefFactor.com studio on the West Coast. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, there's a lot of news. Poland has purged its Supreme Court. Judge Kethledge continues to rise in the estimates of people considering who will be our next Supreme Court justice. But I devote this last hour of my Fourth of July show live. I'm working today. Most of the other hosts aren't. With Daniel Silva. He is the, uh, the host of the other, he is the author of The Other Woman, the latest in the Gabriel Alon series. And in fact, I was reading during the break, Politico's summer reading list includes Newt Gingrich saying, uh, Daniel Silva's new Gabriel Alon novel, The Other Woman, coming out July 17th. Silva is one of our finest novelists. I've already pre-ordered this book and plan to stay up all night devouring it. David Petraeus is also going to be reading The Other Woman. You kind of have a loyal following, uh, Daniel Silva. <laughs> It's a, it's very intimidating uh, to write uh, a, a novel knowing that, that the, the former CIA chief is going to be reading it. And I do have lots of readers within the community. Uh, and it, it uh, honestly, it's just, I, I, I sometimes wonder what they what they think of the world that I've created. But um, I had the pleasure of of meeting. Gosh, what do we call him? Director. General uh, Petraeus and, and uh, spending some time with him, and, and I'm, I'm honored that he's going to be reading the novel. It, it is because I think, you know, I walked into my West Coast studio today, and, and my, my gang is here, and I know them all, and I haven't seen them in a few weeks, and, and it's fun. When you pick up um, a Daniel Silva novel, the other woman in this case, you'll find Uzi Nabot, you'll find Eli Levon, you'll find Christopher and Mikhail and Yossi and Dina and Ramona. They're all there. In fact, I, I talked to you the last time about this. You'll be surprised by Uzi. He gets physical for the first I mean, really physical for the first time in 18 books. But that's when, one of the allures of a series this long is that you get to see your friends again. It is. And, and um, I mean, I... I it, Love Gabriel Lawn, obviously. I mean, I think he's was an inspired creation. But I think the reason why the book, the series has really succeeded is the remarkable cast of sub-characters, um, second-tier and third-tier characters. They include uh, the private secretary to a pope, um, art dealers, um, art thieves, um, in the case of Christopher Keller, he used to be a professional assassin. Now he works for, for MI6. Uh, and, and I have take great care with my, my second tier characters. Uh, fifth tier character. The, the caretaker at Wormwood College, at Wormwood Cottage is a fifth tier character and I love him. <laughs> He's, he, and, and he pops, as we say. Yes. Um, and I think that, that, um, as the series continues and as Gabriel um, uh, moves forward in his tenure as chief, I, I do expect that that um, other characters will 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 rise. I mean, I, I'm, I would say hard, be hard pressed to, to. You really don't get the sense that Gabriel is really a, a, the chief in this novel. He really dominates this book. It's his book as he as he unravels this very age old mystery. Uh, but I, I do think that, that as, as the, the books continue, I think that other characters will um, 
rise up a little bit and, and take a larger share of some of the novels. Do you know, if you ever switch continents, um, uh, uh, Graham Seymour's right arm, the young and the reckless driver, I can't think of his name right now. Uh, <laughs> Nigel Whitcomb. Yes, Nigel. I, I think he is a candidate for a standalone because <laughs> he, he has some capacity about it. But there are, there are even little people who will never come back. Uh, Graf, the pensioner in Vienna, who yeah. uh, thinks of the British that they have a certain low cunning and is a bad process. State, so he's out walking his dog in the middle of the night at the wrong time. There are people who appear for two pages in your album of uh, 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 thousands of pages that we'll never see again. Uh, correct. Um, and um, I, I, I put that little character, um, Herr Graf, walking his dog. He sees something at the, at the, at the end of the opening sequence, which is a long sort of action sequence. Uh, that stretches about five chapters. And I wanted a quiet little way to end it. I often like to um, show, let let, um, civilians, as we call them, have a glimpse at what my characters are doing and and use that as a technique um, to... To close certain sequences, and that's what that's what Graf represents. He, he also represents a uh, voter for the right wing parties rising in Europe. Just a little touch there. We'll be right back with Daniel Silva, the other woman. You can pre-order it at Amazon today, and if you want to have it on your doorstep on July 17th, you ought to. The other woman. I'll be right back. Welcome back, America, to the ReliefFactor.com Studios West Coast Edition. I am Hugh Hewitt on this Fourth of July. Happy Fourth of July to all of you. Have a great celebration today. Celebrate that you live free of an intelligence service that monitors your every move. That is what is at the heart of uh, The Other Woman, Daniel Silva's brand-new thriller, uh, the Gabriel Alon series. Uh, Daniel, during the break, uh, John Podhortz has tweeted out, A new Alon in 13 days, be still my heart. And I replied, it's simply the best. And I think the reason is I started reading these things with Len Dayton and, and, and John le Carre, and they went away for a long time because the Soviets went away. But the KGB never went away. It just rearranged its alphabet. And so the oldest puzzle in the business, it's a dangerous puzzle. It's its a conundrum. The mole is back. And I'll simply preface it by saying, on Monday night, I had dinner with a man who knew Aldrich Ames, who sits in Indiana in maximum security at the age of 77, because he was a mole. And moles destroy everything. And so there are moles in this book that are just remarkable. Um, I think of Aldrich James as a um, as a more of a, in the light of an agent in place. Right. He he actually uh, was not recruited by the 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 Russians or the the Soviets. He volunteered. He, he in in such a restless way. He went into the embassy and and offered his services to them. And he was working in counterintelligence at the time, and he was allowed to have certain contacts with the Russians. Um, and Ames was in position um, to do such enormous damage uh, because he actually worked in our counterintelligence uh, section of the, of, the, of the CIA. He did extraordinary damage, and many, many people died because of Walter James. That's what he told me. In, in your book, you mention a house on the corner of Warren and Nebraska Avenue, wherein lived one of the great moles of history, Kim Philby. And I think people don't know this story. And to the extent that you alert them to that, 
I'm just grateful because people don't understand what we're up against. Not only they get the technology of surveillance and trolling, but they don't get the technology of sleeper cells. <laughs> well, the, um, the house that you're referred to, it's, uh, it's, it's 40, about 40 seconds in Nebraska, actually. It's an old, beautiful old um, colonial house that's been there for years and years. Um, and Kim Philby, the uh, Russian spy, the most famous mole in history, uh, lived there when he was actually the MI6's head of station in Washington. Uh, and the House and Philby, without going into too much, right. play a very important uh, role in this novel. And I have to admit that I've been obsessed with Kim Philby for a very long time. Um, and I, that obsession began as a young man when I read his dishonest, mendacious memoir called My Silent War. Um, and I thought what, that Philby, what he did was absolutely unconscionable and, and repulsive. So, I mean, all, we'd, maybe 10 or 15 people died because of Alder James. Hundreds and hundreds of people died on the other side of the line because of the actions of Kim Philby. But I always thought that Philby lived an extraordinary life. Um, uh, and reading that memoir, just I found something fascinating about the guy. And I've been wanting to write a, a book that dealt with Philby and his legacy um, for a long time. And I thought that now was the time to do that because there are certain parallels between the, the time when Kim Philby was recruited as, a, as a, a Russian mole. And I think of Philby as a mole. When he was recruited by the NKVD, he was just a very young man. This happened in 1934. He did not enter uh, the, the British Intelligence Service, the SIS or MI6, until 1940. So for six years, he was an agent of the, of the, of the Russian intelligence before he was able to penetrate uh, MI6. So that's what I think of as a mole, someone who comes in from the outside, burrows into a position of influence. And so in a very brief period of time, this guy was so intelligent, so gifted, he was he was going to be the, the next chief of MI6. Can you imagine? The I, I, I can't. Being a, a Russian mole. I the damage can't. that could have been done. And in fact, I'm reading in parallel with your book because I'm reading it in thirds to prepare for our conversation in Los Angeles on the 21st, so I'm fresh. I'm reading another book called Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World. And the reason it's interesting is, of course, the Brits and the Russians have been doing this since the great game, since Kipling, right? And I didn't know Absolutely. that Tim Philby was named for a uh, 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 by his father in, in regards to Kipling. But Israel had to come up with a water system from the time of the mandate. They also had to come up with an intelligence system against these imperial powers that had had agents and been playing the great game for 150 years before Israel was a dream of anybody. It's kind of and remarkable that they caught up. But Israel the, the, um, developed a, a secret capacity, not Israel, but we'll call them the Jews, um, in, in, in trying to get people into Palestine uh, survived the war. Certain certain networks developed organically, um, and and remnants of those networks um, became sort of the first intelligence service of of the, of the young state of Israel. So there, were, um, Israel all, just the, the 
fact of trying to survive World War II and trying to build a state, is the Israelis or the, the soon-to-be Israelis developed um, a, a very powerful secret capacity uh, and became very, very good at it and very good diplomats as well. Um, and look, intelligence services are force multipliers. The Mossad, while not perfect, has been a force multiplier for the Israelis. They have incredible military capability, first and foremost. But the Mossad is a powerful tool. And you know who else has a very powerful intelligence service that acts as a force multiplier? That is the Russians. Right. If you, you look at a typical Russian embassy in Western Europe, one half to two thirds of those quote unquote diplomats are actually SVR agents and agents of other Russian intelligence services. Each Russian embassy in the West is a forward operating base and they are operating. Make no mistake about it. They are recruiting. They are stealing. They are making mischief. They are engaging in good old fashioned disinformation campaigns with the goal of tearing apart the NATO alliance, weakening the West, and, and emerging. One, one of my great power. worries about Team Trump is that they arrived on, into power without a grounding in how ubiquitous, pernicious, and unrelenting the Russian services were. I learned that during the Reagan years, but they remain. I have to ask you, Daniel, completely unrelated to the other woman. Mm -hmm. uh, two weeks ago, I had the Attorney General of the United States on, and we talked mostly about child separation, and we sparked it up about that, but then we talked about the fact that the United States gives 250,000 F-1 visas to Chinese students to come to the United States. Uh, the idea right. that they aren't sleepers by the thousands among those 250,000 students is stupid, but we don't seem to understand that. Well, there's probably uh, they're not there. Some might try to stay, um, and we have had um, cases of, of Chinese penetration of of, of 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 our intelligence services. But I think that the main problem is is that we are um, giving the Chinese access to our great universities and and um, educating. Um, future spies and, and future uh, technical minds. And I think that we've got to become a little bit more competitive when it comes to to our admissions policies um, and, and, and the Chinese. Um, I mean, how I, difficult I really, would it be, Daniel, for a an F-1 visa holder to go into the labs of Berkeley and penetrate with devices and those those little sticks, which seem so innocuous, uh, and to do and just to steal everything. Uh, look, the, the the Russians steal, the Chinese steal a lot, uh, and they have all kinds of methods for it. It can be done remotely, but it can be done with 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 agents uh, on the ground and in the labs and in the universities and in business, and they they. They they steal incredibly from our businesses that go over there. They have to have Chinese partners, and, and they steal the technology. Um, look, the Chinese have 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 benefited benefited from their relations with us in in lots of ways, and and one of that is this: just the extraordinary 
transfer of technology that's gone from the United States into the Chinese economy, and they are reaping the reward. We come back from break. We'll continue to talk about the Russians, though, because the Russians are at the heart of the other woman, the new KGB, the SVR, and what they are doing, the wet work that they are about. With Daniel Silva, the other woman is now available at Amazon.com. Pre-order it. Welcome back, America. To you and happy Fourth of July. Enjoy the whole day right through the last, uh, the big ending of your fireworks display tonight. Daniel Silva is my guest. His brand new book, The Other Woman. It's a Fourth of July tradition for the U.S. Show to talk to Daniel about his new book, which is coming out on July 17th. His tour is all detailed at DanielSilvaBooks.com, and we're talking about the Russians. It will come out the day after the president meets with meets with Vladimir Putin in um, in Helsinki. Two things in our last seven minutes, Daniel Silva. The wet work that the Russians have resumed, and it's been very rare to have wet work, uh, as they call it, in um, in the trade. Uh, but they're back at it. And then the portrait of a woman in Zahara, Spain. It's unusual in all of your books. You really, you got her. And I just think people are going to be amazed at that character and what her life has been like and how you capture it. And the betrayal of the betrayers is just uh, very poignant. Um, well, starting with wet work, um, a, a term that really grew out of the Russian services. Um, look, they did, they tried to kill uh, Skripal. Uh, they succeeded in killing uh, Alexander Litvinenko. These were not wet work attacks. There was no bloodshed, actually, because they used what were, in effect, weapons of mass destruction uh, on the soil of, of uh, a NATO country, um, Great Britain. I mean, if you just examine it at, at, at that level, it's unbelievably extraordinary with, with it, that they carried one successful assassination, uh, one unsuccessful. Um, friends of the regime, or perhaps the FSB itself, which is the Internal Russian Security Service, carried out have numerous killings inside Russia. And the concept of using uh, the, the killing, the assassination of, of opponents overseas is now enshrined in Russian law. Uh, and so uh, a Russian leader or a Russian intelligence chief would face no legal sanction for conducting an overseas uh, uh, assassination. Uh, he, is, he is allowed to do so by law. Um, the portrait that you talk about of, of a woman um, living alone in, in, in Spain and who this woman is and, and um, why she is there, what is her connection to the story, uh, it was a very interesting writing exercise for me because for uh, there are two chapters in there where the woman is unnamed. We don't know what her name right. is, the technique I use. Uh, and I will tell you that I purposefully did not name her even mentally i wrote about of someone without knowing what the what the what the woman's name was oh how it, interesting as as a tool to help me able to to penetrate her only to a certain depth i wanted to go only so far it was it was um and an unreliable point of view. She was not telling you the whole story, and I was not telling you the whole story. Uh, and as part of my uh, technique, I did not give her a name for my uh, for myself. Well, the book is uh, itself like a 
a counter counterintelligence operation in that there are a couple of reversals that you just don't see coming. And then it says, of course. So the best master spy, whether it's Sasha or Carla back in the Le Carre days, they're the same guy. They're the same agent. They don't want you to ever figure out where they're going. Right. Uh, well, that would be the that would be the. Um you know, the, the, the idea, you want to keep as much from your, from your enemies as possible while at the same time uh, attacking him relentlessly. Um, and you can be sure that, that the Russian intelligence services are attacking us at every level relentlessly. And they haven't stopped. They had a little pause there when the, when the, when the, Soviet Union collapsed and they were in utter disarray, but they, they got their act together pretty quickly and got back in the business. A question um, we will pick up in L.A., Daniel, I just want to ask you for the audience. Do you think we run moles against the SVR? Do we even have the capability as a free society to organize someone's life? We run undercover agents, for example, against jihadis in the United States, and I've sure. interviewed them, but I don't think we can do what they do to us. Uh, well... Our society is much more open uh, than than theirs. Uh, and the, obviously, during the time of the Soviet Union, it was completely closed. And running agents in in in, in Moscow was incredibly different. Thus, the Moscow rules, the, fa- the famous rules of espionage, how to operate in in Russia. But we do. We have had um, some very important penetrations of the Russian. Russian services over the years. Um, I think that they've gotten the better of us. Um, the other woman explores um, what was, uh, you know, the, the Cambridge Five was, you know, arguably the most successful uh, intelligence operation and penetration ever ever done. Um, and uh, the other woman deals with one aspect of that and 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 and. Uh, Theorizes that there there might be a a, a present day. Uh, uh, I can't I can't uh, wait to continue <laughs> this conversation in Los Angeles on the twenty fourth. We didn't even talk about your winking at yourself in the book by uh, mocking Pulp Fiction or Pulp uh, spy novels. Kiara loves to read them and or the use of prologue. We'll talk about that in L A. But everyone can go on this Fourth of July and order the other woman. Have a gr- thank you, Daniel Silva. Thank you so much for coming back a second time because we've been attacked by Russians. And all of you, enjoy the fact you're not in Russia today. Thank God for the United States of America. Have a 4th of July. Morning, glory. America, bonjour. Hi, Canada. Greetings to the rest of the world listening on com or watching on Univision or Town Hall TV. It is my annual gift to you on the 4th of July as you begin your drive wherever you are going or your podcast listening to bring you Daniel Silva, America's best-selling author. Number one New York Times best-selling author, Daniel Silva. Always gives you a summer treat. This summer's treat is The New Girl. The New Girl is the new book by Daniel Silva. And following the lunch rule, I will say The New Girl at least seven times in every segment. And you ought to go and pre-order The New Girl because it comes out in a week or so. And I think it's going to sell out and Amazon will get it re restocked. But it's going to be late. The line that he uses to begin it, what's done cannot be undone, has such resonance for me. Daniel Silva, welcome back to The Hugh Hewitt Show. Happy 4th of July to, to you and your family and to, to everyone listening. Great and, to be back. And to you, um, what's done cannot be undone, but it can be reimagined, Daniel Silva. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I thought your entire exercise in The New Girl 
is a brilliant, absolutely necessary moment for us. Would you explain to people how your very precise schedule was completely wrecked by uh, the murder of Khashoggi. My colleague is a contributing writer to the Washington Post and about whom I grieve, but you were writing a book about MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, when that murder occurred. Tell us what happened. Well, I was writing a book about a character that, that I called uh, KBM, uh, Khalid bin Mohammed. Um, and it's a book that, that I had wanted to write for a couple of years because I'd been fascinated um, by the rise of this of this young prince in Saudi Arabia who was saying the sorts of things that 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 people like me have have been calling for 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 years and years um inside our house we Jamie my wife who's a journalist um and who I suggested over and over again you know you really got to you got to talk to this guy i mean he is the most interesting man in the world. That became a sort of a buzz line inside our house that, that Mohammed bin Salman was the most interesting man in the world. And I was particularly fascinated by this uh, very secretive but important relationship that had developed b- between MBS and the Israelis and the possibilities that that relationship held. And I finally um, set out to write that book um Last August, it would be, uh, you know, published this summer. And I wrote about 250 pages of the, of the manuscript. Uh, and in early October, saw a very small report that this, this uh, important Saudi journalist, uh, uh, Khashoggi, uh, was missing. And in, in very short order, uh, missing turned into uh, – you know, killed inside a, a Saudi consulate, and 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 we we know the the rest of the details. And so, what I had written simply did not uh, stand up anymore. And so, in my very very tight writing schedule, in the middle of October, I had to take um, basically you know a third to a half of a book, throw it out, and and start completely over. Uh, and and to do so with, I think, a mission in mind, your dedication is for the 54 journalists who were killed worldwide in 2018, and as always, for my wife, Jamie, and my children, Nicholas and Lily. I've now joined the advisory board of FallenJournalists.org, started by David Dreyer, who's now the head of the Tribune Company, because mm-hmm. a lot of journalists are married. The late Michael Kelly was a regular guest on this show, and I, mm-hmm. I go back to Ernie Pyle, but also the people killed at the Capitol Gazette and Khashoggi. It is, it's important to realize the cost to the free press that happens every I, single year. So I, I want to point out, a, a, I used uh, 2018 for that number. Um, there are reporters who are killed um, in the line of duty, if you will, caught, caught in you know the crossfire in a war situation or um, that sort of thing. And that, but the, but the overwhelming majority of the journalists who were killed last year were actually targeted by governments and, and, and powerful individuals. They were targeted and, and murdered. And that is the, the, the shocking part of that statistic. Um, and Jamal Khashoggi, um, 
certainly falls in, uh, uh, under that category. Now, I want to play for you, since we're talking about Khashoggi, before we get into the specifics of The New Girl. And per usual, I haven't finished the book, so I can't give it away. I've only read two-thirds of it. I always leave the last third unread until the night after I interview. July 4th, my afternoon is spent finishing the Daniel Silva book. so that I, Well, I, you, have, you have a couple of big twists coming your way. Uh, and, so, uh, that's amazing. I see. I don't want any spoilers. No one can ever accuse me of spoiling when I've only read 300 pages. So, so the deal is, it's a magnificent read. But I got to play for you. It's as though the president timed his G20, where he's standing next to MBS, who is still yeah. the subject of incredible international condemnation. And here is what he was asked about and said. Cut number 29. President Trump at the presser. On last week, yes, I asked him what was happening, and he was telling me that I think he said 13, but it could be more. And I think he said more in the works uh, that there are large numbers of people being prosecuted. He's very angry about it. He's very unhappy about it. And I did mention it to him very strongly, and he answered very strongly. But uh, they're prosecuting large numbers of people. Uh, that was a bad event. And sir, okay, can I just follow? Up. Sir, can I just follow up? You but, mentioned you mentioned that the intelligence can you mentioned that no one had uh, pointed the finger at him but actually the CIA did the intelligence communities um, I cannot comment on intelligence community I, I just I'm not uh, probably I, I guess I'm allowed to do what I want to do in terms of that right we can declassify unlike Hillary Clinton she decided to just give it out we can declassify the truth is that uh, I just don't want to talk about uh, intelligence but I will say this uh, a lot of people are being prosecuted, and they're taking it very seriously over there. And they've done a great job in Saudi Arabia from the standpoint of women and from a lot of different things are happening in Saudi Arabia. One of the other things very important with Saudi Arabia, that not only um, are they an ally, not only have they spent tremendous amounts of money coming into our country, and they have been a good ally, and they have actually bought tremendous amounts of military equipment that we use and that we're able to use, but they're also very much now changed their ways as to financing terror, which I can't say for a lot of other countries. If you look at Iran, if you look at other countries in that area, they're financing terror. Now, it's harder for Iran because Iran doesn't have the money they used to have. And they were given $150 billion. They were given $1.8 billion in cash. Uh, but uh, Saudi Arabia has come a long way. I'll tell you, in terms of reform, Saudi Arabia really has come a long way. Daniel Silva, what did you make of that answer, having just finished the new girl? Um, that that is um, the the thesis of of the new girl in a nutshell, and, yes. that, and that answer um, looped around and, and and took a few detours, but um, within it is is uh, a a coherent uh, policy and, and strategy um, where he. Um, uh, not as forcefully as I would have preferred, but he he did condemn the murder of of Khashoggi, um, and he declared it in 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 his way that this is an incredibly important relationship, which it is, and that the United States is is um, not going to let the uh, murder of of a single journalist derail that relationship at a critical time. Um, uh, that we find ourselves in right now, um, and it's it's realpolitik. It's it's cold. Um, it's hard. Uh, it's difficult. Um, 
But I think we have to remember that this relationship withstood 9-11, okay? Um, and um, I think that I, I sort of wish he had, had had spoken like that earlier on in the process because it, there is a coherent uh, and clear uh, policy statement. Um, I think, in, you know, in a perfect world, you know, I, I guess I would have hoped that the United States would have quietly suggested to the Saudis that they that they find uh, someone else um, uh, to be the next king of Saudi Arabia. But that was never going to happen. Uh, President Trump and his son-in-law played a role in 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 uh, MBS's uh, rise to the position of crown prince and 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 changing the way that the line of succession works to make him the next. Uh, king of Saudi Arabia. And unless something dramatic happens, he is going to be the next king of Saudi Arabia. And he's going to be the king of Saudi Arabia for a very, very long time. I guess where I would part company uh, with the president is I'm not sure I am seeing uh, a lot of great reform uh, coming out of, 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 of MBS at the moment. I know he's been distracted by this. Um, and I really never counted myself among, uh, among those who, who believe that he was uh, really who he said he was going to be. But what is fascinating uh, so about... I, I think that, is, that the, 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 the book is still open on that one. And what the new girl lays out is an alternative reality to what we have right now, but what could be. And when we come back with Daniel Silva, make no mistake, the condemnation of the Khashoggi murder is absolute in the new girl. But we'll talk about the balancing out attack of real, real politic wrapped in a moral envelope. Don't go anywhere. Daniel Silva is back on this fourth July edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt on the 4th of July. Why am I playing John Coltrane? You say you care? Because that's some music that's referenced in Daniel Silva's brand new book, The New Girl, which you can pre-order at Amazon right now. And you'd better, because I get, you don't know how much blowback I get, Daniel Silva, because I get your book early enough to, to read it. <laughs> I, I, people so mad at me, I'm, I'm afraid to open the door because they're going to try and grab my Daniel Silva book and sprint away with it. So uh, obviously the pre-publication uh, interest in The New Girl is extremely high. Wait until they find out what it's about. <laughs> well, um, look, it, it's a it is a summer beach read, um, and I think you can attest to that. Absolutely. It deals with serious issues, but it is um, told in a rollicking, uh, sometimes uh, humorous um, mode that I have of, of, uh, chosen to tell this story. Um, and it is, it is definitely a thriller. Um, it has, um, at its core, I'm not, I'm, this is online in the descriptions, um, that, uh, it imagines that Khalid bin Mohammed, um, the once promising, now maligned, uh, crown prince of Saudi Arabia has secretly enrolled his daughter, uh, at a prestigious school in Geneva. Uh, the, thus the title, The New Girl. Um, and when she is uh, brutally kidnapped, um, Khalid bin Mohammed, now with, is, 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 has no friends left in the world. He, he turns to the one person 
he can trust to try to find um, his daughter, uh, and that is Gabriel Alon. And the it is not money that the kidnappers want. What they want is for is for Khalid bin Mohammed uh, to abdicate and relinquish his claim to the throne of Saudi Arabia, so that uh, someone can. Someone else uh, can can seize power. Now, Daniel Silva, we've got news stations from the last time you were on, July 4th. People in Erie, Pennsylvania, down to Alabama. People from Florida to smaller stations along the West Coast. It's blanketed by the Hugh Hewitt Show. They're up early. They're on the 4th of July. Would you give us the two-minute introduction to Gabriel Alon, to whom many of us are addicted and whom we follow? We know his life. We know his life story completely. It's evolved over, I guess, uh, 19 books. I'm not quite sure what. 19. Yeah. 19. 19 books. And so the the brief pricey, please, for, for new people who are tuning in and haven't heard of Daniel Silva, they can read The New Girl Standing Alone, by the way, and they, they will sure. not ruin a thing about those which went before it. No. Uh, Gabriel Alon um, is a is now the chief of Israeli intelligence. I don't call it the Mossad. It, it, I refer to it as the office, which is the way that people who work for the Mossad refer to the Mossad. They always call it the office. Uh, he was a legendary uh, field operative. Uh, as, a, as a young man, he was a promising art student. Uh, he was recruited into Israeli intelligence in the autumn of 1972 uh, to track down and um, assassinate uh, the perpetrators of the the Munich Olympics massacre. Uh, he carried out um, numerous other high-profile uh, targeted killings for Israeli intelligence um, and has sort of had an on-and-off, in-and-out relationship with Israeli intelligence for a number of years. And I guess the most uh, fascinating aspect of, of uh, his character is that he worked for many years undercover as a art restorer. In fact, he is one of the um, most uh, prominent and, and talented art restorers in the world. Um, and the other important aspect of, of, his, of his character is that his, his child uh, was killed uh, by a terrorist bombing in Vienna in the early 1990s. And his first wife was was gravely wounded in that attack. And that is Gabriel Lon in a nutshell. And he has uh, progressed over the years um, from sort of a, a Greek um, uh, mythology-like figure living outside of of, of Israel, very uh, sort of a broken, uh, grieving man, to where he is now uh, the, the chief of Israeli intelligence and therefore one of the most powerful figures in Israel. So you can enjoy the new girl right now on this July 4, but you can go back and start over, and most people do. In fact, everyone I know has read every Gabriel Alon novel by Daniel Silva. The new girl is the most recent one. He's coming back as we continue our 4th of July special. Our annual tradition here on the Hugh Hewitt Show is a conversation with Daniel Silva, number one New York Times bestselling author, and it's going to happen again. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. My guest is Daniel Silva. Every 4th of July I do this. I get Daniel Silva's new book, 
early. And I'm the envy of the world as a result. And The New Girl is the new book, and it's going to be another number one New York Times bestseller. It's going to open at number one. You're going to be delayed in getting it if you don't pre-order it. So go and put your pre-order in at Amazon.com right now. Daniel, do you hope that MBS, and I, and I would add a few other people like MBZ, who is the ruler of the United Arab Emirates and is a very enlightened autocrat, do you hope that it travels widely into the countries about which it is mostly concerned? Uh, that, 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 that this book is read? Yes, by uh, these uh, people, by MBS and MBZ and <laughs> everybody else. Well... You know, I, I have a, a sense that it, that it will be. I do too. Uh, I know that when I when I um, uh, depicted uh, the Emirates as a center for for um, jihadist terror financing in a book a few years ago called um, Portrait of a Spy, that a, a message was passed to me through a a a intermediary <laughs> that they that they were unhappy with certain aspects of the way I had portrayed <clears throat> Dubai and the Emirates and and would, wanted to have a word with me about that and and uh, so I, I I I think it will be read um and and I guess what I would say is while I remain um dubious about about um MBS and his true intentions. I, I, I must say that that um, I shared the the sentiments of, of a character in the novel named Omar Nawaf, a Saudi journalist, that 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 he was a charlatan and and, and that um, sort of whispered sweet nothings into the ears of, of gullible Westerners uh, to make himself um, worthy. Of, of being the king of Saudi Arabia at such a at such a young age. I mean, he promised big things to us, and I, and it was I, I was dubious about it, but it was it was quite exciting a couple of years ago to see MBS come to this country and and politicians and journalists and celebrities and business leaders flocking to meet with this this young man. I mean, when have you ever seen that in your life? Never, 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 never. Although I did work never. with Richard Nixon back in 1989, in 1979. He entitled a chapter, The Big Enchilada. It was about Saudi Arabia because Iran had fallen. So the last pillar of our policy in the Middle East was not Egypt, the historic home of, of Arab uh, national identity, but it was Saudi Arabia with the money. Uh, on page 188, I, I, this won't give anything away, you write, there was hope for Khalid yet. Do you think there's hope for MBS uh, I, I certainly hope so because if um, if he doesn't change Saudi Arabia, um, he is well aware of what what's going to happen. I mean, um, I don't know how, how where you come down on this, but but I see um, while the, we are awash in oil right now, and the United States. Um, um, is the world's number one oil and 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 gas, I believe, producer. Um, we have we are on a path now towards, in my opinion, in the very near future, we're all going to be riding around in in, in electric self driving cars. Um, we are weaning our slowly weaning our electrical grid off of petroleum, and I think in the very near future. Um, the oil beneath Saudi Arabia is going to be a stranded asset. It is going to be worth nothing. Uh, 
That's on page 251. You write, the price of oil will be zero in 20 years. That's very bracing well, to read. And, well, MBS has said that as, as well, that in, in 2030, uh, and, and that it is going to be 2030 or 2040, I can't remember the date that he has, has chosen, is going to be worth zero. And what will the House of Saud have to show for all of the trillions of dollars that it took in, other than a lot of of, of palaces and yachts and cars and diamonds. They'll have the Salvatore uh, Mundi. Now that's the, that is the work of art that that is in the, uh, the the new girl. Everyone wants to know what the art angle is. What is your opinion, by the way, of that Leonardo da Vinci maybe uh, painting, which is now floating around on a yacht? I think it is floating around. I, I have it hanging in a in a chateau in in uh, in eastern France. It's apparently on the yacht. Uh, I hope it is in a, a perfectly climate-controlled Oh, my uh, gosh, Because the sea air is not really good for paintings. Um, I'm not, a, I'm not a, uh, an art restorer, but I, you know, I, I, I've studied the, the craft carefully, and I, I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express that time. <laughs> I, I would not hang a 500-year-old um, painting or 400-year-old painting on a boat at sea. Um, I share Gabriel's opinion, Uh about Salvador Mundi, that 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 maybe a small part of it was a Leonardo um, a long, long time ago. But but what we see uh, on the surface of that of that painting is is not. Leonardo. Yeah, I, I in think my, in my humble opinion, it's good to know. I, I think I told you before when the fetching Mrs. Hewitt and I were at the Hermitage, and I think we told this to to your wife and you when we were having dinner. The windows were open and birds were coming in and out, and so that was the most horrifying thing I've said, I've read until after I've read there's a there's a potential Leonardo da Vinci at sea. That's even worse. All right. I want to get to some spycraft. Unit eighty two hundred and the Royal Data Center. Do they yep. exist? Are there capabilities what they you say they are? By the way, a very close mutual friend of ours, yours and mine, has told me that because I communicate with this friend, everything I write, say, and do is collected. And you would be led to believe that if you read about Unit 8200 and the Royal Data Center. Um, well, Unit Intelligence Unit 8200 is the rough Israeli equivalent of the NSA. Um, and it is it um, does not have the massive collection and storage capabilities of the of the NSA, um, in my opinion. Um, no service does. Um, but it it does uh, have incredible uh, targeted uh, tailored uh, capabilities, um, and of course, Unit 8200 um, worked with NSA on the uh, now infamous operation, um, which they called uh, Olympic Games, which was we became known as the Stuxnet virus, um, and uh, in, in, involved in sabotaging the Iranian nuclear. Um, uh, centrifuge program. Uh, so it's a highly capable, incredibly um, advanced um, uh, collection, uh, uh, e electronic eavesdropping, and uh, cyber intelligence um, and cyber warfare service. The Royal Data Center is, is fictitious, but it is roughly modeled on uh, the, I believe they called it the Center for Media Studies, a silly name um, <clears throat> that um, 
so the Saudis have developed similar cyber capabilities. Uh, it is uh, initial uh, 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 goal um, or target was, was terror, uh, counterterrorism, terror financing, um, and, but it morphed into a powerful tool of, of repression and, and political surveillance. Um, and uh, Jamal Khashoggi um, got caught up in that. And um, my journalist, Omar Nawaf, uh, gets caught up in it as well. Now, I've got to say, I didn't think you were going to be able to exceed The Other Woman, your most recent novel, because it was so history-based and so compelling and engrossing to me. But I think The New Girl does because you're dealing with a critical moment and real politique inside of this moral envelope that I described. Did you struggle to come to – I mean, it could have been easy to grandstand on this whole thing, Daniel, and just yeah. – abs- it could have been easy to write it with a one-dimensional uh, denunciation. And by the way, you're very blunt. You call him uh, Prince Bonesaw, Prince Chop Chop. I mean, it is very blunt at places. But you also keep coming back to the real politique at the bottom of this. How hard was it to do this? Um, well, let us say um, – that I, I can't. I, if I go back and look at my computer files, um, I, I would love to know the exact date that that I started the, the rewrite on this novel. I would say it's about October fourteenth or fifteenth, right in there. Um, I did not look up from my computer or my notepad uh, for for months, um, and I was involved in a running conversation with with post journalists with policymakers with members of congress with experts uh, trying to um, thread this needle and try to catch history in the act and it was a um, it was an interesting writing year that's for sure and and i i i wrestled with um, what to do about this situation, as I think that that many people in in Congress did and in the administration, uh, and certainly my character Gabriel Lawn. I mean, he is very very reluctant to help Khalid bin Mohammed. Uh, Gabriel has a real moral streak about him, and he, um, you know, once upon a time. I think I wrote in the book that he wouldn't have soiled his hands with someone like Khalid bin Mohammed. Uh, but now he's in a position of power and responsibility in a dangerous Middle East and and was compelled by the situation uh, to help him. It is. And it was an interesting uh, – I felt very much like like a policymaker wrestling with this – with. Um, with with this situation, it, it actually conveys to people the realities of the world in which we live. When there are people like the Iranians, by the way, I, I compliment your your quick summary of the heist that got all the Iranian documents out. We'll talk about that when we come back. One more segment ahead with Daniel Silva. Don't go anywhere except over to Amazon.com to order the new girl. I'll be right back with Daniel Silva. Welcome back, America. Have a great 4th of July today. 
Later in the month, they're going to be able to get Daniel Silva's new novel, The New Girl. Do not try and stop me at the beach if you see me. I will not give it up. Uh, the New Girl belongs to me, but it will be yours in two weeks. The New Girl can be pre-ordered so that it's there on the first day. I want to close with uh, two observations, Daniel Silva. You get inside the head of a Palestinian journalist, and you accurately convey the Palestinian opinion of the Israeli government, and you get inside the head of a Saudi royal. I don't have friends. I have subjects, house guests, and family. How difficult is it to put yourself in the position of these people with whom most of your novels are not going to sit well, but I can't say that no one, not one of them can say you are unfair to their point of view accurately represented because i'm a novelist i'm I'm a i um i think deeply about these issues um i have that weird um gift or knack or um illness mental illness where i can i can put myself in in anyone's um shoes and, and write about them from their point of view uh and just because my character is israeli uh, and I'm clearly very um, supportive of, of, of the state of Israel and, and the right and the need of the Jewish people for a homeland. Um, I have written two or three books that deal with the, with the Palestinian narrative as a, as a, as a core of, of, of the novel, and, and um, I, I write about it um, uh, very well, I think, very, very honestly, uh, with, with great empathy. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I worked as a journalist in the region. I, I, I talk to people all the time. I uh, can, ab- can absorb their point of view and, and, and mimic it on the page. That, that is the gift of the novel. And it's, it's just on display in The New Girl. Let me close with your estimate of where we are in the Middle East right now. 150,000 missiles stockpiled by Hezbollah on the northern border. Gaza is constantly at... at uh, trying to provoke Israel into a southern war, which will distract from their northern defense. Iron Dome is intercepting missiles on a regular basis throughout the New Girl. The New Girl's very realistic about how Tel Aviv is booming and how the Israeli economy is great, but they still live under this threat. A year from now, when we do our next 4th of July uh, show on your next number one New York Times bestseller that will follow the New Girl, do you think there will have been a war in the interim? Um, there, there. I hope not a war, um, because a war uh, with with Hezbollah and and Iranian elements in in Syria, and I think that's that's the war we're talking about, uh, would, would likely depopulate the northern half of Israel. Uh, hundreds, perhaps thousands, might die. Uh, it is a, a war that that um, it would be. Um, that we, I certainly hope does not have to be to be fought. Um, and you know, we had a situation a few days ago where uh, the president was presented a an option uh, to retaliate for the for the destruction of that drone. And it doesn't take a, a, a novelist like me or some of my imagination uh, to picture how that could have been the, the spark for just a a, a calamitous uh, chain of events that could have led to a regional war. Yeah. Um, and so um, <clears throat> that is the state that we are in right now. Um, I predicted that the Iranians in, in The Other Woman, I don't, I'm sure you don't remember this paragraph, but I predicted that they would ramp up 
um, their nuclear enrichment and weapons program uh, uh, when we withdrew from the agreement. And, and they passed it this week. On the paper, that they did. Yeah, this week. <laughs> so we're, we are back. We are back. Um, in a very tense situation. Quick last question, because in the last book, the British are compromised by by sort of the ghost of Philby. You're right on page 134. The British didn't have any safe houses, at least none that Moscow Central didn't know about. (laughs) Is that true about any of our uh, Five Eyes allies, do you think? No. Thank goodness. Um, Okay, just was (laughs) wondering. I was worried when I read that that you knew something that I didn't know, but it's a great... No, it it is a a reference to the fact that um, in in my last novel, uh, uh, someone at the pinnacle of MI6 was working for the Russians for years and years and years, and one of the things that this person would have done is to betray as many... um, safe properties and as much MI6 tradecraft to the other side as she could. Well, congratulations, Daniel Silva. The new girl is everything that it's expected to be and more. And all the usual suspects, all the Mossad team that we've grown to love from the office, Shamron included, are there. And so I've got more twists and turns in the last hundred pages. All right, I'm looking oh for... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you have no idea what awaits you. And the last page um, will be will come as a, as a big shock to you. So please... Oh. Uh, send, send me a text or email when you finish. All right. The afternoon of July 4th, you will get it. I, I'm telling you, you will be transfixed, America. Go and pre-order the new girl right now, because if you don't have it on the first day, you're going to see other people. You're going to get mad at me, but don't come take mine. Daniel Silva, have a wonderful 4th of July. I appreciate the time, as always. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Generalissimo. God bless America, and thank you all for listening in the land of the free and the home of the brave to absolutely First Amendment protected radio, talking about whatever we want, whatever we want because of what they did in 1776 and 1789. Thanks as well. I'll be back tomorrow on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. On this 5th of July, we are celebrating the 4th of July in our traditional fashion here on the Hugh Hewitt Show with an interview with novelist Daniel Silva about his brand new book, The Cellist. It is something many million of you look forward to every summer, I have been talking to Daniel Silva, I think, since 2008, every summer, maybe since 2007. Daniel, welcome back. Congratulations on the cellist. It's wonderful. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. It's so good to be back. Um, it, and uh, I, it was, uh, if, you, if you read all the way through to the, uh, to the um, acknowledgments and author's note, you saw that I had to, I, uh, had to do a quick change on the book, and and it was a it was an interesting uh, stretch run to say the least, trying to get it ready for publication in six weeks. Unlike my other tradition, I normally do not finish Daniel's books because I don't want to do any spoilers, but I couldn't put it down, and so I finished it. And so we're in dangerous territory here, Daniel. I have to be careful for no spoilers. Uh, so, but, but I read it all the way. It gives us some things to talk about, though. Oh, absolutely, and I want to start. Nothing will be left to chance in our interview, Daniel, using one of the lines from the book. I, I asked Admiral Stavridis last Monday if he had yes. gotten the book, and he's got it. He's reviewing it. And so we talked about Putin. So I want to begin okay. by the czar in the book, intentionally rude and vulgar. He took pleasure in the discomfort of others. He used to people being nervous. And he's back. I mean, you're back with Gabriel Alon and his nemesis, the unnamed czar in Moscow, and if anything, we've gone through 12 years of naivete about Putin. Is anyone ever going to wake up to what you say, a nuclear arm gangster? Well, I think 
um, what is what I find interesting about um, the Biden approach, um, and it, it, what what this book really focuses on is how Putin and the new Russia, um, from the very outset, um, seized control of Russian cash flows and Russian state assets. Um, one, to make themselves um, rich beyond belief, but also to use that money as a weapon against us um, um, and to deliberately um, corrupt the West with their money. Um, uh, last year, uh, the British government released the Russia report, uh, which spelled out in painstaking detail the damage that Russian money had done to British democracy over the years. This was not, they didn't release this report in 2020. I published a book in 2013 about Russia, Russian money in, 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 uh, in Britain and the damage it was doing. Uh, but this focus, this book focuses explicitly on that. And if you look at what I wrote in the book, um, about the damage that the Russian money is doing and what the Biden administration said uh, a couple of weeks ago when they announced their new their new measures. I mean, there's there's no daylight between um, Gabriel Lawn and, and what he says about Russian money and what our new approach is. And that new approach is, is as my friend David Ignatius wrote in his column, uh, what he wrote about it, is that is that American intelligence agencies now have basically free reign to find and freeze and go after this money. Um, uh, not because it simply because it was earned um, through through corruption um, and theft of state assets, but it because it is a threat to our national security. I agree with that. I hope you are right. I am only afraid that the rescission of some sanctions on Nord Stream 2 and the apparent yep. assent to the construction of Nord Stream 2 will put even more money and even more control into the Kremlin's hands. Uh, well, i got to take... Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. But Nord Stream gets tangled up in European politics and relationships with allies, and it always has. Um, and, and this is something that, that we can do um, on our own. And without giving too much of the book away, this is exactly what Gabriel does in this, is to identify someone from Putin's inner circle, put a target on his back, get inside his financial operation, find his assets, Show Don't give away too much. Don't give away too much. Show what he's doing and then target him and use dollar supremacy. This enormous clout that we have because the dollar is the world reserve currency to blow him to smithereens. And we can do it. Disintermediation. Yeah. Disintermediation yeah. of money is a very important thing. George W. Bush in the Oval Office told me that was an important arsenal in our tool. Disintermediation of ill-gotten gains from tyrants is a great idea. We didn't do enough of it. I hope Team Biden does it. But I can't separate Nord Stream as easily as you do. Let me go back. Okay. In 2009, I went back and reread yeah. our interview. You said uh, that, and he made one mistake, alone did. In 2009, your book, The Defector, talking about Moscow yeah. rules, that was leaving yeah. Ivan alive. And you know what happens when you harm a bad Russian? They come looking for vengeance. That's certainly <laughs> the case with Kharkov. You also wrote that you referred to London. There are 200,000 as, you know, a, a Russian city sometimes known as London. Those yeah. books were about Russia. They were years ago. 
you're back, and it's remarkable how much worse it's gotten in 10 years. Have you reflected on that, how much worse well, the problem has gotten? Well, I think if you, look at, if you look at my body of work, uh, Moscow Rules, the defector, um, you have to remember that Moscow Rules, which in effect declared that, that um, Vladimir Putin is a bad actor, that Vladimir Putin is going to launch a new Cold War against us. This is where we're still trying to get him inside the tent. We're still hopeful. Um, that book was very, very prescient. Um, no one had yet um, um, sort of made that ironclad declaration about, about Putin and his intentions. That was ahead of its time a little bit. But if you look at the body of work overall, um, I think it stands the test of time. I think I was, a, I think I was ahead of the curve in understanding um, that that um, having these Kremlin-connected billionaires living amongst us, enriching people, shoveling money at lawyers and accountants and bankers and politicians, um, was going to have a corrosive effect on uh, on um, our societies and our financial institutions. And the British will admit that. They would, very, in, in very the report. They said that 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 Russia, that London had turned into the Russia laundromat. Yeah. Um, very they, ahead of your they, time. In fact, when I reread those interviews, uh, not yeah. only about Russian money and not only about yeah. Putin, but about the willingness of Russia to play by Moscow rules in the West. And we've had a series of assassinations, which are early in the book, reviewed in the cellist and people need to get the cellist early by the way it's going to sell out right away for a lot of reasons it'll be very controversial and very good and very well known for a lot of reasons but it was very prescient that's why we read the 2008-2009 interviews is because it's all connected let me let me go back to that in terms of putin the only other guy who had his number was cheney you know the vice president told me the first time i interviewed him i looked in his eyes and i saw a kgb agent you have never had Anybody? any other doubt. You've never had any no. a KGB colonel. You've never had any doubt at all, Daniel Silva. No. Do they read no. this and book in Russia? Do they get it? Do they get Silva novels in Russia? Uh, they did for a while uh, in Russian, um, and um, you know, I, I I guess that there's uh, there's no. Doubt it. There should be no doubt in anyone's mind that I, I am in, a, in effect a Russian dissident and a, and a Russian pro-democracy uh, activist in my own way. Um, and I, I have not been back to Russia, and, and I would not go back to, to Russia. Oh, I, I, no book signings in Leningrad for St. Petersburg. No, too bad because <laughs> because as someone who um, studied uh, Russian history um, and the history of the Soviet Union. Um, I, I loved the time that I spent in, in, in Moscow and Leningrad. It, it, for me, there are these cities that you just sort of trip over history at every corner. You know, something, this happened in, in this spot in, in the revolution. And this happened here. And um, I actually um, loved the time I, 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 I spent in, in, in Russia. Um, and I want what is what is best and what the, uh, the poor Russian people deserve. And they are getting uh, the bad end of the stick, as we say. I mean, they, they, the wealth of the country is being siphoned and drained away from them by a handful of people connected to Vladimir Putin. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how Gabriel Lawn, the head of Mossad in this book, and it is the 21st Gabriel Lawn novel, 
what he is doing and, and a little bit of the outline. No spoilers here. I will say, however, that every time I go, I was just in, in Maine with my sister-in-law. I find another Silva addict, and we're going to talk about how more of them are coming. But in the meantime, go to Amazon.com on this July 5. Order the cellist, because if you don't, you're going to find... Uh, temporarily out of stock on your bookstore when you go to get it in uh, person. Go just order on Amazon, get it on the first day available. Come right back for more of Daniel Silva on this July 5, 2021. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That is a beautiful, I think it is, uh, Brahms' cellist piece. I am joined by Daniel Silva. The reason I'm playing cello music and music from the cellist is because Daniel Silva apparently is a master of classical music, not content with cornering every art history major ever in the United States and every museum patron ever in the United States for his books. He now wants every musician, classical music enthusiast, and FM radio station to fall into line and get the Gabriel Lawn novel. My question, Daniel Silva, there is a lot, I mean a lot. In the, is this learned or is it earned? And by that I mean, did you study up to write this book, or are you a classical music junkie? <laughs> you know, um, my day literally starts with um, I wake up, um, I have, I've got a nice little stereo uh, with a CD player and, and headphones right there by the bedside. So I'll, I'll pop some light um, string quartet or, or um, you know, something morning-like um, Baroque music, early classical music, um, and find out what's going on in the classical music world that day um, and what new albums are coming out this week. Um, I listen to classical music um, a lot while I'm writing. Um, I listen to classical music while I'm reading. And because I don't really sleep very much, I listen to classical music all night. So I'm, I'm a total classical music junkie. Um, well, that was, that was Rachmaninoff. Yeah, you are. I'm not. I'm not. So I had to be careful spelling everything. That was Rachmaninoff's vocalized, played yeah, by Rostopovich. That was Rostopovich's version. Um, and it's, a, it's actually really a beautiful version. It's central to the book. That's why I picked it. We'll yeah. play a couple more. However, let me ask you about where you get the ear for that. That does not start unless you start early. Where did you pick up the ear for this? And where did you pick up the knowledge, for example, of you name all these artists who Anna might play with, including uh, these legends, are all over the book. I want to, you know, Claudia Abado, Daniel Borenbaum, Her Herbert von Karajan. Where, where did you get all this? These are, if you're a classical music person, these names are like second nature to you. Um, they're all over your CD collection. Um, you hear their names when you're listening to classical music. These are the, these are, um, the people of our world. Um, they're, they're like, you know, Tom Cotton and Mike Pompeo. I mean, that, they're, they're that common. Um, oh my goodness. And, and so it's fun to, 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 to drop names of, of conductors and musicians who I spend my day with. Um, and I had to apologize to one. <laughs> I saw that in the end note. I thought that was funny. That was a very nice aside. Uh, I, I also love the fact that you've got not only the the names of the uh, – you have a very believable character from way back. 
I told my brother who has not read, he has to begin with the kill artist and read him in order. Cause he, if he want, and I'm right, cause you go way back for a character in the I challenge. went way back on this one because there was a character from the second Gabriel Lawn, uh, novel who was a violinist, uh, named Anna Rolfe. And she's one of my favorite, favorite characters. Um, and I've always wanted some, vehicle to bring her back in some small way. Um, and this, this is the book that, that uh, um, it turned out to be the, the vehicle. And oh, it's beautifully. To have her back on the page. And the, and the chapter where she appears in chapter 31, um, the scene between them, I'm, I'm just very, very proud of that scene. You I should be. It's uh, tender and funny, and um, it's, it's written at about three different levels. So people who are familiar with the book will know the meaning of when she when she looks out the window to, into the garden, because they will have read, they know what happened in that garden a long time ago. And um, they will also okay. smile, Danny, as I did, when the household staff greets Gabriel. This is the way, <laughs> I mean, it's just very funny if you're an Alon reader and a Silva Attic. When we come back, we're going to talk about the over. If this is confusing you, I didn't do the setup right. We got to tell you who Gabriel Lawn is. I've got uh, two score new uh, stations, Danny, since last summer. So we got to we got to set the stage when we come back for the long segment. But in the meantime, if you're intrigued, go order the cellist right now. And if you're an addict, you already have. But if you haven't, because you didn't know it was coming, it's coming and it's going to be sold out for a lot of reasons. The Cellist by Daniel Silver. Go to DanielSilverBooks.com on Twitter. Daniel Silver Book. I'll be right back on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Brahms Cello Sonata in E Minor. My friends, this is Hugh Hewitt talking to Daniel Silva about his brand new book, The Cellist. I am using only music from the cellist. I had, I, I, Silva is the only author for whom I have to do homework. Honest to goodness, I have to do homework with Google as I read his books because I want to know about this. I don't know if you've ever seen the final quartet with Christopher Walken and Philip Seymour Hoffman, Daniel, but it's a, uh, oh, it's a, it's a wonderful movie about a, a string quartet with a great cellist, uh, with two great actors, one of whom is unfortunately gone. But let's go back and do what I should have done in the first segment. Would you give our, I got, Two score new stations since you were here last July. A little bit about Gabriel Lawn and the arc of these 21 books, which together make up a masterwork and individually stand alone. And this one, among the very best. It's never going to make the Moscow rules for me, but this is really, you know, the silver goes to this book. Okay. Um, okay, you want me to try to give the, the 15-second Gabriel Lawn biography? I'll give it Yeah, the Wikipedia uh, on Gabriel Lawn. He is um, a child of Holocaust survivors, um, born in the state of Israel. Uh, his mother was a, a, a very talented painter. His grandfather was a very, very talented German expressionist painter who died in the Holocaust. Um, he was supposed to be a painter. He started um, studying art um, after he got out of the military. Uh, and in 1972, uh, because he was a fluent, fluent German speaker, grew up in a German-speaking household, uh, was recruited to uh, take part in the Operation Wrath of God, which was to uh, target and eliminate the perpetrators of the Munich Olympics massacre. Um, his work in that uh, endeavor uh, really sort of stripped him of the ability to produce new original work. He 
personally killed six people um, at close range with a handgun. Um, And so after that operation, he became an art restorer. Uh, And for a number of years, he he used that as his cover while he was working for Israeli intelligence. Um, And this book finds him at the in the twilight of his career um, as as chief of the Israeli intelligence service. Um, And it is in all likelihood um, the the last book where Gabriel will actually be an actual um, Israeli intelligence officer. He's going to enter a new phase of his career. Uh, and Ramona, others are in the offing. I want to tell the audience, if you have not yet read a silver book, my personal preference is to begin with The Kill Artist and then move through the 21. Many people don't do that, but I know a number, yeah. a number of people who through COVID, and COVID, by the way, is very ever-present in this book. We're going to talk about that in a second, who became silver addicts to get them through the pandemic. And if you're still hesitant to go out if you're still worried about the virus in the United States or anywhere around the world. Just get you to Silva's book list and start reading. You'll have fun and you'll learn a lot. Uh, Danny, there are only two characters missing uh, that I I wished you'd put back in. One gets a mention, the Dawn, but I most missed one character. Do you have any idea who I missed the most? Uh... It is the goat. The goat, it's not, you know, I just, I missed the goat. And, uh, you know, otherwise... the the the, the, um, the Corsica angle comes from um, a character named Christopher Keller who who does appear in the book. Um, yes, it's just one of the most intriguing um, aspects of 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 the, of the book. Gabriel's relationship between the two of them. Uh, Christopher was uh, contracted once to kill him. Uh, Gabriel, I mean, he, Christopher is very much a Gabriel Lawn restoration project. Um, and, you know, those scenes that I said on Corsica, I, I have become aware of the fact that they really, really resonate. They sure do. Uh, they sure yeah. do. Especially the old lady who looks into the ruins, whatever. But I'll tell people, I don't want to give any spoilers away. Go and read it. The Don is mentioned. The goat is not. I hope the goat is fine. So, Daniel. I'm not sure about the goat. It could be a long time. When recovered masterpieces or stolen masterpieces show up in the past, it's always very believable because we read stories about that. But I've never read about an adult prodigy discovered in music. Now, Isabel Brenner is that. Does it happen? Um, look, what, what, one of the things that, um, is true is that, you know, there's a, there's a thin line between, um, you know, people who have that, that gift, um, to go to become professionals and people who choose not to do it. Um, and, um, I happen to actually know someone who, was a child prodigy and studied very seriously and and didn't think he was quite good enough to uh-huh. be a professional concert pianist and and chose a different path in life and i don't I don't think it's that uncommon at all and and the other thing is that these people um like her who are you know very classically trained and educated um there there are many 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 very good musicians out there. Um, and um, she never stopped playing. She never stopped working at her craft. Um, she also just happened to be a, a math genius, as many musicians are. And she ended up taking a different path in life. And that path led her 
to a bank that I call Rhine Bank, uh, and it is, you know, quite literally a rogue bank. It is the dirtiest bank in the world. And when she uh, discovers that that bank is laundering money for Russians, uh, she blows the whistle. And one thing leads to another, and she ends up working for Gabriel Lahn in an operation against uh, a, a man at the center of, of Vladimir Putin's inner circle. One of the defining marks of uh, Daniel Silva's work is a lattice work of plot overlaid by a beautiful plant growth of art and history. And in this book, more than any other previous, I've read all 21, there is a echo of past books. Now, there have been echoes before because characters recur, but this one actually tantalizes people with references back to plots, and I think maybe more yeah. than you have done so before. Am I right about that? Yeah, because, you know, it's a, as I um, I don't know how how long the Lawn series will continue, um, but as I, as he nears the end, um, I have this um, um, I just love revisiting old characters. And one of the things about the Alon series is that old enemies um, and adversaries get turned into allies. Um, some. I've done that on, on some. numerous <laughs> occasions. Uh, some, some. Depends on how bad they were. But the um, daughter of Zizi Albacari, without giving too much away, becomes a, a beautiful, redemptive character in Portrait of a Spy. Uh, Martin Landisman, you know, tried to have Gabriel killed in a novel, and now he works with Gabriel in this book. Um, that, that is sort of a theme of, of the book. Um, the, the books deal with restoration on many different levels. Um, restoration of paintings, restoration of people, restoration of, of, of historical wrongs, and I hope um, restoration of our democracy, which is in need of some retouching right now. You will get people mad at you from left and right on this book. The left will be upset with your gentle caricature of the do-gooders with billions who hold museum openings and benefits that they drive their luxury limos to instead of taking mass transportation. Elegant, elegantly Ooh. done. They will, the right, the, not the right, actually, I have no criticism at all. I think some nutters, I don't know if any nutters read you to begin with, will think you've been unfair to Q, but you can't be by definition. They are crazy people. And so, good for you. Uh, genuinely crazy people. But I, I wanted to ask you about how you master it. Now, I've read Stephen Schwartzman. I try to get into public, into finance. I try and follow financial crime. You explain mere yeah. transactions in two pages. I never understood them before. I never understood mere money laundering until the cellist. How did you learn this stuff? So, so, you, so you had heard about the about the mirror trades and that technique. You were aware of those. I was, but I didn't know how it worked. Yeah. Um, well, I guess my technique is to make it as human as possible, and to turn the trade into something that. Um, um, easily understandable, to show it on the page um, and to write about it with some flair and I hope some humor. Yes. Um, and and it is a technique that a certain bank developed um, for, um, and at the time, I mean, the New Yorker wrote a very detailed piece about it. It's totally legal, unethical, but, but a legal way to turn um, uh, rubles, 
dirty rubles into clean dollars and have them in the West. Um, and uh, my, my, I explained it in a way, I hope, um, that was both um, easy to understand and at the same time entertaining. Oh, yeah. It, by the way, I if that. I got it, everyone's going to get it because I really am um, confused on how it worked. Now I understand. It, it actually alarmed me because not just the Russian but the cartels have to launder lots and lots of money. I mean, billions, tens of hundreds of oh, billions of dollars billions, have to be laundered. Billions. And, and um, um, uh, President Biden and Jake Sullivan um, were writing about this for a couple of years um, when, when they announced, the Biden administration announced their initiative. Um, um, your friend and my friend, David Ignatius, wrote a wonderful piece about it. Um, about this, this the billions and billions and billions of, of dollars that are sloshing through our system and corrupting our our, our economy and our government. And um, yes, London is a a um, a center for this. Obviously, Switzerland is. Obviously, Geneva is. But out the depth of our economy. The depth of our property market, the fact that we have anonymous purchases, uh, the fact that we have developers who are allowed to, who, who are allowed to and willing to engage in all cash transactions makes the United States a preferred destination for this money. And I guarantee you, Vladimir Putin owns property in the United States. I have just oh, no doubt. Oh, of course. So do all the billionaire princelings in, in Beijing. When we come back, a final segment about Putin and China. Don't go anywhere. Daniel Silva's new book, The Cellist, is available now at Amazon.com. It will drop in two weeks. You will not get it unless you pre-order because it's going to be one of those signs you hate to see. Temporarily out of stock. Don't be that person. Go get Daniel Silva's new book and come back for the last segment of this July 5 show here on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Beethoven's Cello Sonata in A Major on page 127 of the Cellist America, Daniel Silva's latest book. I've got to ask you, Daniel, I had Admiral Stavridis on last week, and we were talking about your books. He's an avid fan, of course. You probably know Jim. And he and I were talking about China versus Russia, Putin versus Xi. Yeah. Uh, his assessment, and I don't quarrel with the former head of NATO, is that Russia is more of a threat on cyber warfare and China is more of a threat on influence and espionage. And I didn't actually understand that Russia was more muscular on cyber, but he, you know, uh, you believe that obviously from the cellist. He believes it. Are you ever going to tackle the princelings of Beijing or is it just too late in Alon's career because, or because Israel has a deal with the CCP, which makes me upset? You know what? Um, the, the, uh, Alon series is the real world one step. Removed one or two steps removed, um, and um, you know the the truth is is that um, the Israelis have been preparing for our departure from the Middle East for many years. Um, they are trying to stay on decent terms uh, with Putin, um, and they like uh, the. 
Gulf countries and, and the rest of the region know that, that China is coming. China's already there. Um, and that uh, unless we really regain our footing, um, China is, is uh, you know, uh, going to be the, the, the largest uh, economy in the world very soon. Um, and, and so that, there is that balance. Um, and, and they are dealing with, with that reality. So I, I, I don't see... I don't see a China book in my future. That, that's a short answer to the question. All right. And, and, and while I agree, I, I agree. Um, 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 I guess I would disagree a little bit that, that um, I mean, Russia is the king of the information operation. That's cyber. They pioneered yep. it. They pioneered it. They use it against us all the time, 24-7. They are waging war on us 24-7. Hybrid warfare, they call it, um, and it was um, the motivations for it are, are are numerous, but part of it it burns in Vladimir Putin's heart is pure revenge and vengeance for the fall of the Soviet Union. He hates us. We can we can try to to limit the the conflict uh, to a few spheres. We can try to work with him where possible, but he is never, ever going to be a, a reliable ally of the West. Um, he has positioned himself with people as someone who's waging war on the West, and it's just not going to change. 100% agree with that. I just think that, like Sun Tzu said, better that your opponent not know you're at war, and I believe President Xi does, in fact, have the same operation with much less of a profile because he's not the Bulgarian that Putin is. Let me close, though, by asking you about the virus. Okay. The virus, sure. Yeah. The pandemic Um, is through the book and elegantly dealt with. In truth, as you note in the afternote, you try to be true. You have to bend history a little bit. How did it affect you, your writing, your family, your book promote? I mean, what happened to you during the pandemic? Well, let me me add to say one thing about the book. This book was originally set largely in a post-pandemic world. When I decided after the Capitol siege to include the Capitol siege and the, and the inauguration in this book, I um, had to very quickly take what I had written and back it up in time uh, and fit it into, into the pandemic world. Um, you know what? I, I, um, as a writer, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly isolated to begin with. Um, and so, you know, I haven't been able to travel anywhere. I love to travel and, and write to the places that I write about. Um, that's, a, that's been very difficult. Um, it's, I, honestly, I just, I think about the, the uh, uh, 600,000 Americans that, we, that we've lost and that we're, um, I, I worry about the variants. I worry that we're about to have a resurgence. Um, and, but mainly I'm worried about our country. And and I think that the the virus was an accelerant uh, for some very dangerous trends that we've that we've got going on in this country. Um, and I'm nervous, you. I wish I could say that that I wasn't, but I'm I'm very nervous. And I think that's it's, that's um, reflected in the book. As Gabriel tells to Isabella, it's okay to be nervous. He likes people. <laughs> so so I, I will I will close by saying we it's just a wonderful work and it's it's so wonderful for uh, Silva fans on many levels. They won't be able to put it down. I don't think I gave anything away. You gave away a little bit more than I would, Daniel. But my congratulations. Yeah, yeah. It will be a number one New York Times bestseller. 
And and I hope so. friends, I'm warning you, it will not be there if you wait. So don't wait. Get a pre-order and get that book delivered on the first day. Good luck, Dan. Are you going to do any book tour at all? You used to post that at, at Daniel Silva Books, but you didn't go out I'm last I'm going to do um, a, a virtual tour again. Um, I, I think I might um, go into a bookstore for a, a private uh, stock signing. But no, my, we, my company, uh, Collins, forbids uh, in-store events. So it's all virtual once again. Next summer, and I hope there will be. I've got seven more years on my contract. I need seven more Daniel Silva books. Uh, Daniel Silva, thank you. The book is The Cellist. Have a great July 5th, America. I'll be back live tomorrow on July 6th here on the Hugh Hewitt Show. That concludes today's episode of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. Andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.